Joe Musgrove has gone eight and two thirds and is an out away. The Friar Faithful stand is one in Texas. Strike one. Ground ball to shortstop. Kim will go to first. The San Diego Padres get their first no-hitter in the history of the franchise. And it belongs to San Diego's own Joe Musgrove, sending the Friar Faithful into a frenzy. Yes, that just happened on April 9th. Joe Musgrove pitched a no-hitter for the San Diego Padres, the first one in franchise history. The Padres have existed for 53 years, longer than I've been alive, and they have never had a no-hitter, one of the few franchises that has not had one, especially among franchises that have been around a while. So Joe Musgrove, who actually grew up in the San Diego area and uh, grew up rooting for the team, recently joined the Padres for 2021 and pitched a no-hitter at the beginning of the season. So... Very exciting for San Diego fans. I am not a San Diego Padres fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. In fact, the Padres are the Dodgers' biggest rivals this year. But I know we have some San Diego listeners, and it was baseball history. So I played it as our opening of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live. April 10th, 2021 is the date 10.29 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time is the time, and we have a free roll, which started 14 minutes ago. You still have 11 minutes left to get in. It is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can read all about the qualification requirements to win the free money, which is real cash money that I will pay you in various ways, but you can read about the qualifications to win the money. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, so you can understand how you can win this free money, which I can pay you in a variety of ways. Most ways you can think of to be paid online, I can pay you. I'll just leave it at that. If you win, contact me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, or you can text me 775-372-8355, or you can email me, dandruff at PokerFraudAlert.com, all lowercase to claim your funds. This is real cash money, though, not money you'll get on a poker site. This is real money I will pay you in cash. We have this every week, completely free to enter. So it started at 10.15. You have 25 minutes of late registration, which ends at 10.40. You start with a full stack, and then once 10.40 hits, you will not be able to get in anymore. Should be a small field tonight because I did not explicitly announce the show until a short time ago. If you paid attention last week, I did say the show would be on Saturday, but I don't expect you to remember that. We had a Sunday show last week, which is kind of unexpected, and I did say that we will do the show next on Saturday, and that is indeed when we will be doing it. Next week, we are planning to do the show on Friday, so it should be another six days until the show. So for those of you that like a new show to be sooner than a week away, this is good news because this show is six days after the last show. And the next show will be six days after this show, most likely. I will tell you, it will definitely not be on Sunday. I will not be able to make it on Sunday. So it'll either be Friday or Saturday. And I am strongly believing it will be on Friday this week. That will be Friday the 16th. That's just giving you a heads up. Also, I'll give you a heads up. I don't think this show is going to be longer than the last one. The last show, in case 
you were not noticing or didn't listen. The last show was nine hours and 23 minutes long. And I'll tell you, it was closer to 10 prior to the editing out of the breaks and other stuff. Like, I don't edit the show for content, but, you know, I'll edit when I'm pausing for something or looking for something or hesitating with something. So I I actually painstakingly go through the show and remove that so it flows better. So you'll hear the same content, it's just presented better. But that also makes it a little bit shorter. So the unedited version of the show, I'll have to look exactly what it was, but it was near 10 hours. And of course, I take off the breaks, uh, other than the one Eric Ben Smokin commercial I play. So that also shortens the show in the archives. But yeah, very, very long show, a record show. We've never done one that long before. We had Trey Daruski and Brandon join us kind of in the middle stages of the show. And we did have a 40-minute pre-recorded section. So I guess that's a bit cheating because that 40 minutes had been played on Friday night of last week. It was played two days before the show aired, the regular show. So we were replaying that. But still, take that 40 minutes out. It was still over eight hours and 40 minutes of new content. We're not going to have that tonight. In fact, I've mentioned how I got some kind of virus Not the coronavirus, but some kind of virus in mid-March, and I'm still not completely over that. I still get some pain when breathing deeply. I still have a cough. I can't quite shake it. And last week, the day following the show, it got pretty bad. Like, my chest was hurting. It It was pretty painful and uncomfortable. In fact, I got a little bit worried. Now, it turned out nothing bad happened, but, uh... I got to be careful at least as long as I'm recovering from this. So I can't do another nine, 10 hour show, nor do we have that much content. It's only been six days. Last week, it had been eight days since we were last on. So we had more to talk about. So it'd probably be shorter this week, but hey, you had such a long show last week. You could actually drive from LA to Vegas and back and hear the entire show the whole way. Like you could probably go to Vegas and drive back to and from LA or from and to L.A., and you may not even be done with the show. (laughs) That's how long it was. It's like two Vegas drives. Crazy. I can't believe I talked that long. So anyway, I will do the regular intro, give you the agenda. We will get going. Uh, Trey Daruski, I imagine, is probably sleeping. He keeps an early schedule, as you guys have noticed recently. And uh, then we will see if we can pick him up during the evening sometime or during the morning, shall I say. And otherwise, uh, I guess he'll miss this week. I texted him just in case he's still around. We do have somebody else who has been a co-host of the show in the past who has expressed some interest in co-hosting like a few segments of the show. He said he can't do like an eight-hour show, which is understandable, but he'd like to come on for one or two segments, and this was someone you guys liked. Not Calwatt, by the way, but somebody else. And if he'd like to join, if he's around right now, then he's welcome to as well. He's in the same time zone as me, so very good chance he will be up and he is welcome to join. I will give you the intro, then we'll get going. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808. That's an old 70s rotary phone, which forwards to me wherever I go. It's in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston. 
And I've sh- I've posted a picture before the phone, but if you go take a look at my Twitter, which is Todd Wittellis, which is my name, Todd, W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S, you will see that I posted a picture of a mountain scene that I just took yesterday. So is it Mount Charleston? Is it some other mountain? I'll let you figure it out. It's a mountain with a very nice view. You can see there's still snow there. Not like tons of snow, but you can still see there's snow. And it was a picture taken yesterday. I will promise you it was a picture taken yesterday. No tricks there. So it's not like I took it in January and I'm posting it now. Take a look at that while you think about the Mount Charleston line. We have some people already guessing it's Mount Charleston. I won't confirm or deny that. But it is my picture, and I took it when I was physically there. So there's no tricks involved in that. I didn't take a picture of a webcam or anything like that. Okay, so we have a call-to-listen line. The call-to-listen line is a number you just simply call and listen to the show. It's not a call-in line. You can't talk to the show, but you can listen to it, and it does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It doesn't require the internet. It does not require a strong cell phone signal. You could have one bar. It'll work. You don't need a computer. It's very simple. You just call and listen. The phone number is 605-313-0736. Then there's the alternate number, 641-741-1095. That works the same way. It's just there in case the first one is down. It's free to call if you're in the U.S. and you can make free calls within the U.S. Unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it'll cost you one penny a minute not my decision. That's T-Mobile being greedy. Everybody else who can call around the U.S. for free, it will be free. And you can sit on it as long as you like. In fact, when we were not live on the air, then it will put on streaming reruns. It picks at random and it just runs a show from the past nine years. Just picks one and runs it in full and then goes on to another and another and another until we come back live on the air. There are other ways you can listen to the show. Live, you can use the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. Just go to the radio tab, and there's a player on there which works with all devices. In fact, it may even start playing on its own, depending upon which device you are on. You can also use the TuneIn app to listen live, and you can also um, use the call to listen line, of course. Then in the archives, there are many, many ways to listen. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts. We have Spotify, we have iHeartMedia, we have the Bullhorn app, which in fact has its own call to listen line to listen to the archives. We have Stitcher, we have TuneIn, which is for the archives and for the live show. There's two different entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio on there. And you can always play or download the MP3 file of the show, which I post in the radio forum of Poker Fraud Alert. You can just uh, click on the MP3 button off the radio tab or just go to the forums and go to the Radio Archives forum and they are all there in MP3 format. I do want to make an announcement that I have improved our internal MP3 player because if you want to play the show directly from the site before the player was pretty skinny and it was making it difficult to fast forward because when you try to fast forward, it would jump way too far. It was kind of hard to fast forward uh, small amounts and rewind small amounts in the show. So uh, I have widened that player, and now it works a lot better. So that's just a little tip for you in case that was driving you crazy. Nobody even suggested this to me. I was using it myself, and I said, this sucks. 
I don't enjoy using the internal MP3 player on Poker Fraud Alert. So if I don't enjoy it, I have to imagine you don't enjoy it. And so I put the time in to fix it and uh, widen the player. So that is a permanent change. The player has been widened. And if you go there, you will notice that. So that's one quick thing I wanted to note about the player. We have a chat room. You can chat during the show. Otherwise, nobody's in there. But go to the chat room. It works with any device you can think of. It does not require Flash. It does require a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing, which means it has to be validated and it has to not be banned. So once you have that, you can go in there and chat with the other listeners during the show. Keep in mind, most of our listeners, the vast, vast, vast majority of our listeners listen in the archive, so most of the listeners will not be there. But you will see some. You, yeah, in fact, you can type in the chat room, and even though I don't really participate very much, I do read it every so often during the show, and then I will sometimes read the comments on the air and answer to what is said there. If you want to text me during the show, phone number 775-372-8355, which is our main phone number, 775-372-8355, and I will read your texts on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of your text. That is, if you send it to me during the show. If you text me before or after the show, I will answer you, but I probably won't read it on the air, so you don't have to worry about that. But you can text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I will not be offended if you text me while I'm sleeping. I just will get it when I wake up. And that's always there for you. You want to reach me by text? You know how to do it. 775-372-8355. It's our main number to the show. And I said, why not make this a number where people can reach me if they like? You can't call me. Otherwise, I'd get all kinds of crazy calls. But you can text me at any time on that number. And that's how a lot of people get a hold of me when they'd like to talk to me and don't want to use email or PM. The free roll this week, which you can't get into anymore, uh, one minute past the late registration deadline, but it was uh, $58.37. That's the prize pool. $50 came in memory of Kim and Nick Behrens. That's B-E-H-R-E-N-S. Kim and Nick Behrens. Uh, these are two young people who passed away, and uh, a family member is a listener of this show and wanted to donate this $50 in their memory. So it's always uh, very tragic when young people pass away. Of course, we all have to die one day, but it's a lot sadder when someone dies during the early stages of, the, of their life compared to... Uh, when they've lived out a full life. So uh, my condolences to you for the passing. These are t two separate uh, incidents to where the, each of these uh, young people passed away. It wasn't like an accident or anything like that, but uh, they, ha they are no longer with us, and this person wanted to honor them by donating $50 to the free roll. So thank you for your donation, and uh, I'm sure they would be proud that they're Names are being used for this to hand out free money to the degenerates of this show. No, they, they, they probably really would. It's a good deed. You're, you're handing out uh, money for a poker contest where nobody can lose and people have fun playing. Also, $8.37 was donated on behalf of M-Dog's total bankroll. M-Dog is a user on my Vegas Casino Talk forum and he tells a lot of tall tales, in my opinion. 
He makes a lot of claims, which, uh, frankly, I don't believe, and most people don't believe. I have not been able to verify that these are completely false, but he will not go through the steps to verify that they're true. And the burden of proof, of course, is on him. So uh, someone donated this uh, anonymously, but they said this is in on behalf of his total bankroll of 837 <laughs> not, not 837 but $8.37. So that's $58.37 at the prize pool. $30 is for first, 17 is for second, and $11.37 is for third. And I can pay you in a lot of different ways. Just let me know. If you can think of a way you can get paid online, I can probably do it. Okay, here's our agenda, and then we will get going. We're going to have a civil forfeiture story again. We've done this in the past, but uh, there's a new civil forfeiture story in the news, which is pretty egregious. I will tell you that story. That story does not involve a gambler, but the reason I'm featuring it on the show is because civil forfeiture is often targeted at gamblers. And there are people in poker and there are advantaged casino players who have been victimized by civil forfeiture, which is legalized stealing by the government. And when I say legalized stealing, I really mean absolute legalized stealing, actual theft. I'm not talking about fines that someone disagrees with or taxes they don't like or a judgment that they don't agree with. No, 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 no. I'm talking about where the government stops you, searches you, finds your money, takes your money, doesn't charge you with any crime, and tough luck on you. It's just gone. It's hard to believe it really happens in the United States of America in the year of 2021, but it does. And I will give you the recent history of civil forfeiture, and I'll tell you about the recent case that is going on, and a very nasty case that occurred in 2013 involving Casino Advantage players and Harris. It involved Harris Joliet in Illinois and really nasty story there. And I will tell you how you can protect yourself from civil forfeiture because none of us are immune to it. You may say, oh, I don't break the law. I don't break the rules. They'll never get me. No, they might. They might. They might get me one day. But there are some ways you can stop this and you can take some precautions so the civil forfeiture does not get you. I have an update on the Vital Vegas and Sahara lawsuit story. We thought that ended in October when Vital Vegas won via an anti-slap motion when they were sued by Sahara. But no. It kept going on for another six months, and it just ended. This is not being covered anywhere else in the media. You may see coverage of what happened through October, but the recent events have not been covered anywhere except for Poker Fraud Alert, and I will tell you how I got it. Not so much how I got it, but why I became aware of this and what I did after that to get the goods, and I'll even tell you about my personal status with Vital Vegas, because last I told you, he had me blocked and didn't care for me very much. So I will tell you where that stand as well. The Cosmopolitan settled a defamation lawsuit, and that defamation lawsuit came from a pretty familiar name. That would be one O.J. Simpson. Yes, that O.J. Simpson. 
Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, their recent opening, which the former Hard Rock, in case you don't know, their opening is not going very well, and they are already in controversy. We already talked about some things they were doing that I didn't like, and this updated story on them is somewhat about what we already talked about, but some also new details, like the fact that they are apparently accused of banning bloggers from their property. So I'm going to play you a video from a guy who does a blog called Not Leaving Las Vegas. And you can listen to his story and I will comment on it. Scientific gaming. You may not know what that is, but if you've been to Las Vegas and if you've been to any casino pretty much in the U.S., there's a very good chance that you have used their products. Scientific gaming makes casino shufflers. So if you're at a blackjack table and there's a shuffler, an automatic shuffler running, then Scientific Gaming probably made it. Well, they are facing another antitrust lawsuit. They've dealt with it before. Two casinos have sued them. So I'll tell you about that story. Yes, we've used that sound effect twice already. Glad I had that loaded up. Tom Boyden, who is an editor of a popular bodybuilder YouTube channel, he has been fired after... He was accused of embezzlement. And you may say, well, why am I talking about this here? This isn't a bodybuilder show. Well, he is accused of embezzlement involving poker staking. (laughs) So I'll tell you the details there, and I'll play you some videos. Of course, if it has to do with YouTube, you know there's videos about it. I'll play you some videos discussing the matter so you can better understand what's going on. Pretty interesting story. Paul Pierce, former NBA player and current, or shall I say also former NBA analyst, has been fired from ESPN after a video of a home poker game with strippers and drugs surfaced. And it didn't surface because uh, some snake in the grass took the video and leaked it. He voluntarily surfaced the video himself. So we'll tell you about that story. If you work for the win in Las Vegas, you better get vaccinated because if you do not... The wind will fire you. I'll tell you about that. A Caesar Seven Stars member claims that he was denied his annual retreat to Caesar's Palace and forced to go to the Flamingo instead. Caesar's gives you this benefit if you're a Seven Stars that once a year you can visit any property they have and stay for free for four nights and get a four night or, or get a five dollar uh, five dollar five hundred dollar folio credit to use on food and sometimes even in the gift shop. So a Seven Stars member from AC, Atlantic City, claims that he tried and Caesars would not let him do it. And in fact, someone very high up in the chain was stopping him from doing it. So we'll discuss his claims there and I'll give you my comments on the situation. Then we have uh, one element of coronavirus news regarding the vaccines and the second dose. What to expect if you get the second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine? The media isn't being completely honest and straightforward with you, and I will be. So that is our agenda for the evening. It wasn't that long, was it? I mean, by my standards, by every other show's standards. The, most other shows are over before our agenda's over. We're, we actually have a longer agenda than most shows. That's why I can't believe there's poker shows out there that are like 20 minutes. Like, I... I couldn't even describe what I'm going to talk about in 20 minutes. And they get they get the whole show done in 20. I don't know how they do it. But I'm glad I don't have a time limit. I'm glad I, I run my own show and it's broadcast through my server. So there's 
Nothing stopping me from being long-winded. Okay, let's talk about the civil forfeiture. So let me describe civil forfeiture to you. I'll give you the history of civil forfeiture, and then I will describe how it evolved to become a scam and to become legalized theft for the government. Civil forfeiture actually started out with good intentions. What authorities found, what law enforcement found when they were investigating drug crimes was that drug dealers were pretty good at doing the actual drug deal without the police catching them red-handed. They were pretty good at uh, meeting somewhere that uh, was hard for the police to track, hard for them to find, and uh, by the time the police would catch up, uh, if they caught the guy that had the money, the one who actually sold the drugs, they would just find him with a bunch of money and there'd be little they could do because they have no proof that he committed a crime. They may have been, they were investigating the guy for being a big time drug dealer and they would catch him with like 3 million bucks in cash on him. But technically it's not illegal to be carrying 3 billion bucks in cash. So there really would be nothing they could do unless they had enough evidence to arrest him and then seize the money. But if they didn't, then they didn't, and uh, they couldn't do it. So civil forfeiture was a law that was enacted to allow law enforcement to combat this and make it easier to fight the war on drugs. So what they would do is if they had been investigating a drug dealer for quite some time, and they're fairly certain a drug deal just took place, but they missed it. They didn't get to catch the guy in the act, but they know he's carrying the money from the drug deal. This allows them to pull him over, search his car, and then if there's a lot of cash in there that he can't explain, then they can just take it. And then they can put it in the coffers of the police department to help fund uh, further law enforcement efforts. And then it will be up to the drug dealer to prove that he obtained the money legitimately, which, of course, if he's a drug dealer, it'll be hard to prove how he obtained money like that legitimately. So usually when that would happen, the drug dealer would just give up and uh, write it off as the cost of doing business. So this was a tool that was used to keep taking money from drug deals, drug dealers and other well-heeled criminal organizations without having to build a whole criminal case against them. It's one of these things where if you know someone as a criminal and you know they're carrying around a lot of cash that they obtained from criminal activity, but you don't have enough to charge them with a crime, you can take this cash and then make them prove that they got it in a way that was legal. So on the surface, that seems okay, right? The only people getting hurt by that are drug dealers and other major criminals. The problem, and you might be able to foresee this if even if you don't know about civil forfeiture, the problem came from police departments realizing and small town jurisdictions realizing that there were other opportunities to get money aside from just drug dealers or major criminal organizations. They realized that, hey, we could seize money from anybody and just say, okay, prove you got this legitimately. Now, they're not going to seize $20 from someone, but they will seize money like four-figure sums of money, so someone's carrying around $2,000 for whatever reason, they can seize that and say, okay, prove you got this cash legitimately. And you may say, okay, well, that's not so hard. Well, yes, but you have to do it in court. And that usually requires a lawyer. And how many lawyers do you think you can hire 
to get you back that cash if the cash is not very much. If it's $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, it's going to end up eating your entire uh, amount of cash you're going to get back because you have to pay the lawyer. You may have to pay the lawyer more than that. So if the sum of money isn't that much, then usually people are pissed off, but there's nothing they can do about it. Also, often people are targeted who are from out of state. So that makes it a lot harder to fight. It's not like you can just go down the street to your neighborhood court and fight it. You have to go back to the state where it occurred. So again, very inconvenient, very difficult. Also, they started figuring out that they can get people to sign waivers where they are agreeing to give up the money in exchange for not being charged with a crime. So what they would do is they'd say, well, look, you're carrying $10,000. We suspect that was from a drug deal, even if they don't, even if that's just an excuse for why they're taking the money. And they'll say, we're about to arrest you and put you in jail, and you could get 20 years in prison for this. And you, you can say all you want, hey, I didn't deal drugs. You can't prove I dealt drugs. And they'll say, okay, well, well, we'll let the whole thing play out, and you'll have to hire a defense attorney, and it'll cost you a lot of money, and you may lose, and you may get many years in prison. So we really suggest you sign this waiver that we will not charge you for being a drug dealer if you agree to give up this money, that basically you're forfeiting this And in exchange, the state is not going to prosecute you. What would you do in that spot? Now, if it was like a million dollars, yeah, you'd probably say, go ahead, try to charge me. But if it's 10,000, you you might say, okay, you know, if they charge me, I'll be spending more than that on a defense attorney, a lot more than that. So as much as this sucks, I think I have to sign it. And that's what most people end up saying. So they started using this waiver trick to get people to sign away their rights and agree to give up the money. So this way, if they come back later, even if they do hire an attorney and come back later and say, we want the money back, this was uh, seized without good cause, then the police department can come back with, hey, look, he signed it right here, that he knew he was suspected of a crime, and that we, because we didn't have that much evidence, we were willing to drop it in exchange for them uh, allowing us to seize their illicitly obtained money. And it, it, it would be very hard to beat. Furthermore, and by the way, this is something that was fairly common. This wasn't like a, a, a fluke circumstance of some uh, you know, one rogue police department. This was going on all over the country. Furthermore, as this was occurring over the years, because this isn't a new thing. I don't know when the civil forfeiture started, when the, when the abuse of the civil forfeiture started, but it's been many years now. The original civil forfeiture laws were passed in the 70s, but I believe like by the 90s, this was already going on. So some state governments, not all, but some state governments said, hey, 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 we don't like this. This is not what was intended by the civil forfeiture laws. So they started to pass state laws against this sort of thing, making it much tougher for law enforcement to just stop people, take their money and say, okay, prove it's legit or to goad them or threaten them into signing one of these waivers. So various states started to take action, and this would prevent these small jurisdictions, these small towns, small counties, from abusing civil forfeiture, because that's mainly who was doing it. You, you weren't seeing this happening in Los Angeles or New York or, or Miami or Chicago, because these are very large governments that don't 
you know, anything they're going to make from civil forfeiture is a drop in the bucket compared to their overall uh, budget. But for small towns in the middle of nowhere, uh, this was a nice income stream for, for the city and for the police department. So this would uh, really throw a wrench into these small jurisdictions that were abusing civil forfeiture this way. So various states passed some strict laws preventing this. As I said, it still happened in many other states that didn't do it. But the states that did do it, these small jurisdictions said, hmm, is there any way around this? Now, we can't overrule state law. We can't pass local ordinances that are going to uh, supersede the state law. But what we can do is we can get the federal government involved. So that started a program called Equitable Sharing. Equitable Sharing allowed these small governments, these small town and small county governments to do these same civil forfeiture routines, except turned it into a federal case instead of a local slash state level case. This would take it out of the hands of the state and state law would no longer apply because federal law would supersede state law when it's a federal matter. Now, the only way they can make it a federal matter is with the cooperation of the federal government. And what would happen would be a federal government agent would uh, technically be involved. And then federal law, which is much more permissive, would apply. And the federal agent usually wouldn't do very much. He was pretty much usually involved in just name only, so they could call it a federal case. And what would the federal government get out of it? Well, that's where the equitable sharing part comes in. They would split it 50-50. The federal government would get 50%, and the small-town government would get 50%. So good deal for the federal government. They didn't really have to do much work and just free money rolled in. And for the small-town government, yeah, they didn't like giving up 50%, but it's better than zero because their practices had been outlawed by the state. I mean, this may sound like the plot of a bad movie and you go come on that wouldn't happen that's not real that's just that's just to create drama for the plot of the movie but no no it's real and you may say oh well that probably happened like 50 years ago no 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 it's still happening today and it's really unbelievable when you read about the details and you learn about the complete lack of individual rights the complete lack of due process the blatant abuse. This isn't a case where people are wrongly accused of being drug dealers, or wrongly assumed to be criminals because they're stopped with a lot of cash. No, 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 no. They actually target cars that they believe are carrying cash, even if for a legitimate reason. So these police departments may know, they may know that you're carrying cash that you legitimately acquired, and yet you may have a hard time either proving it or fighting it, and they will stop you and take it anyway. Why would they do it? Well, because they want funding. It's not the cops pocketing this money, but the police department is underfunded because it's a small town. And how do they rationalize it? Well, they, they rationalize it like, well, look, we're, we're small. We don't get much funding. All these jerks from the big city pass through all the time, but don't ever stop here, don't ever spend money here. Uh, you know, they, they basically using us as a, as a stopover point to go to the bathroom. And, and if anything happens here, we have to investigate it. So they're basically leeches on us. So, okay, this is, way, this is the way we can get it back. This is the way we can get some of the funding back that we've deserved the whole way. And yeah, it kind of sucks we have to take from individuals, but sorry, that's, life, that's the way life works. We've, we've just got to take it. 
We've we've got to get the funding whatever way we can. And if it means pulling over cars and seizing their cash and making them prove it, then so be it. They also sometimes rationalize it saying, hey, look, you know, everybody has a chance to prove the cash is legitimate. And if they can't or if it's too inconvenient or it's too expensive, that's their problem, not ours. So it's really shitty. It's straight up government stealing. You may wonder which party is primarily responsible for this. Is it them evil, 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 evil Republicans doing this who don't care about the common man? Or might it be the big government Democrats doing this because the government is more important than the individual? Who shall we blame for this? Nobody. I shouldn't say nobody, but no party. Actually, Republicans and Democrats hate this. They overwhelmingly hate this. So you may wonder, why is it not illegal yet? And I don't know why. It, it should be. But by and large, both parties hate this. Republicans find this as a violation of individual rights. They see this as the government trampling on the rights of the individual, which Republicans hate. Democrats see this as a violation of civil liberties. And both are right. Both are correct. Both parties are correct to hate this. They should get together and put an end to this because the only ones gaining from this are corrupt small police departments and the federal government who goes along with them in those equitable sharing arrangements when those are necessary. Everybody else is getting screwed by it. It's not like this is helping the the country at large. It's not like this is doing any kind of good. As you may say, well, if they do away with it, then what are they going to do to these drug dealers? Well, I'll get to that. There, there is a way to keep civil forfeiture, but to modify it to where it will only work the way it was intended and not allow the government to steal from innocent people. And I'll, I will get to my ideas on how to change it. Now, you may wonder, why is that part of this show? It may be interesting, but why is this the lead subject of this show? Well... Who might you know, when I say who, I don't mean which person, but which type of person might you know that would be carrying a lot of cash when flying or driving? See, even if your neighbor is wealthy and has a very good job and has a lot of nice things and probably a lot of money in the bank, he's probably not carrying around a lot of cash. Anything he wants to spend, he's probably putting on his credit card or doing wire transfers or writing checks, whatever. So the only people carrying around cash who are not criminals typically are either gamblers or people who are carrying cash to do some sort of one-time transaction where they're going to buy something. It's, It's basically one of those two things. Otherwise, people don't typically carry a lot of cash around. So this is very relevant to what we discuss on this show, very relevant to the audience here, because most of you are gamblers in some way. Some of you are poker players. Some of you are casino gamblers. But most of you are gamblers of some type, even if you're not a professional gambler. And this affects both amateur and professional gamblers. If you are ever going to be carrying a lot of cash around in your car or on a plane, even domestically, And even if you're not driving it very far, you can potentially be a victim of this. And yes, gamblers have been targeted many times. So this is very relevant and you need to be aware of it. And it's a really, really, really terrible thing.
that has been going on. In uh, 2014, the equitable sharing arrangement with the federal government was ended. Eric Holder, who was the attorney general at the time under Obama, someone I thought was a terrible attorney general and corrupt in some ways, he did do one good thing, and that was he put an end to equitable sharing. Now, it would have been nicer if he went a step further and made it illegal to have any kind of civil forfeiture, whereas a federal law was passed, uh, would have been passed to where this is completely illegal. But that did not happen. But the federal government basically said, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to tell the states you can't do it, but we are not going to get involved anymore, and there's going to be no more equitable sharing. So that disincentivized the federal government from getting involved because the federal government is not going to get involved in these civil forfeiture cases if their reward for getting involved is zero point zero so for a few years that was the end of equitable sharing now that was not the end of civil forfeiture because remember not every state had strong laws against civil forfeiture in fact many still don't so civil forfeiture continued but it was reduced because of the lack of equitable sharing. Some states were much worse than others with doing this. Uh, Iowa was particularly bad. Nevada, in some places, was bad. Not so much on the way to and from Vegas, but other parts of the state, it was bad. Uh, Arizona was another one that was uh, abusing it pretty badly. And, And there were several other states that were doing it. So the days of using the federal government to dodge state law, those were over, but any state where it was still permissible enough to get away with civil forfeiture and targeting cars on the road or in the air- or people in airports, uh, it was still going on. However, it got reset back to the old way in 2017 when, for whatever reason, the Trump administration undid what Eric Holder did. Now, if you're a hater of Trump, I'm sure what you're thinking right now is, ah, that evil piece of shit. He really doesn't care for about anybody. He just uh, he brought back something terrible and evil so the government can steal from people. Well, yeah, he did, but I don't think he understood what he was doing. I don't know who got in his ear, but someone must have, must have convinced Trump that this was hurting law enforcement. I'm guessing it was some kind of police group. And that he was convinced that without equitable sharing, then the federal government cannot get involved in these drug cases. They probably portrayed it to him that this was hurting law enforcement, that the, that the liberals made this happen because they, uh, they're not, they don't care about being tough on crime. It was probably presented to him that way. And he probably said, well, I, I don't like that. The, the Democrats, uh, they, they never know how to handle crime. So, yeah, let's, let's undo it. Let's undo it. If if Eric Holder did it, if Obama did it, it's probably wrong. Probably wrong. So it was undone. Again, I don't, I really, I can't say for sure, but I don't think he understood what he was doing. That's not an excuse. He should have. He's the president. He needs to fully understand whatever he's doing. But I think because this wasn't a major issue to most people, I think he was told about it and kind of rashly made this decision. So equitable sharing was undone or, or was redone. The ban on it was undone. That was in 2017. So we're, we're back presently to the way it was before. And that's a big problem. Now, what are the states 
that have the good laws, the ones that are against civil forfeiture, and what are the states that have weak laws against civil forfeiture? Only 14 out of the 50 states have decent laws regarding civil forfeiture, where the standard of clear and convincing evidence of a crime having been committed is required to seize uh, money or assets that are found on someone. Those 14 states are Colorado, Minnesota, Nevada, Ohio, Utah, Vermont, California, Wisconsin, Connecticut, North Carolina, Montana, Nebraska, and New Mexico. You may notice a few things there. First of all, I said Nevada was one of the states where this was happening. So how could they be one of these states with good laws? Well, this is where the equitable sharing was coming in. And anytime it happened in Nevada, it was uh, through these equitable sharing agreements. Now, in the order I read it to you, it went from uh, decent laws all the way up to great laws. The state that is the best regarding civil forfeiture is New Mexico. New Mexico absolutely will not allow civil forfeiture. It's actually been abolished. It is the only state in the union where civil forfeiture is completely abolished. And the way it currently sits right now, that's good. Though I I feel civil forfeiture has its place, but it has to be, the law has to be written super carefully. Otherwise, it's abused very badly and just shouldn't exist at all. But then there's uh, four other states that have very good laws against civil forfeiture. And that would be Connecticut, North Carolina, Montana, and Nebraska, which have a criminal conviction required before seizure. So not only do do you have to be charged with a crime, but you actually have to be convicted of the crime for the government to be able to seize this cash or property. So it's not quite as strong as New Mexico, but it's still pretty strong. And then it go down, goes down from there. So Florida, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, then California, Vermont, Utah, Ohio, Nevada, Minnesota, Colorado all require clear and convincing evidence that a crime has been committed, which I'd prefer more, more than that, but at least clear and convincing is a fairly high standard. So they can't just... Uh, claim they suspect you're committing a crime or that uh, the preponderance of the evidence, meaning like anything over 50%, they're, they're sure you committed a crime, you know, 50%, so that, you know, 50.01% so they can seize your stuff. Clear and convincing is a pretty high standard of evidence, not quite beyond a reasonable doubt, but just below that to where it, it has to be, as it says, clear and convincing that a crime has been committed. Not just we suspect it or we think it or we see some evidence of it, but it's got to be clear and convincing evidence before they can seize it. But the rest of the states all have fairly lax laws. Many of them have preponderance of the evidence. And then uh, there's several states which are less than preponderance of the evidence. Georgia, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Washington, they can take your stuff if they have, quote, probable cause. Alabama, Alaska, Delaware, Massachusetts, Missouri, Rhode Island, South Carolina, and Wyoming have what's known as a prima facie evidence standard, which means at first appearance. <laughs> that's that's a, at first appearance. That's a very low standard. That means if just like their very quick assessment of the situation is that you've committed a crime, they can seize your stuff. Probable cause means that uh, there's a good cause to suspect you, but they're not sure if you did it yet. 
<laughs> prima facie just means from the looks of it, we think you probably did something. So that could be done in uh, the states I just listed here, eight different states. You might notice from the states I have listed that none of these are consistent along party lines. So you have states that are very lax on this, like uh, Alabama, Alaska, and uh, Wyoming. And you may say, oh, okay, well, look at these Republican states, these red states doing this. Well, okay, what about uh, Delaware? What about Massachusetts? What about Rhode Island? I mean, those are very clearly blue states, and they have that same standard. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you look at the ones with the best laws against civil forfeiture, we have New Mexico, which is the blue state, but then Nebraska is a very red state. Montana's a red state, North Carolina's a red state, and Connecticut's a blue state. So as you see, this is not partisan. It really has very little relation to partisan politics. So you shouldn't blame either party or either type of state for this. It really varies from state to state, kind of apolitically. Now, I'm going to tell you about a very nasty story from Harris Joliet that occurred in 2013. I've mentioned it before on this show a long time ago, but there's more to the story that I didn't know then. And I'm going to tell you the whole story now, and you'll be pretty outraged when you hear it, especially once you hear Hera's involvement in the whole thing. And then I will tell you about the latest that has happened. So in 2013, Harris Joliet decided that they are going to punish advantage players by sicking corrupt police on them. But not corrupt police in Joliet. Remember, Joliet's in Illinois. It was not going to be Joliet police or any police in Illinois that they somehow had the ear of police departments nationwide and were able to get the corrupt departments that were doing uh, civil forfeiture for profit. They were able to get the message over to them that a customer who went through their casino and beat them and was carrying money was likely going to be driving through that jurisdiction and to look out for them to pull them over. And that's what happened. So in 2013, two Casino Advantage players, one was named uh, John Numerzicki, the other one is uh, William Barton Davis, they were from California and they traveled to Harris Joliet claiming that they were there to play a WSOP circuit event. In reality, even though they called themselves professional poker players, if you go take a look at their Hendon mob, I won't even bother to spell Numerjiki because it's a very long name, but uh, I'm sure you can spell William Barton Davis it's exactly as it sounds. You'll see that uh, as of 2013, they had very light poker tournament results. They, they were unlikely to be the type of guys who would travel from California to Joliet, Illinois to play a WSB circuit event as, quote, professional poker players. I cannot say for sure. Maybe they're cash players, but... From what I observed of the situation, they were not professional poker players. They were professional casino advantage players who also played some poker on the side. Anyway, they were aware of a Kino machine that was in Harris Joliet that had the pay tables set incorrectly to where they would be playing at an advantage, which is tough to do in Kino, as Kino has very bad odds. But in this machine's case, yes, 
it was very much in the advantage of the player, and I think you could play them at fairly high limits so you could make some pretty damn good money. Now, do you think that's illegal? If you think it's illegal, you're wrong. It's totally legal to play a machine that has been set to odds that are in your favor. It is not legal to force a machine to pay out at a higher rate than it's supposed to. So if if you win $10 on a machine and it says $10 on the screen and you can find a way to manipulate it to where it uh, will kick out uh, $1,000, or if you notice when you win 10 it kicks out 1000 and you keep doing that over and over to get a lot of extra money you weren't entitled to, that is considered a crime the same way doing the same thing in an ATM machine would be. But it is different if you play a machine that just happens to be positive expectation. There's nothing illegal about that because it is not up to the player to have to determine whether a machine is positive or negative expectation. In fact, almost every casino gambler could not do that at first glance. Very knowledgeable people could, but uh, most people could not. So it's the burdens on the casino to set the machines properly to where the odds are in the casino's favor. If the casino stupidly sets the machine to where the odds are in the player's favor, then uh, tough luck on the casino until they catch it. So Nurejiki and Davis, I don't know how they found this out, but they found out that this particular Kino machine was in Joliet and that they could make a lot of money. So they drove to Joliet. And they took the long trip there, and they played a WSOP tournament while there. I don't know if it was as cover to explain why they were there, or just because they enjoyed playing poker and played that anyway. Whatever it was, they played a WSOP event, a circuit event. They did not cash. Neither of them did. But they won $100,000 together, or at least that's what they had on them when they left. I don't know how much they brought, but they won a substantial amount of money and left the place with $100,000. So they were happy with themselves and they got back on the road to drive back home to California. And as they were on the road, the police got behind them. Not in Joliet, not in Illinois. No, 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 no. But in Iowa, a different state. They got pulled over in Iowa. And once they got pulled over, the police, the the officer who pulled them over was acting very suspicious of them and said they were acting nervous and that he thought they had committed a crime. And in fact, they said they thought he thought they might be uh, drug dealers. So he said, will you consent to a search of the vehicle? Well, numerous Jackie and Davis They knew they hadn't done anything wrong. They knew they weren't drug dealers. So they said, okay, fine, search the vehicle. So he searched the vehicle. He found $100,000 cash. They asked, where'd that come from? They said, we uh, just played at Harry's Joliet and won this money. You can verify with them. We cashed out. We won the money. And uh, he also, upon searching the car, said, hang on. I'm going to bring a drug-sniffing dog over. And the drug-sniffing dog barked. And the drug-sniffing dog led them to a tiny, tiny trace of marijuana. Now, I don't mean these guys were carrying pot smoke. They may have been at one point. But there is so little marijuana in the car, it was actually an amount that could not be smoked. It looked like uh, residue from uh, smoking marijuana, something like that, to where it it was not even a smokable amount. 
So clearly they weren't drug dealers. They were, clearly these were guys who just uh, recreationally smoked pot at some point, and uh, a little of it had uh, a little residue or a little of it had uh, fallen in the car. Based upon that, the cops said that they were drug dealers, that they've caught them red-handed, that this is proof, and they are seizing their $100,000. It was written in the report that the reason they were pulled over in the first place was for failing to signal. In fact, that's what they told them when they pulled them over. You, you failed to signal. That's why we pulled you over. And then it escalated from there. Well, when Numerjiki and Davis fought this to get their money back, because 100 k obviously, it's worth spending some money to fight to get that back. Then it came out that upon looking at the dash cam, because the officer was right behind the cars and had the right behind the car and had it right on cam what had happened a look at the officer's dash cam showed that they had signaled and there was no failure to signal meaning the entire pulling over of that car the whole thing was a lie so in court when this was discussed the officer who pulled them over was questioned and they asked okay well you said it was failure to signal, but we see right here he clearly signaled, and yet you pulled him over anyway. So what was the real reason? Were you looking for that car? Well, yeah, we had been told to be on the lookout for that car. Why? Uh, we were told they had committed some crime. Ah, oh, so the story changed. Anyway, these guys got their money back, but they... Uh, spent a substantial amount on legal fees to do it. And of course, they didn't deserve any of this. But how did the police in Iowa, some small town in Iowa, how did they know to pull over that particular car? How did they know to be on the lookout for this vehicle that Nuerzicki and Davis were driving? How did they know that 100K would be in there? Well, guess who tipped them off? I think you know. The tip-off came from... Harris Joliet. Harris Joliet was angry that Davis and Numerjiki had beaten them and suspected that they may have done something to win it that uh, wasn't kosher, but they weren't sure what it was at the time. So while they couldn't prove that either of them had done anything wrong and they paid them, they decided to get back at them and they called up their friends across the country and said, be on the lookout for this vehicle. They called all the corrupt small-town police departments that were engaging in this sort of civil forfeiture. And they knew that Davis and Numerjiki would be likely passing through that jurisdiction in Iowa because they were going back to California, and they knew which way they would likely drive on the highway. It's not very hard to predict. So they actually spied on Numerjiki and Davis, saw what car they were driving, got the license plate, got the description of the car, and gave it to the corrupt police departments to pull them over and take their money. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice of Harris Joliet to have done? But that is not where it ended. See, two weeks later, the word had gotten out, and other Advantage players showed up to Harris Joliet to smack that Kino machine. Now, why they didn't take this Kino machine offline, I have no idea, but uh, it was still there, and these players showed up and played at high limits and won even more money than Numerjiki and Davis had. Finally, 
Harris turned off the machine. They <laughs> they wised up to what was going on, and uh, they realized the Kino machine was being played at an advantage, and they shut it off. But they decided they're going to do the same thing. So uh, there was a guy named Paul Jovanich and uh, Svetoslav Durabanov, who uh, also left Harris Joliet and also ran into a police department pulling them over. However, it was not in Iowa. It was not that same department that got uh, Numerjiki and Davis. Nope. They were hit by a department in Arizona. This shows you how far the reach is, right? Because, you know, Iowa is not that far from Illinois, but what about Arizona? That's pretty damn far. And yet they somehow were able to get the message out to Arizona to look out for these vehicles. Now, what happened was that uh, one of these guys actually lucked out. Uh, this guy, Dobinov, or Dorobinov, he had a rental car. And for whatever reason, he wasn't satisfied with his rental car. It had nothing to do with uh, having won that money or trying to avoid anything. He just didn't like his rental car for whatever reason. I don't know if it had problems or it just wasn't running well or he wanted a better car because he just won all this money. Whatever it was, after he left Harris, he went down to the rental car company and said, hey, uh, I'd like a different car. So the rental car company gave him a different car. Then he left, moved his stuff to that car, and, and took off back home. Well, the officers around the country who were looking to pull over these cars, uh, they were looking for his old rental car. So they, they didn't know he had switched rental cars. So uh, this Duravanov guy, uh, for the moment, got away with it. However, his friend uh, Paul Jovanich did not get so lucky. And he was the one pulled over in Flagstaff, Arizona. And they confiscated his cash winnings of more than four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> That's worse than uh, Nimrzicki and Davis by four times. So they got him. So they they had described their cars. One of them had switched cars, and they didn't realize it. But one of them had not, and they got him all the way in Arizona from Illinois. However, it didn't stop there, because they decided at Harris Joliet. Now that they knew what was going on, now that they knew that these advantage players were showing up to hit this Kino machine, they determined it cheating, which is BS because legally it is not cheating. Playing a machine that is set to where you can beat the casino because the odds are wrong, that's not cheating. And it doesn't matter if it's for a lot of money, that's the casino's fault for being negligent about that and they need to eat it. That's why you casinos have to be very careful how they set their machines. Anyway, they started a criminal case so they also seized $190,000 from uh, Jovanich that was in a Bank of America account that he had in uh, – he had a safety deposit box in uh, – not an account. He had a safety deposit box in Joliet and was able to get the police there to seize that. I don't know how they found out about the safety deposit box, but uh, they did. Then they started a criminal case against three other individuals – who were involved in this, uh, I'm talking about in this particular case, not the uh, Numerjiki and Davis. There were three other individuals with uh, Jovanich and Durabanov who also went there. They were associated with them. A criminal case was started against them as well. So all five of these people were arrested and had to face criminal charges over this Kino machine. Well, in 2015, the entire case fell apart. And... Uh, None of these people were convicted. One of the big reasons that the case fell apart was that it was discovered that this uh, 
Numerzicki and Davis situation occurred just two weeks before they got uh, Jovanich, uh, Drobinov, and those three others. And it started to be concerning that uh, it would look very bad for the prosecution, and for Harris for that matter, that they're actually sicking out-of-state police departments on players who win there. (laughs) If you win money at Harris and you drive off, that police departments across the country are going to be looking for you to pull you over and steal your money, which is exactly what happened. And the cherry on top, in in one of these cases, they, they prosecuted five people who had won money there. So this looked pretty bad, and the, and the fact that they couldn't just claim this was one cheating ring, the fact that they had done this two weeks before to two guys who apparently didn't even know these other five defendants, uh, that looked pretty bad. So the whole case uh, pretty much fell apart. So think about that. Advantage players came to play a Kino machine, and a bulletin was put throughout the country to corrupt small-town police departments to look for their cars, that Harris observed these people's cars— and told them they'd be carrying cash and to pull them over and to take it. And it wasn't even for Harris to get back. It wasn't like Harris was saying, hey, they stole this money, get it and give it back to us. No, it was punishment. It was, hey, just just take this money. Just take it. They're not going to get away with this. They're just, enjoy it. Take it and put it in your police coffers. We just don't want them to take it. That's basically what Harris Joliet did. So that is really, really bad. And that never got enough uh, en- enough exposure. In fact, even on this show, even though I covered each of these individual situations, I never realized they were linked. And in fact, uh, somehow because I covered them a while apart, I didn't realize they were both at Harris Joliet. Well, that was back in 2013. So why are we talking about that today? Well, there's another case that's going on that uh, reminded me of those cases. And this case is current, even though it does not involve a poker player or a gambler. But it's a very sad story, and I feel very bad for this guy. A guy named Jerry Johnson, who runs a small trucking operation in North Carolina. He is a uh, middle-aged black man. Doesn't really figure into this. There's no racism alleged or anything. Just setting the story up here. And, And I believe he did nothing wrong, by the way. He uh, saw an ad on Craigslist or something he wanted to buy for his uh, small trucking company. And the person wanted to be paid in cash. I believe he was buying uh, a truck. Yeah, he had uh, two trucks in his fleet. And he was looking for a uh, a used uh, Peterbilt semi-truck. So he decided to go to Phoenix to buy this truck for 39500 in cash and was uh, going to drive the truck back to North Carolina where his business is. Obviously, you can't uh, ship the truck there. I guess you, I guess you can like on a big flatbed or a train or something, but that, that, that wasn't included here. So the, the plan was he's just going to, you know, he was a trucker himself. So he was going to uh, fly to Phoenix and buy this truck, and he was going to then uh, drive it back to where his business was located across the country. So he brought... 39500 in cash with him on a plane from North Carolina to Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. He split this cash between his carry-on and his check luggage. Now, there's nothing illegal about this. Some people believe, oh, you can't fly with this much cash. Oh, yes, you can. You could fly with a million dollars cash if you want. 
you cannot take more than a certain amount of cash out of the country without declaring it or into the country. But domestically within the U.S., you can bring as much cash as you want and you don't have to declare it. I'm not saying it's a good idea to do that, but there's nothing illegal about carrying cash, nor do you have to tell anyone that you're carrying cash, no matter how much it is. So that's what he thought. And he and, and poker players do this all the time. Poker players bring huge amounts of cash like to the World Series on the plane. So he brought 39500 and TSA luggage screeners found that uh, almost 20K cash was sitting in his luggage. And they called Phoenix police saying, you may want to watch out for this guy. We don't know his story, but he has 20K cash in his luggage. I don't know if they saw what he carried on, but they definitely saw the half that he put in his luggage. So uh, when he went to go get his checked luggage, he was met by Phoenix Airport Police. This is after he had arrived in uh, in Phoenix from North Carolina. So they must uh, must have been when they when the luggage got there. TSA must have checked it for whatever reason, or I don't know if maybe actually maybe TSA in North Carolina saw it. I I don't know which TSA saw it, but they they knew the cash was in there, and Phoenix Police were right there as soon as he grabbed his bag off the carousel. And said, come with us. So they searched all of his bags. And they found that he had a total of 39500 Well, he then explained that he had this 39500 to make this purchase. To buy this truck. And he said, I can show you. I can show you the ad. I can show you the whole thing I'm going to do here. The police were not interested. They said, we think you are laundering money for a drug cartel. And he said, I swear I'm not. Look, I have a trucking business back in North Carolina. You can check the business exists. You can check we only have two trucks. You can check that I've been in contact with someone to buy this uh, this truck. And that's why I came here. And my plan is to drive it back to North Carolina. And the police said, nope, we don't believe you. We think this whole thing is a front for laundering money. We, we don't believe any of this. We think this is a cover story. So they told him, we are about to charge you with money laundering. And this is going to be very bad for you. But there's one way out of it. There is one way out of it, Mr. Johnson. Yes, the waiver. You can sign a waiver that you are going to give up your 39500 and we won't charge you with being a money launderer. So he was very scared. He was threatened with all kinds of consequences, including uh, immediate arrest and being sent to jail. He was not arrested, but they told him, if you don't sign this waiver, we're going to arrest you, send you to jail, and we're going to charge you with money laundering, and you could go to jail. You can go to prison for a very long time. So we really suggest you sign this waiver and get out of this. So he was very scared, and he signed that waiver. So he is now fighting this in court, and has alerted the media to it, and this is getting some publicity. So this is a really, really ugly situation. And interestingly, there's actual legislation out there right now in Arizona, which is called House Bill 2810, to reform civil forfeiture in Arizona, which, as I said, is one of the places that has been uh, pretty obnoxious with the civil forfeiture. It's been one of the worst states. Iowa's even worse, but Arizona, despite having a, kind of a middling law about it, they have, uh, I think, preponderance of the evidence, but 
yeah, that just basically isn't being followed, and a lot of things can be said to be preponderance of the evidence because you're basically saying that uh, you're 50.01% certain. So that's a lot less of a standard than clear and convincing. Anyway, Arizona, I, I don't think in this case the equitable sharing was involved, so I don't think the federal government reversing the end of equitable sharing had anything to do with this. It looks like this was a Phoenix police uh, operation. But definitely this was just to steal his money. And Phoenix police knew exactly what they were doing. Now, this is actually Phoenix airport police, which might explain it. Now, I don't know if that's its own police department. It surprised me it was Phoenix because Phoenix is a very big city. You would think they wouldn't uh, go through such trouble to get 39K. But maybe it's the airport police that gets it in their coffers and they're a much smaller department if that's a separate police department. I never bothered looking that up. Anyway, they are currently in a battle about this, and this case is being cited when uh, the discussion is taking place about this House Bill 2810. Now, you may say, well, this really sucks for Mr. Johnson here. It looks like he was an innocent victim of the whole thing. But at least in the future, once uh, 2810 passes, then this isn't going to happen anymore. And by the way, there is a lot of support for this in Arizona. Bill 2810 in Arizona changes civil forfeiture in the state to where, number one, a criminal conviction must be there before forfeiting property. So it would become one of the strongest states against civil forfeiture, like those others I mentioned. It requires the government to show that they knew about criminal activity rather than... uh, that the person has to prove that they're innocent. It's basically prove them guilty, not uh, they have to prove they were innocent, which is the way it currently stands. Uh, the waivers we talked about would become illegal. And uh, it would p- create a prompt hearing to where the person's rights are being protected. So this, they wouldn't twist in the wind and wonder what to do and run up legal expenses. They would have very quick hearing that would ensure that their rights are being protected and they're not being abused by civil forfeiture. So uh, this law would be very good. The Arizona House, which, you know, Arizona, it's not a red state anymore. In fact, Biden won in 2020. But in the Arizona House, there was a 57 to 2 vote in favor of House Bill 2810. And the Senate Judiciary Committee in Arizona approved the bill 8 to nothing. However, law enforcement agencies in Arizona sprang a last-second amendment that would really kill most of these reforms and prevented the bill from getting a final vote. The amendments demanded that they could still use the waivers, which pretty much ruins everything, and uh, that they would not need a conviction requirement in any case involving cash or anything else worth more than 10 k which, of course, wouldn't have helped him here because this is more than 10K. And uh, it limits the time that a person can ask for their stuff back. So that was the amendment that law enforcement in Arizona wanted. And so now this is stalling the whole thing. It's not over, but they're, uh, they have to delay the, the final vote. They can't pass the bill uh, until they discuss these amendments that are being rammed in by law enforcement influences in Arizona. So you can see Arizona law enforcement really, really wants this to continue. 
They want uh, Flagstaff, for example, to be able to seize the 400K from advantage gamblers. By the way, that whole Flagstaff area is notorious for that. Same with the area near the Grand Canyon, like Williams. That's another one that's notorious for that. They're also notorious in those areas of Arizona for a lot of uh, ticky-tack traffic violations that have nothing to do with civil forfeiture, but that's another income stream. These are shitty little small, shitty little jurisdictions that basically target motorists that pass through as a revenue source. So this shows you that civil forfeiture is alive and well. Here was a businessman who has, he's got a small business. This isn't a guy with a huge trucking business where 39K isn't going to hurt him. He has three trucks in his business. He had two trucks. He was trying to make this his third truck in his business. And this happens to him. The guy did nothing wrong. He flew to Phoenix to go buy a truck and drive it back. That's all he did. And his 39K is gone. And he was forced to find the, to sign this waiver under threat of being incarcerated and charged with very serious serious crimes that could put him away in prison for many years. Is this disgusting or what? So this is legalized theft. There is no excuse for this. And I hope none of you would victim blame and say, oh, you know, that's his story. He's going to buy a truck, but this has got to be a drug deal. No, no, just like... Uh, Numerjiki and Davis were not dealing drugs, just like uh, this uh, Durabinov and uh, Jovovich, these advantage players, they were not dealing drugs. It's just if certain corrupt police departments know you're carrying cash, they will take it from you. And it's really bad. So what can you do? What can you personally do to prevent this from happening to you if you are carrying cash? Well, first of all, be aware of which states, number one, have strong laws against this, and number two, where this has been known to have occurred a lot. So Arizona, Nevada, Iowa, these are ones that uh, are particular problems. Now, as Nevada, it seems to be happening more in the northern part of the state rather than Vegas, but that uh, seems to be happening. Uh, Florida, there were some cases of this. I've heard in Oregon this happens sometimes. Pennsylvania, Virginia, another big one. So if you're driving through one of these states with cash, be especially mindful, first of all, that if you have out-of-state plates, which you probably will, obey all traffic laws very carefully. Of course, that would not have helped these guys I talked about here who were actually targeted by uh, a search, these advantage players, that they were their vehicles were being looked out for and they were inventing violations they had committed to pull them over. And I'll get to that in a second, how you prevent that. But uh, if you're going to be going through a state that has permissive civil forfeiture laws, or if you're concerned that maybe that these states, these towns in these states will be able to dodge whatever laws are in place by doing this equitable sharing thing with the federal government, then either avoid passing through one of these states, or if you do, then be very sure that the casino does not know what kind of car you're driving. And the casino has cameras, so they can follow you without you even seeing that they're following you. They can follow you on camera. So you don't have to worry if you're carrying a few thousand bucks. They're not going to target you there. You don't have to worry if you lost a bunch of money. They're not going to target you there. These casinos 
when they do it. And the only one I know of that has done it has been Harris Joliet. But there could be others. You don't know. But if you win the casino and you're going to be driving a large sum of cash back home, I'm talking about the driving now, not the flying. We'll get to the flying shortly. But if you're going to be driving it back home and you're going through one of these states where you've heard this happens, or even if you're going through states where you haven't heard this happen, that doesn't mean it won't happen, then what you might want to do if you don't have your own car is exchange rental cars, just like that Durabinov guy did without even realizing that that was helping him. <laughs> he did it for different reasons, and it happened to help him. But you may want to, as paranoid as this sounds, if you're driving a rental car, you may want to switch rental cars, and that is switch rental cars after you've left the casino and aren't coming back. And if you are not renting a car, maybe you consider driving a rental car there. So drive a rental car there. And then, and this is this if you're going there to play and you think you're going to win a lot of money. I don't mean if you're doing a regular visit and you happen to win a slot machine jackpot that you weren't expecting. I, I don't mean that. I'm talking about where you're going to a casino expecting to walk out with a lot of money. Then you may want to drive a rental car there and then swap it after you leave the casino because then they won't know what to look for. And then just obey all, tra- all traffic laws, be careful, and uh, that's that. That's one way to handle it. Another way to handle it is to simply deposit the money. Deposit the money into a local bank that has branches where you live. That's why it's always good to have bank accounts at the major banks, like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, Citibank, uh, U.S. Bank, So open up bank accounts at major banks. Even if you're not going to use them, just open enough to get the type of account that's free. It doesn't charge you a monthly fee and keep the minimum in there to prevent a monthly fee. And then before you leave, just go put the entire money in the bank and get paid by check also instead of by cash. That's another suggestion. In fact, then you don't even have to go to the bank because they will not seize the check. So you can just get paid by check. That's another thing. Don't get paid by cash. Now, a lot of gamblers like to be paid by cash because they feel that uh, it's easier to handle tax-wise because, well, who's to say what happens to the cash after that? Maybe you went back into the casino and lost it. And that's what a lot of gamblers will claim, that uh, their their big winnings they've had, that uh, they, they went back in the casino and lost it and there just isn't a paper trail of that. If it's a check, then you have to show you withdrew the money back and then uh, lost it, and that's that's harder to show. In fact, if you never withdrew it back out of the bank, then you can't show it. So a lot of gamblers like taking their winnings in cash. I'm saying don't. By the way, when I cashed 59K at the 2019 World Series of Poker main event, and of course it was very public I cashed 59K, I was mindful of this. So I even tweeted, and I I was only half joking. I said, don't try to mug me on the way back to my car because I got this in a check. And I did. I got the whole thing in a check. And so I I really was like half serious. Like, I'm not going to be carrying 59K, guys. So don't don't bother to try to look for me. But but also, uh, I got this as a check in case I got pulled over and they would take my cash. I didn't think that... The Rio was going to report me for anything because there was no reason to. You know, I just played the World Series of Poker and happened to uh, cash 59K. But still, 
I didn't want to be pulled over for any reason by a corrupt police department in a small town I was passing through and have them take my 59K. So I got it in a check. So I suggest you get paid in a check. And if you don't, then take these precautions. You can deposit a lot of cash into a local bank, by the way. You'll have to fill out a CTR form, but that's fine. There will probably be a record of you winning this anyway. In fact, there will almost surely be a record of you winning this if you win that much. So it's not like you having won the money is going to be a problem. So fill out the CTR form and just put the cash in the bank before you hit the road. But I really don't suggest at this point that you drive around with that much cash because of this vulnerability with being pulled over. And you may think, oh, this won't happen to me. Well, that's what all these people thought. And you never know. You never know what the arrangement might be. It, It could even be where a corrupt police department has a deal with an individual working at the casino. Like, I've thought about the Harris-Joliet situation. I don't know if Harris-Joliet itself was doing this. I mean, there's obviously a person there, but I don't know if the entire organization of Harris-Joliet, I don't know if the management approved this or if it was just one or two employees there who wanted to be jerks or maybe were even getting paid off by these police departments when they would make such a seizure. So who knows? Also, speaking of a tip-off, There could also be tip-offs to criminals that you're carrying this sum of money. And rather than the police pulling you over, you could be uh, just the victim of a crime where suddenly someone knows you're carrying a lot of cash and runs you off the road or is standing at your car waiting for you with a gun. But even if you have security walk you to your car, then who knows who's going to follow you? So it's really not a good idea to carry very large sums of cash. And I'm talking about like at least low to mid five figures if it's known you're carrying that. I'm not talking about $5,000, $10,000. Though if you're going through an area that's notorious for this, you may not want to carry that amount either because you're going to be really annoyed if you get pulled over by the police in Iowa. If they were to take your uh, 10K, you'd be really annoyed. Even if you can afford it, you'd be really annoyed. So beware. Beware of the civil forfeiture. And hopefully sometime... In the coming years, this will become illegal, or there will be enough reform to where innocent people won't be targeted. And that brings me to my final suggestion here in this segment. And I don't think these suggestions are going to go anywhere because uh, I don't have any power over the situation. So it's not like anyone's going to listen to me. But here's a way that civil forfeiture can be reformed and it can still do what it was originally intended to do. First of all, set a floor of a very high dollar amount of what can be seized with civil forfeiture. Because when they're going after major drug dealers, they're not looking to to grab them when when they're carrying around 10K. So set a floor of something very high. So this way it would only be targeting those who are dealing with a lot of money and that the average person is not likely to be carrying around even on an occasional basis. So like set a floor of $200,000, for example, to where you cannot do this form of civil forfeiture unless the person is carrying 200K or more. 
This, this would prevent almost all targeting of innocent people carrying cash to or from casinos or with legitimate transactions like this uh, Jerry Johnson guy who was trying to buy a new truck. You make it 200K minimum, then they're going to stop targeting vehicles on the road because almost no vehicles are carrying $200,000. Second, ban the waivers. No waivers. No waivers should be allowed to where someone agrees to give up some assets in exchange for no prosecution, just to make it to the way these waivers are invalid and uh, cannot be honored. Third, provide a quick and easy hearing process to where the seized money, uh, the people with the seized money can appear before a judge and explain where the money came from. And if the state loses that hearing, then they have to pay for all court and travel expenses for the accused. And furthermore, if the person feels they got screwed by a local judge, they have a right to appeal it to a state-level court, which will then uh, do, basically do the same thing and hear their reasoning. So this way, people won't be railroaded by a corrupt local court. So put all that in place. By the way, this sounds kind of similar to what Arizona is trying to do, but you know, there's uh, they had some good ideas over there. Fourth, require a standard of clear and convincing evidence that the money or assets were obtained illegally in order to seize it and require that there has to be clear, either clear evidence on the person or in the vehicle that a crime has been committed or they will have to have been a subject of an existing longstanding investigation. So if, you're investig- if you, they've been investigating someone for drug dealing and have uh, some circumstantial evidence already but not enough to arrest them, that they are a drug dealer, and then they stop the person with 300K, then they can seize it. But they can't just target randoms and say, oh, we think you're a drug dealer, nor can they use drug-sniffing dogs to find the scent of drugs or a tiny amount of drugs or a recreational amount of drugs and claim that person's a, quote, drug dealer and force them to give up their money. That would prevent that from happening. It would prevent the targeting of randoms if they either have to produce clear and convincing evidence that was right there or prove they had an existing investigation which had already turned up something. So put those four things together and that will be the end of silver forfeiture being used to target innocent people. Once it becomes too difficult for local jurisdictions to do this, they're going to give up. In fact, just the $200,000 floor would pretty much be the end of it because there are so few people carrying that amount. Even people who win money at casinos usually aren't going to carry 200 k or more. I know there's those gamblers I mentioned that did, but then there's these other requirements to protect them to where the second they can show that they won it at a casino, that they would be able to go to this quick and easy hearing where once they show the judge where it came from, the judge will quickly dismiss it and their expenses will be paid by the state. So they just won't bother anymore. Well, basically what the states or what these localities are hoping for is that they can get people to sign these waivers where they're either afraid to challenge it or just where the challenge will fail. And that uh, for the lower amounts, that it's just too expensive to go forth and fight, especially out of state. So if they seize, say, 30000 from someone, that's 
the type of money where it's a lot and it's worth it for the department to do, but for the individual to hire an attorney to uh, recover all of it, it'll probably rack up bills more than 30K. So the individual probably won't do it. So if there's a quick and easy hearing process where you don't even need an attorney, you can just show up on your own and show where the money came from, then that would make it a lot cheaper for people to even try this in the first place, even for small amounts of money. And as I said, once all this is in place, then these departments won't even attempt it anymore because they're going for the low-hanging fruit because it's easy now. That's what needs to be done. Or alternatively, just declare civil forfeiture as something that's a corrupt failure and do away with it. I understand the original purpose that they had for it, and I actually agree with that purpose, but it got perverted into legalized theft. So if they can't clean that up, if there's just no way to do it, if you can't have the good part of civil forfeiture without the legalized theft against innocent people, then you have to do away with the whole thing. Then the bad outweighs the good and they got to kill the whole thing. So if I heard they just killed the whole thing, I'd be happy. Because at the way it stands right now, it's not worth having. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Move on to our next topic. I want to give you an update about Vital Vegas and their battle with the Sahara. I thought this was over. If you've been following this, you probably thought it was over. And it turns out now it's over, but it wasn't over when we thought it was over. So here's what happened. And this, by the way, is a poker fraud alert exclusive. Nowhere else on the internet is covering this. The original story was covered in several places, but the update is only going to be found here, at least as of right now. In July, Vital Vegas, which is a, uh, it's an account that's run by a guy named Scott Robin. Scott Robin is a local Vegas resident who is in his uh, late 50s. He was once the interactive marketing manager for downtown Uh, He left that position in May of 2020 for reasons unknown. And uh, he does other things like that to make a living. He basically promotes what he can to make a living. And he has a pretty well-followed Twitter account named Vital Vegas. Let's see how many followers he has. He has, uh, yeah, 84,000 followers. The reason he has so many followers is because He spends a lot of time uh, tweeting out just a lot of things about Vegas. Restaurant tips, uh, things to do, interesting things that are happening. Uh, He basically tries to be a source of a lot of information for those who are enthusiastic about Vegas or just like reading about Vegas or want to know new things about Vegas. He tries to present a lot of information. And I guess the word got around. He's had the Twitter account for nine years. So uh, it got pretty well followed. And that's what he does for a living. So one of the things he does is tweet out rumors. And to be honest, a lot of times the rumors end up being incorrect. And this was one of those cases where he tweeted out that the Sahara is going to close permanently in September. Now, in his defense, he did say that it could close permanently in September. He did not say that it was for sure. But he tweeted in July, gut punch of the day. Rumor is Sahara Las Vegas 
could close permanently in September. Permanently. And then he put a link to his own site, vitalvegas.com. Well, Sahara punched back at him. Sahara, from their official account, tweeted back, There is no merit to this claim. It is extremely disappointing to have someone spread unfounded rumors that detrimentally impact our team members, guests, and community. I understand why they were pissed off. When you're struggling, even if you're considering closing down, the last thing you want is a well-read Twitter account like Vital Vegas to spread the rumor around. However, the bottom line is, if you really have been investigating uh, closing, and if you've been contacting liquidators or whatever, then if that's found out, then tough luck. That's basically what you get for being a major Vegas hotel. You, you'd love for it to stay quiet, but the standard for uh, defamation or for libel or slander, the standard is that it has to be untrue, not that it's something you'd rather others don't know. So I understand why they didn't like this being put out there and that this is a vicious cycle, that if they're really struggling, remember this is during the coronavirus, of course, if they're really struggling and they're barely getting by and they may have to close, if the rumor is put out that they're going to shut down in a few months, then people who have reservations there may cancel them or people working there may quit. So it actually can hasten their closure or in fact cause their closure if they are teetering on the brink of surviving and closing. So I understand all that. At the same time, they are a major hotel in Las Vegas and they have to understand that rumors are going to fly and if the rumors are based upon some truth, then they have to deal with it. It sucks, but they have to deal with it. And gossip sites are going to exist like Vital Vegas and that's just part of owning a hotel like the Sahara. Sahara kept pressing Vital Vegas to be quiet about this. Not only did they tweet back, but they kept telling him he has to post a retraction, that they're not closing, they were threatening they're going to sue him. Well, he just kept poking at them. And uh, he even wrote a tweet out there saying like, uh, nothing to see here, department. And and then uh, said something about, something that was implying that this is a sign they're going to be closing. So he didn't directly say they're going to be closing, but uh, again, he was referring to the Sahara and, and implying that they're going to be closing. So to be honest, when I read the filing that uh, was done against Vital Vegas, that it didn't look very good. It really looked like he got bad information and that he kept running with it even when they told him it was false and that it was harming their employees and harming their business. And really, if I were him, I probably would have stopped. Because you know, what if you're wrong? Then you have this big business suing you for untold damages. Now, oddly enough, they were only asking for 15K in the lawsuit plus punitive damages, which I guess the punitive damages could have added up, but 15K isn't a lot of money. I was surprised that that's all they asked for. But at the time, when I posted about this lawsuit, when I became aware of it on September 1st, I said, this doesn't seem frivolous. And I said, according to the lawsuit, they attempted to correct him, but he kept doubling down on the original claim and kept asserting in various ways, directly and indirectly, that the closure was coming. These were my words on September 1st. Well, that was before I learned the further details about the situation. What did Scott Robin do? He retained Mark Randeza and went ahead and had an anti-slap motion filed on his behalf, similar to what I am presently doing with Mike Postle. 
and the frivolous defamation suit against me. You know, the one that's been dropped by Mike Possible, but we're now pressing forward with the anti-slap anyway. Anyway, he retained Mark Randazza, who also is currently Veronica Brill's lawyer in the Possible situation. He's a kind of celebrity First Amendment attorney. And Randazza filed his anti-slap motion. And when I read the anti-slap motion, I changed my mind. It looked like to me that Scott Robin actually had valid reason to spread this rumor. This is what it said in the anti-slap filing. Prior to July 30th, Mr. Robin spoke with an employee of a business liquidation company. The source told Mr. Robin that Sahara had requested an estimate from at least one liquidation company of how much it would cost to liquidate the entire Sahara Casino and Resort and that Sahara is planning to shut down the casino and resort, and that Sahara represented to the source's company that it was in serious financial trouble. They told Mr. Robin that liquidation of the entire casino and resort would result in its closure and possibly its sale. They told Mr. Robin that at least one liquidator had visited Sahara, done an inventory, and submitted a bid for liquidation for the entire Sahara. The source told Mr. Robin that liquidation bids are valid for 90 days and that Sahara had accepted the bid approximately 45 days prior to Mr. Robin speaking with the source in late July 2020. Mr. Robin interpreted this to mean that Sahara would begin liquidation of the Sahara Casino and Resort in September 2020, which is when the 90-day bidding window would expire. So that changes everything. If Sahara really had a liquidation company come down there and make a bid and that Sahara accepted the bid, well, that's enough to put out the rumor that the Sahara is going to close. It's one thing to just hear some guy telling you that who heard it from somewhere. It's another thing that a liquidator came down there and gave a bid. So once I read that, I said, okay, if this is true, if it's true that a liquidator came down and gave a bid, which Sahara accepted, then anything that Scott Robin said about Sahara probably going to be closing soon, that's totally valid for him to guess, even if Sahara ends up surviving and not going through with the liquidation. Enough had happened up to that point to where it's very valid for him to post that rumor. He wasn't just pulling it out of his ass. So the only question really remained was uh, whether that liquidator really came down or whether he got bad info. But there was a second part to this whole thing. There's the public figure defense which, by the way, I also used in my anti-slap motion against Mike Possle. And that is when the person who's claiming defamation is a public figure or a limited-purpose public figure, that is a public figure in a certain area of life, like for Mike Possle, that would be poker. For the Sahara, that would be the casino industry. They were claiming the Sahara is actually a general-purpose public figure. Basically, it's a public figure, and that... The burden of proof is actual malice. Actual malice means that the person who was saying the thing that was false knew it was false at the time they said it. Not just that they were wrong or that they were giving bad information or that they guessed at it, but that they actually knew that they were telling a lie. Let's say you, uh, you tell a neighbor that you're going to uh, spread a rumor about someone you don't like that he's a child molester and that you know the guy didn't molest kids, but you're going to spread that rumor because you think he's a jerk and you confess this to your neighbor, you're about to do it. Then the guy sues you 
for uh, defamation. Even if this guy is a public figure who you said was a child molester, if your neighbor comes forward and gives testimony or provides proof that you told him that you knew it was false when you said it, him being a public figure doesn't matter because that would be considered actual malice, that you're actually knowingly saying something false to defame someone. But short of that, public figures cannot sue you successfully for defamation. And that is basically to prevent public figures from uh, suing anyone who has uh, something negative to say about them. This makes it that once you're in the public eye, you have to understand there's going to be people talking shit about you and you can't sue every one of them. It makes it to where you can only sue those who are intentionally spreading false rumors that they know are false to harm you, not just ones who are assuming the wrong thing. They were claiming that Sahara was actually a public figure and that even if this liquidator hadn't been there, if Scott Robin believed one had been there, that should be enough, which I agree with too. So it really looked like that Robin had a pretty good case to win this anti-slap and to have this whole thing dismissed. Well, in October, that's actually what happened. In October, it was dismissed. And Robin tweeted through his Vital Vegas account, current mood elated, exhausted, and thankful. Anti-slap motion granted today. Sahara's frivolous defamation lawsuit was dismissed. So, that seemed to be that, right? It's over. And Sahara was going to have to pay the fairly expensive legal fees charged by celebrity attorney Mark Randazza. Well, not quite. I had assumed this for a long time, but it turned out there's more to the story. On April 3rd, an account named Melissa Vegas, who's on Twitter as The Melissa Vegas, exactly as it sounds, The Melissa Vegas, she is or was Scott Robin's girlfriend. I say is or was because at some point she posted on her Twitter they're not together anymore, but I I don't know. In some ways, it kind of seems like they are. I don't know. I don't really care. Anyway, she has a pretty uh, active social media presence herself. In fact, she even has an OnlyFans page. If you want to see her naked, I guess you can pay money to do that on OnlyFans. But uh, Melissa Vegas, who, who, by the way, is not his age. <laughs> You're not going to be paying to see a 57-year-old woman naked. She's uh, 38. But anyway, Melissa tweeted on April 3rd, I've been asked to keep my mouth shut about a certain casino that filed a frivolous lawsuit and lost. There's a lot more to the story, and once I'm able to talk, it's fucking on, she wrote. So I thought, hmm, what's this about? This is just on April 3rd. I thought this was over back in October. So then some uh, discussion happened back and forth between her and someone else, and she said, it's pretty rich. They claim Scott, quote, hurt the Vegas community with his tweet, yet they had no problem wasting judicial time and money in Clark County with endless BS motions. How could a middle-class person possibly keep up with these legal fees? Billionaire bullying at its finest. Some people thought it ended in October, but it's been ongoing up until just a few days ago. And then, strangely enough, she also, uh, a few days later, posted a, a picture of her ass on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with this. It was a different thread, but just, uh, I guess if you want to see her ass, you can you can see it. It's right on her Twitter. So I was curious about this. Not about her ass, but I, I was curious about what had happened since October. So I went to go take a look. And as always, Poker Fraud Alert delivers the goods. When we dig into something, we find out the truth. So I put some time into finding this out. 
And here's what happened since October. I'm not going to read you everything. You can see a summary of everything that happened since October if you go to the Poker Fraud Alert thread about this in the Casinos and Las Vegas subforum. But here generally is what happened since then. Vital Vegas, a.k.a. Scott Robin, won the anti-slap in October. Then Sahara decided that they're going to file both in opposition to attorney's fees and appeal the whole thing. However, the geniuses on their legal team accidentally filed the appeal too late after the November 29th deadline. (laughs) How do you let that happen? So the deadline was November 29th, 2020, and Sahara filed the notice of appeal on December 9th. Oops. That was already a problem. The appeal was uh, rejected, and Sahara decided to take the appeal to the Nevada Supreme Court. So then there is legal wrangling back and forth between Vital Vegas through uh, his attorney Mark Randazza and the Sahara in the Nevada Supreme Court as to whether or not this could be heard there. So Randazza was making the point that uh, the Supreme Court really shouldn't have jurisdiction over this, that uh, this is really a local matter. It doesn't belong to the Supreme Court. And the Sahara was claiming, yes, it does. So they, they were trying to take their appeal to the Supreme Court after having it been denied because of uh, filing it too late. So it went back and forth for some time there. And uh, then Sahara wanted more time to respond. Vital Vegas opposed the time, the motion for the extended time. Uh, Sahara got the extended time from the Supreme Court anyway. They responded. But when it was all said and done, on March 4th, the Supreme Court of Nevada ruled, indeed, the whole thing would be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. So back to the local court, the Clark County District Court. It was pretty much uh, pretty much done because they lost their appeal. They filed it too late and the Supreme Court would not get in the way of that. So then it just became a matter of the fees, which, by the way, were... Uh, already granted back on December 30th for 94k so they made this ruling based upon the papers submitted they didn't even have a hearing for these fees for 94k for an anti slap that's a lot of money keep in mind anti slaps were uh, developed in the first place the, this law exists in order to allow people to quickly have frivolous defamation cases or other cases that are being filed to chill free speech, to quickly and cheaply have them dismissed. Well, this this costs 94K. So, wow, if you're going to hire Randazza, it's going to be expensive. So anyway, 94K for an anti-slap. And uh, those those were the fees that Randazza charged uh, Scott Robin. I don't know if Scott fully paid him the 94k or if Randazza was so sure this was going to be dismissed that he was willing to do it uh, and get the fees later because Sahara is very collectible obviously so anyway either way on December 30th those fees had been granted and once the Supreme Court kicked it back because of lack of jurisdiction uh, that became set in stone so then uh, Sahara ended up coughing up 96,633 to uh, Vital Vegas 
for attorney's fees, and I'm assuming probably interest. That's probably where the extra 2K came from. But 96,633 was paid from the Sahara to Vital Vegas, which was paid to Mike, Mark Randazza. So Randazza collected a cool uh, 96K out of this whole thing. So definitely worth his time. And it is finally over. They filed a notice of satisfaction and judgment, basically where Randazza filed, yes, we got the money from Sahara and we're done. And uh, both parties agreed to uh, formally close the case on uh, April 6th because there's nothing further to do because the appeal was rejected and the fees were paid. And what more can you do at that point? The whole thing's over. So April 6th, almost six months later, the Sahara against Vital Vegas case is finally done. It's completely over. Can't come back. Can't rise from the dead. It is over. It is done. So Vital Vegas could finally sleep easy. Now, as an asterisk, as an after note of this whole thing, I had some personal issues with Vital Vegas. Not serious ones, but uh, internet-related personal issues. See, I had... Uh, I gave him a hard time last year, not about this, it was actually before this, that I felt that he was promoting the plaza without being uh, direct about the fact that he was the interactive marketing manager for the Fremont Street Experience downtown. So I said that you're part of a marketing arm and you're not disclosing this, and isn't this the time to disclose that? Well, then he wrote back, what else don't you know about, and blocked me. Well, it turned out that back in May, before my tweet, he had left that position for whatever reason. So it is true, when I tweeted that, he was no longer the interactive marketing manager for the Fremont Free Experience. But how was I supposed to know that? I, I don't keep track of his career. In fact, it was still on his own website that that's what he was doing. So my question was very valid. Now, it's true I phrased it a bit rudely, but you know that's, that's the way Twitter is. Uh, other than that, I never said anything negative about him. In fact, he and I had gotten along in our interaction prior to that. We were never friends. We never talked privately, but uh, he had retweeted some stuff I wrote and I had retweeted some stuff they had written. So you know, it was there was no prior issue that we had with each other on either side, but he didn't like that comment of mine and then he blocked me. And anyway, I, I stayed blocked all this time and I thought this guy's kind of a jerk. Well... I ended up talking to his girlfriend this week over this whole thing because I tweeted to her the link to this update to the story. It's basically, she said, there's a lot I want to say, but I've been told not to say it. I don't know who told her not to say it, but uh, someone told her not to say it. So I said, well, no one told me not to say it. So here, here you are. Here's the, here's the whole story. And I, and I can say what I want because this is all in the public record. A any of these court records are in the public record, and uh, I am not liable in any way for disseminating that information. It's not private information I'm giving you guys. It hasn't been reported anywhere, but it's not private information and I have the right to put it out there. So no one asked me not to, so I, I put it out. Anyway, uh, she thanked me for putting it out. And uh, so I, I ended up talking to her a little bit privately and I was telling her privately, I said, look, I, I just want to be honest with you. A lot of people have a problem with Vital Vegas. There's some guy who uh, has been hassling her on Twitter and, and, and making fun of her posts. And, and, yeah, and he has a lot of haters. You know, Scott has a lot of haters himself, a lot more than she does. 
But I said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. The reason this is happening is because he blocks a ton of people. He even blocked me for like a really lame reason. So that's why it's happening. So maybe he should like not do that as much. and Then you won't have these problems. And I, and I agree you were probably roped into this because you're associated with him. I don't think people are bugging you because you did anything wrong. I think just because you're his girlfriend and you have a pretty brash Twitter where you put up a lot of sexually charged language and images that uh, you're an easy target for people that hate him. So I don't think this is your fault, but he is contributing to a lot of the, the hate he's getting. And I'm one of the people that got blocked that really shouldn't have been. So she did her best to defend him, which really makes me think that they're still together because she was she was polite. Like we, we never argued. She was nice and polite in our discussion, but uh, she was very, uh, very much defending him. And I, I just kept saying, look, you know, like I'm just telling you that's that's what's happening here. He's, he's blocking a lot of people and he puts out a lot of provocative content. And if you're going to do that, you're going to get haters. In fact, I know this because I do. I get haters. I get people insulting me. I get people putting me down. I get people saying mean and nasty things about me. And you know what I do? I either respond to them and argue with them or I ignore them. But I don't block people unless they're really, really persistent with bugging me because I realize that comes with the territory. I realize that I say controversial things out there. I realize that I am opinionated. I realize I say things that will piss some people off. And I understand that will bring on people who are going to say nasty things to me on Twitter. So I said it would be better for him. It's up to him what he wants to do. I'm I'm not telling him how he has to run his Twitter, but it would be better for him if he were to do less blocking and more ignoring. So she said, okay, well, yeah, I understand all that. I can ask him to unblock you if you want. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not really important. Like, I'm not asking to be unblocked. I'm just telling you my history. And I wasn't a, quote, hater. And I wasn't someone who was uh, trying to really come at him uh, in a harassing way. I I posted one critical comment. I got blocked. So anyway, then a, a few hours later, she said back, Okay, you're unblocked now. <laughs> so she she convinced him to unblock me. So okay, okay. Uh, I I have no more issue with Vital Vegas. It was never a serious issue to begin with, because uh, you know he blocked me on Twitter. It's not the end of the world. He he's never done anything to me uh, in real life to harm me in any way or inconvenience me in any way. He just blocked me on Twitter when I didn't think he should have. So I can forgive that. He unblocked me. So it's a new start here. I will say that I was on his side the entire way. And you can take a look at my Poker Fraud Alert thread about this, which dates back to July. I was on his side about the Sahara thing the entire way, even when I thought he was a jerk. I was still hoping he would win this because I hate these frivolous defamation lawsuits. And this was even before I was named in a frivolous defamation lawsuit. I was named on October 1st. This goes back to July for him. So even back then, before I was part of a frivolous defamation lawsuit from Mike Possel, I was uh, hoping he would win that, especially once I learned the full details. At first, I thought, okay, yeah, he kind of screwed up here, and I understand why they're suing him. Then once I learned the full details, I go, no, 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 this is frivolous. So I was rooting for him once I learned that, and I, I was able to separate it. I was able to hope he would win this while not liking him personally. But as I said, it's it's water under the bridge now. I don't dislike the guy now. Hopefully he doesn't dislike me. And I'm unblocked now. So (laughs) 
the one good thing is sometimes people would be talking about him or they'd be quoting something he said about Vegas and I couldn't read it because I was blocked. So I'd either have to log out or open an incognito window or go on another account and it was a pain in the ass. And I'm glad I could see Vital Vegas again. So Scott, if you're listening to this, I have no issue with you and I hope you don't have an issue with me and I'm glad we're past this whole blocking thing and we can move forward. And congratulations on being with Sahara and I believe that was the right ruling and that uh, justice was done in this case. And I'm sorry you had to go through with, through that because you should not have. Regardless of any other issue anyone has with you, you didn't do anything wrong here. So let's move on. The Cosmopolitan, they had their own defamation lawsuit going on, but their defamation lawsuit, it was as defendants. Someone was suing them for defamation. And not just a someone, but one Orenthal James Simpson, O.J. Simpson, was suing the Cosmopolitan for defamation. I didn't even know about this, or if I did, I forgot it. It's, it's possible that I even talked about it here before and forgot, but I really don't remember the story. I think I would remember that O.J. was suing the Cosmopolitan for defamation. So anyway... This was related to a 2017 incident, November 2017, that he was banned from the Cosmo for being drunk and disorderly, is what was uh, said. OJ lives in Vegas, by the way. That's why uh, he probably is seen around town a lot. I've heard from a lot of people that they see OJ here and there. So, anyway, OJ... well, this whole thing was reported in uh, on TMZ after it had happened. And the TMZ report stated that OJ was drunk and disruptive at a bar at the Cosmo and that staff at the Cosmo at that particular bar said that he became verbally abusive with employees and that uh, there was an altercation resulting in a broken glass on the bar. So I guess that was told to TMZ and OJ was pissed off because he said that didn't happen and that uh, this harmed his reputation. So, you know, when everybody thinks of OJ Simpson, they're going to go, oh, OJ Simpson, that's that former football player who was once accused of breaking a glass on the bar of the Cosmo. (laughs) I really don't like that guy anymore. That guy lived a pristine life prior to this. But now that he's gotten drunk and disorderly at the Cosmo and broke a glass, that's where I draw the line. That made me think totally differently about OJ. I've liked the guy ever since the beginning of his career and all the way up until today when I heard about this. I'm sure a lot of people said that, but that's what he was claiming. He was claiming that this harmed his reputation. Also, he believed that the people at the hotel who said this about him were exhibiting racial bias. But uh, that, and then his attorney said that they weren't playing the race card, but uh, he was concerned that there were undertones that are very disturbing. So, anyway, the Cosmo has settled it. The lawsuit was filed in November 2019. And the complaint claimed that uh, unnamed workers at the hotel defamed him by telling TMZ about that ban 
and that he was drunk and disorderly and, and broke a glass. The uh, Cosmopolitan would not comment on the matter, but uh, OJ's attorney simply said the matter has been resolved. It is not clear what the details of the settlement are. It's not clear uh, if he was paid a lot of money, a little money, what it is. However, what is interesting is that both sides have agreed they're going to pay their own legal fees and costs. So that's – I don't know what to make of that. We don't have Eric Benzamokin on here because I'm I'm curious what that means because you would think if OJ got some like okay-ish settlement, he'd say, well, but I had substantial legal fees, so – that's going to eat up my settlement. So how about you pay my legal fees and give me such and such money? But both sides agreed they're going to pay their fees and costs. Now, maybe he got enough money to where that covers that, and they just uh, technically agreed to pay their own fees and costs, but whatever they settled for was kind of worked into that. I don't know. The lawsuit did acknowledge that the Cosmo banned him and that there was some kind of incident. He was uh, with some friends at this uh, restaurant and bar and claimed that uh, they just banned him outright. They, they just came up and banned him. They gave him no reason. This is his claim. And that he was never belligerent and he never damaged any property. So I don't know what really happened there. It's kind of hard to believe that they would just approach OJ and boot him. And that then people would run to TMZ and tell TMZ this. See, it's, it's one thing if people are bothered that OJ is there. Like, let's say customers were outraged that OJ, who they perceived to be a murderer, that OJ was, uh, it was upsetting to see them there and customers were complaining. And they said, you know what, we don't want this guy here. And they ban him, which, which by the way, is in their rights to do. They in Nevada, you can ban anyone from any casino at any time for any reason except for federally protected discriminatory reasons. So they couldn't ban him because he's black. They couldn't ban him because he's old. But they could ban him because people think he's a murderer and that the public doesn't like him. That that would be a valid ban. In fact, they, the, the reason for the ban could be that the Cosmo just doesn't like him, that the owner of the Cosmo just thinks he's a jerk. The owner of the Cosmo... Uh, just didn't like his demeanor uh, during the trial. The owner of the Cosmo thinks he's guilty and got away with murder. Like, uh, like all these things could be reasons to ban him. He also was convicted, of course, of a different crime where he uh, tried to get his memorabilia back that he felt was stolen from him and, and tried to do so at gunpoint, and he served time in prison, substantial time in prison in Nevada for doing this. So th- that could be a reason to ban him in itself, that he's a convicted felon. So... Any of these reasons would be fine to ban him. He doesn't have to be belligerent. He doesn't have to be breaking glasses. He doesn't have to be arguing with employees. They could just say, OJ, we don't want you here. Get out. And he couldn't sue them. He couldn't do a damn thing about it. And it's possible that could be the reason they banned him, just they didn't want him in the, on the property. But then why would the employees call TMZ and tell them this? Unless they just wanted to give a big FU to him. Now, it's possible that it's a combination of both of these things. It's possible that OJ was not doing anything wrong, but that they just didn't want him there and people had complained. So they sent over employees to tell him he's banned. And at that point, he got 
belligerent, and at that point, he started yelling at them, and at that point, he uh, slammed a glass down, which broke on the table. Like, it's possible that that's what happened, that the altercation was over being banned, rather than the altercation is what made him get banned. I don't know. So it could be kind of both sides are telling the truth in a way. But whatever it is, they settled because of the TMZ report, because TMZ was apparently told by Cosmo employees that he was banned for being drunk and disorderly. I do wonder why the Cosmo settled this if they were totally in the right. So let's say Simpson was just drunk and disorderly there. And they, you would think they would have this on camera because it's in the Cosmo. I don't know if they have these cameras in, in the restaurant, but you would think there's enough witnesses because it's OJ. You'd think if OJ was just drunk and flipping out there and they booted him, that even if this report was made to TMZ, there would be enough witnesses to this to where he would not end up winning this case. So the more I think about it, the more I think that there's a good chance that the altercation was about kicking him and that it only started once they wanted him gone because they simply didn't want OJ on their property. And that maybe the Cosmo exaggerated the behavior that OJ was exhibiting. I I believe he probably argued and, and maybe yelled, the glass, who knows, that could have just, for all things, it could have been like, bumped by his elbow or something when he was gesturing and then they say, oh, he broke a glass. Like that's, uh, I, I wonder about that broken glass, but I have to imagine there was some sort of altercation. But if the cosmos settled, it really could be that there's details they didn't really want coming out, like that they just kicked him because they didn't want him there rather than they kicked him for doing something wrong. So it's not clear. Now, it is possible that... They uh, settled this just uh, for some nominal amount of money, just basically to put an end to the whole thing, to make it look like that uh, OJ didn't drop it and wasn't uh, filing a frivolous lawsuit, but at the same time, Cosmo didn't pay much. Like, they could have even settled for a dollar and paid their own court fees and attorneys. Interestingly, going back to the whole thing about his reputation, as you might guess, the attorneys for the Cosmo argued that his reputation is already so bad that a minor incident like this could never damage his rep, that his rep could not suffer any further damage from a minor incident like this when the general public knows him as someone who was accused of murder and got away with it and then was actually convicted of holding memorabilia dealers at gunpoint in a hotel room to get his memorabilia back. That, uh, He's a convicted felon for that, for sure, and that he lost a civil trial for uh, wrongful death related to the murders of uh, his ex-wife and that uh, dude she was hanging out with, Ron Goldman. So that there's, there's already enough court action that have gone against him that paints him in a very, very bad light and that most people believe he committed murder to where how can a, a small incident at the Cosmo affect his reputation? And I have to agree. Like I don't, I don't think there's even one person out there that changed their mind about OJ because of that incident in the Cosmo. That's so minor compared to everything else that's happened with him. 
He spent nine years in prison in Nevada for armed robbery, kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon. He had to pay $33.5 million worth of damages to the families of uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. (laughs) So he's going to worry about people thinking he was drunk and disorderly in the Cosmo and broke a glass? you got to be kidding me. Anyway, that's the way it's gone. So let it be written. So let it be done. Okay, moving on here. Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. We talked about them on a recent show. They are the former Hard Rock. And they are the first hotel casino to open in Vegas that is managed by an Indian tribe. The same Indian tribe that manages the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. The ownership of the hotel is different than the ownership of the casino. So the casino is a Mohegan Sun Casino. It's even branded that way. It's it's called the uh, Mohegan Sun Casino at uh, Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, and that uh, and then the Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, the hotel portion, is run by Virgin, and these are really two entirely separate companies that own different parts of this property, but yet they're intertwined, obviously. So this already is creating a problem. And the reason it's creating a problem is because casinos and hotels on the same property, they they typically interact a lot because what's a very common comp for casino players? Hotel rooms. And what's another very common comp? Restaurants. So if the hotel owns, if Virgin owns the hotel and the restaurants, and if Mohegan Sun owns the casino, any comp that's given at the hotel or the restaurants has to be paid for in some way by the Mohegan Sun in real money. And they, they negotiate a rate. They probably don't pay retail. But still, every time a comp is redeemed, it costs Mohegan real out-of-pocket money, which is different than just giving a service for free. So, for example... If a hotel room is going to sit empty anyway, if it's not comped, if some, if if it's the choice between a comped stay of somebody or no stay, just nobody's there, the room sits vacant, there is very little expense out of pocket for the hotel because all they really have to pay for is replacing the toiletries and uh, I, I, even the maid doesn't cost any money because she's working anyway. So really, out of pockets, it's almost nothing. It's, it's just kind of like a replacement of toiletries, and that's about it. A casino, if it's associated with the hotel, it can hand out comp rooms very easily. And that's why you may notice that you will awful, often get comp rooms at uh, casinos you play at without putting in a lot of play. There are some casinos that hand out comp rooms pretty easily because it doesn't really cost them anything. Even if the room is normally going to be uh, well over $100 or sometimes even over $200, if it's going to sit empty anyway, it's costing them very little out of pocket. And even food comps don't cost them all that much because the the price on the menu is something way marked up over their actual expense to serve you the food. Because remember, the servers are there anyway. And... Uh, the manager of the restaurants there anyway, the the restaurant itself, the space of the restaurant, the equipment for the restaurant, all that is already there. So the only actual out-of-pocket costs 
to give you a restaurant comp would be the cost of the food and drink you consume. Now, maybe you can say that there's an out-of-pocket cost if you take up a table that uh, someone else could be sitting at and that that someone else is not going to wait until you leave and is just going to walk away because they can't get, can't get a table now. But aside from that, there really isn't any out-of-pocket cost when you get a restaurant comp aside from the cost of the raw materials of the food. So again, the amount of comp you're getting at the restaurant, the cost to the uh, casino is very, very little if it's the same company that owns the restaurant. And that's why in places like Caesars, where some restaurants are Caesars owned and some are not, sometimes you can only use the comps in the Caesars own restaurants for exactly that reason, because they don't want to have to reimburse an outside restaurant for more money. Well, with the Mohegan Sun and with Virgin, there's always reimbursement because Mohegan Sun only runs the casino and the hotel and restaurants are run by Virgin. So right there is already a problem. And Indian casinos are notorious for being short-sighted and frugal to where a lot of these Indian casinos see it as a tragedy if in the short term a customer gets over on them. They don't care so much if a customer gets lucky in a negative expectation game and wins, but they care more if the customer finds some way to temporarily get something out of them for nothing or for very little. So, for example, uh, someone who stays on a comp stay and and uses other comps they're given but doesn't play. Now, that happens all the time at every casino everywhere, but Indian casinos really hate this because they are very short-sighted. They don't bother to think, okay, this is part of doing business, or okay, this person may come back next time and actually play. Let's not worry about it, or this is just part of the industry. No, 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 no. All they can see is on this particular stay, you just cost them money and didn't give them the business they wanted. And it really, really bothers them. Uh, A lot of Indian casinos will even go as far as doing things to hurt their own brand because of short-sightedness and frugality. So that doesn't play very well in Vegas. Because in Vegas, it's very well established that if you get a comp, the comp is yours. And if you don't play enough for what the casino would like on that comp, then they're not going to give you that comp next time. But they're not going to do anything to you for it this time, that you'll get to keep all the comps you got. You just won't get them in the future if you stiff them and don't play enough. Or if you have very regular play and just stiff them on occasion, well, they'll overlook that as long as usually when you come, you play a whole lot. It's it's a formula. It's some things that have a judgment call to it. But what they never do in Vegas is retroactively take away your comp because they don't like the amount you played. So you're not going to go to Caesars, for example, on a comp stay and then at the very end, they're, they're not going to present you with a $700 hotel room bill saying, well, this was going to be free, but you didn't play, so now you owe us $700. It just doesn't happen. It just does not happen in Vegas. It never has happened in Vegas. It's never been part of the gambling industry, the casino industry in Vegas. Well, it is now, at least in one place, because as I mentioned on a recent episode, Virgin Hotels Las Vegas has a policy that if you do not play the amount that they want you to play, which, by the way, they won't tell you exactly how much you need to play. You just need to guess at it. If you don't play enough, they may take away your comp and charge you for the room. And that's horrible. Now you may say, come on, that's fair. I mean, they're giving you this comp, believing you're going to play. So if you stiff them and don't play, of course you should owe the money for the room. No. And you know what? That's not a comp. 
A comp from a casino means that you have already been given this based on your past play. If you only get your comp if you earn it from your present play, then what's really happening, if you think about it, is you're showing up with no comp and earning it while you're there. Because you can, at any casino in the world, show up with no comp, never having been there before, play a lot, stay there, and when it comes time to check out, you can say, hey, can you comp off my bill? I gave you a lot of action here. And they'll look at your action and say, yeah, you did. Okay, hang on. Yeah, we're going to comp it off. So there is, after the fact, comping. There is such a thing, and it happens uh, fairly often, where someone gets something comped that was not previously promised to them based upon their current and unexpected play. So basically, if you have to earn your play on this day in order to have this day comped, then you're showing up with no comp and having to earn it. So when you're told you have such and such comp room at Virgin Hotels Las Vegas and you go there, and they're going to bill you for it if you don't earn it, that means you don't have a comp room. You haven't been given a comp room. You've been given nothing, and you have the opportunity to earn a comp. That's a very, very different story. So basically, their comps are not comps. Any comp that you have coming there is not real. You have to earn it. So it's really bad. It's really customer unfriendly. And that's not a good way to open a casino. By the way, as I mentioned on a previous show, they also had a policy, which they've since done away with, that you couldn't bring outside food or drink into there, which is crazy. And again, I don't know of any other hotel casino in Vegas that does that, that actually bans outside food or drink, that you, you cannot bring a bag of fast food or a six-pack of Coke into the room. But that was the policy. They did away with it after a lot of pressure on social media, after they were being mocked for this, and they realized that's not the way they wanted to open up. They hadn't opened yet, so they, were, they didn't want to open up under that cloud, and they decided to do away with that. But they left the policy there that you have to play to earn every comp you have. And the reason that's in place is because Mohegan Sun is so worried that someone's going to travel from Connecticut to Las Vegas, not play, and then they're going to have to pay back Virgin Hotels real money for your stay. That's what they're worried about. So it's not just a matter of not getting the play you're hoping for. It's that if you stay there and don't play, then they have to pay real money to Virgin for it, and they get nothing out of you. And it pisses them off so much they're going to bill you, which is awful. So you may think, okay, well, that may just be the property. That may just be the technical rules, but maybe they won't really do it. Maybe they won't really go through with it and actually bill anyone, bill someone for not playing. Or maybe they'll do this in the most egregious cases. So if someone gets a five-day comp and decides not to play at all for those whole five days and then checks out, maybe they'll get a bill for something. But they're, they're not going to really bill somebody who makes some attempt to play, right? Wrong. I'm going to play you a video from a guy named uh, Stephen Campbell who runs a blog called Not Leaving Las Vegas. And he's going to tell you all about how the Virgin Hotel's grand opening was a disaster and how he was kicked out and how other bloggers, other Vegas-based bloggers who were actually showing up there to give them some press and try to get some people down there. These these bloggers weren't coming down to, to bash them. These Bloggers were coming down to cover their grand opening and give them some publicity. And uh, these bloggers were banned and told that they can't do this. They can't be there. They can't film it. 
So that's pretty obnoxious too. And again, I don't know of any other property that does this. So they're really starting off on the wrong foot with these policies and with their attitude towards these uh, popular bloggers in Vegas. Take a listen to this video, which you don't need to see. I take a listen to this video kind of sounds weird because you're not watching, but you really just need to listen. Really nothing pictured here is that relevant. So in 17 years, I've seen many, many properties do grand openings in Vegas. Some of them even did it during the worst economic downturn we ever had in this country before COVID happened. And those properties were okay. They were big, huge fanfares. Nothing was majorly wrong with them. Sure, the properties might not have made money afterwards, but they didn't get torn into quite like what happened over at Virgin. All right, so let's talk about the hot mess that is the Virgin Resort and some reasons why it kind of went off the rails as quickly as it did. Number one, this was all avoidable. Well, at least all but one point. You see, the Virgin was something that they knew was opening and they were going to try to open it if COVID never happened in September of 2020. Of course, COVID happened. Hey, look, yay, COVID. You know, let's change the whole world around. And we had to. And so now they bumped that opening. There was going to be November, then it was going to be February, and then it ended up being March. But in all that, they kind of did some mistakes. So, you know, one of the things that the, that they couldn't avoid, we're talking about the mistakes they could have avoided, was the location. First of all, this is a problem. It's a major problem for me. Look, if I if I don't want to recommend something to my family or my good close friends, I wouldn't recommend it to you. And what I won't recommend is that you go check out The Virgin just based on the fact that when you look at the crime stats, which I posted in my previous video on Virgin, if you're not on the channel, you don't know it exists. I did actually a room review on Virgin. We did some really good footage inside, but we also showed that the number one area for crime that's off of the main strip area, but close to the strip, McCarran International Airport. Makes total sense. They get more police calls there for things because there's tens of millions of people a year that go through there. But the second location for crime is right next door, literally 50 yards away across from a parking lot on the same side of the street. It's a place called Harbor Island. Now, if your property is right next to a place that has the second most police calls and police activity in the entire strip corridor area, you're going to be in for a bad time. You better increase your your security. But that also means that your patrons and your guests probably don't want to walk that way at night. It's a 20-minute walk, by the way, to get from the main strip to the Virgin Hotel. So that means you're going to be incurring charges. You're going to have some Ubers and some Lyfts and some taxi rides and good luck even getting an Uber and a Lyft nowadays. So it's a mess. The location, though, we can't blame Virgin for. Well, we could. We could say you should have picked another property to buy into, but they did the best with what they had. Okay, we'll give them a pass. But what we can't give them a pass on are different things, okay? Can't give them a pass on the fact that they opened this during a time when there's no international tourism. It would have been, in my opinion, better off for them to wait until there was international tourists coming back because, honestly, this is not a known brand domestically in the United States or Canada. We know what Virgin is. We know Virgin Megastores. We know Virgin Airlines. We know all that kind of stuff, but we don't know them as a travel company, and it's not something that we identify with. You know, if MGM Resorts opened up something in, say, Tulsa, Oklahoma, everybody would know MGM Resorts. They might go to the property. This is not the same thing. So you might have wanted to have waited until international travel comes back. You wouldn't have really lost anything, right? You own the you own the property. Were you really beholden to open anything? I don't think so. And it would have been better for you because you would have had a huge influx of people from the UK that know your brand coming over on your travel junctions. Is Virgin Airlines still a thing? You guys do tourism, right? But hey, look, what do I I know. Open it in March, near March Madness, you figure it prints money. I don't think it's printing money right now because from what I hear, it's kind of empty all the time in the Virgin. Okay, let me stop there for a second. I actually understand why they opened when they did. It kept being delayed, as he said, and they couldn't wait any longer because remember, it's not just Virgin. It's Virgin and Mohegan Sun Casino. 
and I'm sure Mohican Sun wanted them to open as soon as possible. So they didn't care if it was going to open up and be a ghost town. They they just wanted it to open. So I can't say this for certain. I'm just guessing at this, but I think there's a good chance that Mohegan Sun had a contract with them that they open as soon as they can and they, they don't induce any further unnecessary delays. They had COVID-related deba- delays, fine, but they probably had to open as soon as they could and they did so. So I don't blame them for that and I think that point isn't that good of one to criticize them for. And nor do I think that opening at a time which is not all that advantageous for them is going to harm the property in the long run. That just means right when you open, it's not going to be be gangbusters business, but who cares? But the other thing is bad social media policy. That's a major problem for them too. Bad social media policy. Look, if it's not even me. I mean, look, they threatened to kick me out <clears throat> and 86 me if I didn't put my camera away. Totally understand. Just eight, threatened 86 the guy. He'll go away. Be strong arming him. I talked about that in my last video. But kicking out all you can eat Vegas? Have you seen the guy's channel? I know I'm a little divisive myself, but... Derek is like one of the nicest people on YouTube. He's just fun. He was going to introduce your property to 100,000 people. And what did you do? You just told him to leave. You said, no, I'm sorry, sir. You know what? You're not sitting on a machine spending $10,000 this trip. You're in a restaurant trying to eat. How dare you get your crap and leave? And that right there is insulting, not to Derek necessarily. I mean, he, he's probably pretty insulted, but not just to Derek, but to every single blogger who went through that property that got hassled. And it was him, it was me, and it was probably others. If you know a blogger that got hassled at that property, let us know in the comments below. Because we were trying to give you guys some free promotion, and instead of you letting us give you free promotion, you told us that we weren't welcome there. How often do you think we're all going to go to the Virgin Resort when it comes to having friends and family inside now? I- yeah, well, forget the friends and family. I don't think they care so much about that. But he's right that when they're opening up and they're trying to drum up business, they're trying to get people down there, they're trying to get good word of mouth, you don't want to alienate the bloggers. Now, if the bloggers are harassing people, then yes, boot them out. If the bloggers are taping people uh, playing uh, the games there when they're not supposed to be, if they're doing things that are making the other guests feel uncomfortable and there's complaints about them, I understand kicking them out. I would think that you should warn them first and then kick them out if they don't stop. But it sounds to me from what these guys are saying, I can't be sure because I wasn't there, but it sounds to me from what they're saying that they just have a kind of hostile policy towards bloggers and don't want them there. They don't want these guys recording inside of the Virgin and they just get rid of them. They say, nope, can't do this here, get out. I can understand that they just don't like that going on there, and maybe they feel that these guys are selfish and they're trying to use the Virgin to get views on their own channel. Maybe they're even afraid that they're going to be criticized on their channel, but these guys are human beings. Let me tell you the truth. These bloggers, if you treat them well, they're going to kiss your ass. If, if you treat them well and make them feel welcome and make them feel like they were appreciated then it's going to be very hard for them to go back and criticize you. Even if they don't like your property, even if there's policies they don't like, it's going to be much tougher for them to talk shit. But when you kick them out, when you find a a reason to get rid of them, when they haven't really done anything or caused any complaints against them, if you throw them out, then it's going to be the opposite. Then they're going to go out of their way to bash you. And then the word of mouth is going to start becoming bad. 
So I, I have no idea what they're doing over there. I know I'm not going to. But the next point up is no pool, complete lack of a pool. How do you open a property in April and for the better part of it, end of March in Vegas, knowing that you're just literally a few days or a few weeks away from getting hot and not have a pool and charging the room rates? Because that's the next step too. Wow, I said that really weird too. <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm from up st- upstate Minnesota, but all of a sudden, you know, there's no pool, and then you have $170 for a room night on a basic room. Sure, you don't have any resort fees. I completely understand. Your Wi-Fi is free, albeit pretty slow. It was three megabits per second download speeds, but you have the audacity to charge $170 a room night for that basic room that I reviewed on the last video that I did on Virgin. And your, your prices are over the top, man. You're in a bad location. You don't have a swimming pool that works. You don't have international tourism. You don't have a shuttle to go to the strip. You don't have a lot of things in the property open. There's coming soon signs everywhere. And you're charging that much for a room. It just doesn't make any sense. Not to mention the fact that the person that gave me the room to stay in had a three-night comp from uh, the, the property. And then they were told that they're going to be charged the entire stay because, in their opinion, they didn't play enough in the resort. And that person gambled and lost like $2,000 at the property while he was there that day. And he still didn't get the room comp for free. So that's another problem that you're going to have. now. That's- okay, let me stop right there. That is a big issue. That right there is a big issue. Now... I know some of you are going to say, well, just because the person lost 2000 that doesn't mean they played enough. Because one thing that people don't understand about Vegas comps is that they're not really based upon actual losses. They're a little bit based on actual losses, but they're mainly based upon theoretical losses. Theoretical losses are what you would have lost if your luck was exactly average. So that's the way the casino takes luck out of the equation when they figure out who to invite back. Why? Because there's so much gaming going on that what people win and lose there is going to end up pretty damn close to the theoretical odds of the games anyway, or at least theoretical odds plus the people's skill. So that if they're really bad at a game, then they make even more money. And they figure that in too, by the way. But they don't worry if somebody gets lucky because they know next time they may get unlucky. And at the same time, they don't worry so much if you get unlucky. They don't give you extra because they know you could have just as well gotten lucky. So they look much less at your actual results and more about what you would have lost if you played that amount and had exactly average luck. So it's possible that this guy's buddy, the one doing the video, Stephen Campbell, it's possible that whoever gave him the room to stay in that had this comp, that this person played relatively little but happened to lose, happened to do really badly and played a relatively short time, lost 2K, said screw this, and quit playing. But here's the bottom line. They are charging someone for a comp room who came, played, and lost 2K. So the bottom line is they lost 2K. So if you're going to have this ridiculous policy, if you're so worried about customers coming from across the country, from Connecticut, and then just using this as a room to stay in, as a free Vegas vacation and not actually play there, and then uh, they don't make any money from this person. In fact, they lose it because they have to reimburse Virgin. If Mohegan's son is that worried about it, then, okay, I think that's crappy, but if they are going to be that worried, they should be worried about the ones who actually don't lose money to them. So if someone loses money to them, it should be game over. It should be, yeah, it should be, we're not even going to think about it enforcing this policy because we got something out of this person. Ignoring the odds, ignoring the theoretical, ignoring the playtime, ignoring all that, just bottom line is this person got a comp room, 
They lost 2K. We're happy we got 2K out of this person coming here. Done. If they're going to enforce this bizarre policy, they should enforce it against people who win and who, uh, who, who didn't play much. So if somebody sits down and uh, plays for 20 minutes at uh, you know, middle limits and, and wins a little bit and quits and says, okay, that's my gambling for the trip, and they want to charge them, I still disagree with it for the reasons I said, but that's not as bad as hitting someone who lost 2K in the casino with a charge for a room that was said to be comped. So that, that is a huge problem, and it's a terrible look, too, when someone says, I lost 2K here. I played enough to lose 2K, and yet they still took away my comp and charged me for the room on the back end, which is horrible. So that's, uh, that's a big problem. As far as the price stuff he was talking about, you know, that's up to them what price they want to set, and if people want to stay there, then they will stay there for that price, and if they don't, then they won't. As long as they're not misleading people about... Uh, the property or what's offered there or what's open, as long as they're transparent about that. And I don't know if they are or aren't. He didn't say whether they were transparent on this thing, so I won't comment there. But they can charge whatever they want. They could charge a 1000 a night, just nobody would, would stay there. That's their own problem. So I won't give a hotel a hard time for charging high prices as long as they're honest and straightforward about it. Then that's the free market at work. And if they charge too much money, then they're not going to get business and they're not going to stay around. But he does bring up some good points that the property does have some flaws. It's not in the best area. It is not walking distance from the strip. It takes 20 minutes to walk there. And at night, you don't want to walk in that area. That it doesn't have a pool. And that it's just nothing people are going to want to really want to visit. So what... What's justifying the fairly high price, especially during uh, still a time when they're affected by COVID and they're not getting the traffic there they once were? It's not the first time that's ever happened in the history of Vegas. And in this situation, it's very unique. It's unique because Mohican Sun runs the gaming floor and the Virgin Resort runs the actual hotel. So that means that they're selling their prop, their rooms back and forth, if that makes sense. So they, uh, they want to make sure that if the casino is going to buy the rooms from the hotel... From my basic understanding, I can't say for sure, but if the casino <clears throat> floor is going to buy, Mohegan Sun is going to buy rooms from the Virgin, then Mohegan Sun wants to make sure that there's enough gaming losses so they can justify the room comp, if that makes sense to you guys. But it's a major problem when you're going to chase high rollers away because you said you didn't have enough play in the property. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem for sure. Uh, yeah, the other problem is unknown branding. And I think I touched upon that as well for domestic audiences. You don't have the brand. <clears throat> Nobody knows really who you are as a terms of a travel company. So it's not like you're a destination, which is my last point. You're not a destination draw. You, there's no reason for me to actually come to the property. When you were the hard rock, I'm going to share with you guys a brief story, okay? I used to work in timeshare marketing on the Strip, and I actually worked right on Harmon, which is the road that runs from Las Vegas Boulevard at Planet Hollywood all the way back to Paradise where the Virgin sits. When the hard rock hotel was there, you would have people that would walk up to you and say, which way is the hard rock hotel? And say, okay, well, which way is the hard rock is how they'd phrase it. I'd say, well, are you looking for a tasty burger or are you looking to see the memorabilia? They'd say the memorabilia. 
memorabilia. You would point them down the road. You'd say, it's that way. It's 20 minutes. It's really hot. You might want to take a taxi. And you'd also add, don't walk back that way at night. And they'd say, okay, they want to see the memorabilia. That was a draw to get them to the property, okay? Having things like Prince's setup uh, from his costume from Purple Rain, Aerosmith's guitars, Slash's hat from Guns N' Roses. I could go on and on and on. They had a ton of cool stuff in there. Queen's get up from uh, when they played in Wembley Stadium. Like these were draws that people wanted to go see. There was reasons to get there. And if there's reasons to get there, they might game there and they might do lunch there. And if there's reasons to get there and they like the property, they might go, this is pretty cool. Let's stay here next time. But you don't have a main draw to come down to the property. And that's a major problem for the Virgin in Las Vegas. Correct. Correct. I had wondered the same thing myself when it opened. Like, okay, it's Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. What does that mean? Who's going to want to come there? What's what's the reason for people to come there? Aside from just being a hotel in Vegas people could stay at. But no one's going to make it a destination that they want to see. No one who isn't staying there is going to come down there. Especially because it's off strip. So my assumption, which looks like it's incorrect. But my assumption at the time was that they were going to keep to the general Virgin brand. I pictured it was going to be classy, customer-friendly, something that is very customer-oriented, something where they want you to be happy and leave happy, and that they would use that as their brand. Still not going to attract people down there to see something, but at least this will keep people wanting to come there and stay there, is if you know the Virgin brand as something that appreciates its customers, tries to do things right, and has class. But this is the opposite. So far, they've shown no class. Charging you for bringing in food and drink, totally non-standard. Or not charging you, just not letting you. Uh, Taking away your comp if they feel you don't play enough. And it's not like they say you have to play this many hours at these limits. They don't tell you any of this. It's a guessing game. So you can feel you played enough and then get the bad news when you're checking out. You never know when you've gotten there, nor will they tell you. So that's uh, that's a problem. It's a huge problem. So the only reason people would have to stay there is kind of non-existent because everything that people would appreciate about the Virgin brand is apparently not present at this hotel. So how do they write the ship? Like, I don't know how that works. I'm not a casino executive. I'm not in the hotel industry. I know, obviously, if they had their international travel coming back, then they would have no problems. But they don't have international travel coming back for months and months on end. And nobody really knows when. Right now in the UK, where most of the Virgin audience would be for people who recognize the brand, there's like a 5,000 British pound fine imposed if you try to leave the country and you can't prove that a family member is on their deathbed or that you you have some kind of life or death situation for business outside of the country. So those people aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Even if we opened up international travel with people having vaccinations and being able to prove it, those folks can't even leave the country because their own governments impose something on them. And by the way, if you're in the UK, I feel for you. You guys are super nice people. Thank you guys for watching the video. I love my UK audience and I'm praying that you guys get some freedom back because it sounds like a bad spot to be in, especially if you're already vaccinated and you can't even leave. So tell me if you're from the UK in the comments below. Lack of branding for domestic audiences, lack of international tourists, lack of a draw to get to the property, no pool, high room rates, chasing social media bloggers off the property and basically making them feel like they're criminalized. Okay, we've heard all this before. He's just recapping, so we'll stop it here. 
So, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do. They have set themselves up for disaster by partnering with not just a separate company, but an Indian tribe of all things. If these were two non-Indian tribe companies that were partnering together, then I'm not saying it's a good situation. It's still bad for the reasons I stated, but not quite as bad if you were to get two companies that realized that uh, they were synergistic, that one helps the other and that they have to stop worrying so much at the moment of who's paying who. And if they feel it's inequitable on one side or the other, then renegotiate the rates. It should be something like that. But uh, when you have a partnership with an Indian casino of all things, which tends to be very penny-pinching and constantly worrying about customers getting over on them, that's a disaster. And all you're looking to see happen is that you're going to have unsatisfied customers who are pissed off at one side or the other, probably more likely the casino side. And it's probably going to be buck passing too. Well, you know, we understand they'll say at the hotel, but I'm sorry, the casino is demanding it this way. (laughs) Then you go back to the casino and complain to them. Well, uh, we understand, but you have to understand that the the hotel's charging us an arm and a leg for every comp we give you. So we have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to go broke. So I I can totally see that they're going to blame each other when customers complain. It's a complete mess. So you, you can't run an efficient casino this way. You can't. It's like having a body where your left hand and right hand are constantly concerned about uh, which hand is uh, is getting the better deal on the situation and where the hands don't ever want to work together. You're holding something in your right hand and your right hand's going, why should I have to hold this? You know, I, I might end up with car- carpal tunnel. I could end up uh, straining my fingers. You know, I want the other hand to hold this. Left hand, what are you doing for me? You, you hold this. No, 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 you hold this. They, so you wouldn't be able to get through life this way if, if your hands argued with each other about this and if they were constantly worried about uh, the burden of what they have to do falling on one hand more than the other. So that's what's happening here. They have to act in synergy and they're not. And the ones who are suffering are the customers who are not going to continue suffering. They just won't come back. And unlike an iconic property like the Bellagio or the Wynn or uh, the Resorts World, which is about to open, which is going to probably blow away all the existing properties from what I'm hearing, and uh, even the Venetian, these properties... They can afford some bad press or bad word of mouth because there's going to be a lot of people who still want to go there, but not Virgin Hotels off the strip. And he's saying that nobody knows the brand domestically. I I wouldn't go that far. People know the brand, but the impression most people have of Virgin is that it's classy and customer friendly. If they don't have this, then they're going to disappoint people. People will go there expecting something and not get it and never go back. He's right that you have to have a positive. If you don't have a positive, it's going to fail. If you don't have people saying, I'm coming to Virgin Hotels because X, then you'll get people coming back. If there's no X they can say they're coming there for, they won't come back. So I'm coming to Virgin Hotels because it's cheap. Well, apparently not. I'm coming to Virgin Hotels because they're very customer friendly and very nice. Apparently not. I'm coming there because they have uh, great policies and they allow a lot more than the Strip does. Apparently not. I'm coming to Virgin Hotels Las Vegas because they have some uh, really cool features there that I want to see. Apparently not. I'm coming to Virgin Hotels because they've got a great pool. 
Apparently not. They don't have any pool. <laughs> you see the problem. Who's going to come there? Like, if they drive away the few people that want to come and they charge high prices, who's going to want to come there? This looks like a complete disaster and they don't understand why. I, I don't think they understand why. I really think there's, they're so wrapped up in this weird partnership and how neither side's going to get screwed by it. And they're, they're so worried that one side's going to make out better than the other that they're ignoring all the other facts that are working against them. And they're both going to sink. It would be like, uh, say you were tied to somebody and thrown into the water. Let's say your one arm is tied together for each of you. So you each have one arm and you have your legs free. Okay? And you say to this person, look, we've got to cooperate here. We're going to sink and we're both, both going to drown. But if we cooperate and we work together, then we can survive this and we can swim our way back uh, on land. Well, that could work if you both totally cooperate. If both of you worry about who's doing more of the work with the swimming or the floating uh, and one of you just gives up and, and, uh, and, and doesn't uh, do their part to get the... Uh, if you don't cooperate, if you don't always do what's good for both of you, not just what's good for you at the moment, then you're both going to sink and die. And I think that's going to happen here. When I heard about Virgin becoming the hard rock or the hard rock becoming virgin i did not picture this i thought that they were going to own the casino i have a feeling they let mohegan sun manage this because to them it made sense they have no experience running casinos and mohegan sun well they run a successful casino there in connecticut so okay how would you guys like to run our casino oh yeah we'd love to we'd love to get into the vegas market okay great you guys run the casino, and we'll run the hotel, and this will be splendid. No, not if you can't cooperate. So yeah, the guy's right. I don't see this thing surviving. And you know what? They don't deserve to survive. I have seen some businesses, large and small, which really sadden me when they fail because the ownership is nice and the management is nice and it's very customer friendly and they try very hard and just for whatever reason they don't succeed and it makes me sad to see these things flop because yeah maybe they made some strategic mistakes but at least uh at least they did the best they could and at least they appreciated the customers here they're not i mean to be honest here they're not this kind of reminds me of uh you go out with someone who you're not attracted to and really honestly isn't very conventionally attractive. It's not just not your type, really not anybody's type. But you say, I'm not going to be shallow. I'm going to date them anyway because I'm not going to be shallow because they might be a good person and, and I can be happy with them even if they're not beautiful. So you go on a date with them and they treat you terribly and they're nasty to you and they're acting entitled. And you're, you're going, what the hell? What what? What good is this person to me? <laughs> Everything with them is miserable. I'm afraid that's going to happen here. Remember when uh, Avis said, when you're number two, you try harder? Remember their we try harder slogan? That's what it became. It started off with, when you're number two, you try harder. And that was back in the 70s when Avis was the number two car rental company to Hertz. And their whole marketing pitch was, we're going to try harder than Hertz. We're not as big as Hertz. Hertz is doing better than we are. We're smaller, but we're the ones who are going to try harder because we're number two. When you're number one, you don't have to try because you're already there. When you're number two, you have to try harder. So we're going to do a better job for you because we're going to put out the effort. This is actually a good pitch. 
well, they're not trying harder at Virgin. Instead, they're telling you not to bring in your food and drink, or at least they were planning on doing that until they were shamed into reversing that, and, and they're reversing your comps. That's not trying harder. That's the reverse. That's the opposite. By the way, there's, in the chat, we have an old-time listener and forum poster who uh, made some comments, and he has some experience in the industry. This is an effing donkey who lived, and I don't know, maybe still lives in Oklahoma. I've met the guy before. He's a nice guy. And uh, this is what he wrote about the Indian stuff, the Indian casino stuff. Hmm, been a long time since I caught radio. Just happened to log in. This is in the chat room. I just spent eight years working for tribes in Indian casinos. This is spot on. I worked for a management company that took over when tribes couldn't figure out how to run their casinos themselves. We call it the two-year cycle. The tribes would run it into the ground for two years, then hire us to fix it for about two years. Then they would say they are paying the, why are they paying these white people so much money to run it to the ground for two years before they'd hire another company? <laughs> so so the, the two-year cycle he's referring to is that uh, the tribes don't know what they're doing and screw it all up and they're too cheap and save money in all the wrong places and go into a panic, hire a consultant company, uh, start doing better, and then real think, hey, why are we paying these consultants? And then they ruin it again. And then two years later, they hire another company. Totally believable. Totally believable. I've seen this with other businesses too. I see this with franchises. I, I, I've been to McDonald's before, which are franchised. You know, some McDonald's are corporate, some are franchised, and you can tell the difference because the good McDonald's are the corporate ones. But the franchise ones are sometimes so cheap you go in there and uh, you'll do a fairly big order. You'll say, okay, uh, can I have some ketchup? And they'll give you uh, two packets, which is barely anything. And you say, no, I, I need some more. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, we don't give you more than two packets. <laughs> you say, okay. What if I want more than two packets? Uh, that'll be 25 cents per packet. <laughs> okay. Fine, fine. I'll just stick with the two packets of ketchup. But uh, can I have some napkins? I see you gave me the one napkin here for this big order. Okay, here's two more napkins. Yeah, we're going to need more than three napkins for all this food. No, three napkins is our maximum. We don't give you any more. If you want more napkins, you'll have to pay for them. (laughs) I kid you not. This really happens at Franchise McDonald's. Why? Because franchised operations have uh, much lower operating margins, much lower profit because there's a lot of expenses they have that corporate locations don't because they basically have to pay uh, a lot to McDonald's in the first place to have the franchise where the corporation already has the brand so they don't have to worry about that. So, And also the the franchises, uh, all they care about is their own bottom line, not the brand's bottom line. So they, they don't care if you walk out thinking, wow, McDonald's sucks. They don't give me enough napkins or ketchup. I'll never go to another McDonald's again because all they care about is if you go to their McDonald's. They don't care if you go to the other McDonald's ever again, whereas the corporation cares about tre- tremendously because uh, to them, all the locations are the same. It's still their company. So those that have fast food franchises are often very, very uh, cheap with every little thing. And they shouldn't be because they don't realize that the person who you're restricting to two ketchups or three napkins is going to say, well, screw this. I'm never coming back here. And you're going to lose a lot of business from them going forward. And the cost of acquiring regular customers is much, much higher than whatever money you're losing by giving them a few extra ketchup packets and napkins. 
So that's uh, penny wise and pound foolish. But a lot of these franchise owners are like this, and so are these Indian casinos. So to have that in Vegas is a complete mess. It's one thing if there's an Indian casino that's located in the middle of nowhere, where that's basically your only option if you want to gamble. Or sometimes it's they're the only option or a few other Indian casinos are the option. So they're all fairly similar, so that works. But where it doesn't work is if you're in Vegas where the other properties don't behave this way. If other properties are not rescinding comps, if other properties are not taking out bloggers, if other properties are not restricting food and drink, then if you try it, you're going to be in big trouble. And they don't get that. So someone's screwing up big time. All right, moving on. Scientific gaming. Scientific gaming. What are they? They make shufflers. Automatic shufflers. Typically, you will see them at Blackjack. Now, not all blackjack games have automatic shufflers. Some have manual shuffling, where the dealer shuffles every time, so that doesn't involve this. But uh, just about every casino has at least some automatic or continuous shufflers. An automatic shuffler is a shuffler that uh, shuffles all the cards, and then the dealers take them out and deal them manually. The continuous shuffler is where it's, after every hand, it reshuffles it into the rotation of cards and it never runs out of cards because you keep putting back the cards that you use immediately when the hand's done card counters hate continuous shufflers because there's no way to count them because it's uh it's always it's always like starting a new deck every hand but that's not what the segment's about it's about the company that makes these shufflers or most of the shufflers called scientific gaming so apparently scientific gaming has a near monopoly on the casino automatic shuffler industry. And it has been alleged that the reason they have this near monopoly is because they are very litigious and that if anybody shows up with their own product that they claim that this these other companies are copying them and uh, they sue them for copyright infringement and they rack up such high legal expenses that these companies that try to compete with them just back down. So that's what's been alleged, that scientific gaming is doing this. And this has been alleged before. This is not just right now. There's, there's been other lawsuits about this in the past. This is now the second time, to my knowledge, that they are being hit with an antitrust lawsuit. The present antitrust lawsuit is actually being brought by two casinos. Not major casinos, but two different casinos are suing scientific gaming in an antitrust lawsuit, claiming that scientific gaming has a virtual monopoly on the shuffler products used in casinos, and that for that reason they can charge sky-high prices for their shufflers, which screws the casinos because they have such a tremendous expense to buy these shufflers far more than it would be if there was a real competitive market. So these casinos are claiming that they basically have no choice if they want to have good shufflers than to buy scientific games products at these super inflated prices, which were only made possible through uh, unfair business practices that gave them a monopoly. That's 
the allegation. So the uh, casinos that are claiming this here are uh, Casino Queen Marquette in Iowa and DraftKings at Casino Queen in East St. Louis, Illinois. That's different than St. Louis, Missouri, by the way. That's uh, East St. Louis, Illinois. So not exactly uh, titans in the casino industry, but nevertheless, these are two casinos. It looks like these are both associated with this uh, Casino Queen brand. I've never heard of it before, but uh, Casino Queen Marquette and Casino Queen in East St. Louis. So they are filing this, uh, they filed this antitrust lawsuit against Scientific Games and its subsidiaries, SHFL Entertainment and Bally Technologies. By the way, Bally Technologies is not the same thing as uh, Bally's Las Vegas or even uh, the company that bought um, Bally's. It's, it's, it's a different Bally. This is Bally Technologies. So they claim that Scientific Games have engaged in shenanigans in regard to their, their, pat, their patents over the years. They say these patents themselves are fraudulent and that Scientific Games sues competitors as soon as a new automatic shuffler that competes with their products comes to market. And the lawsuits uh, that Scientific Games file are so uh, expensive and difficult to uh, defend that the competitors either run out of money or just give up on a Shuffler product and decide to focus upon other things where they won't get sued. Also, it is claimed in this lawsuit that other companies are afraid to even develop an automatic Shuffler knowing that a massive lawsuit will be coming their way from scientific games. They don't even want the hassle. They claim in the lawsuit that scientific games has achieved a virtual monopoly and that there's a $100 million market for automatic shufflers and that they basically have all the business and that they shouldn't. The casinos claim that it costs them money because of the high prices that exist because there's really no competition. Now, in 2018, there were three companies that uh, sued Scientific Games. A jury awarded ShuffleTech Poydras, Turek Holdings, and Aces Up Gaming $105 million, and then that amount was tripled to $315 million, because that's the way it works in federal law, because it was an antitrust lawsuit, and that was awarded as a part of a lawsuit over a similar matter. What had happened to cause this whole thing was that uh, ShuffleTech, which was one of the uh, plaintiffs in this case, they made an automatic shuffler when previously that they had made shufflers for the home consumer market. So if you want to buy a shuffler for your uh, home game, that you could buy it from them, but that uh, the more complex casino shufflers, only scientific games were were selling them. And uh, this uh, shuffle tech decided to make their own shuffler and they called it... uh, DigiShuffle, and uh, then it was licensed to this uh, Poitras Tolerick Holdings and, and also worked with this Aces Up Gaming. So within two weeks of when DigiShuffle was introduced, uh, Shuffle Master was then sued for copyright infringement. What was interesting was that uh, Shuffle Master, 
had actually hidden some uh, artwork in their patent. Uh, and Shuffle Master, by the way, was the uh, th- that was part of Scientific Games. I'm not sure if I told you that, but uh, Shuffle Master had hidden some kind of artwork in their patent. And uh, whenever they saw this artwork, then they would go after competitors. Now, to me, that's pretty clever that there's some kind of like something that doesn't look like an artwork. I don't know if it's uh, something which uh, is so tiny that they wouldn't be able to see. I'm not sure exactly where this artwork was and where the details were. And I tried to Google it. I couldn't find it. But I would think this would be in uh, Shuffle Master slash Scientific Games favor if they had this artwork in their patent and then they saw this hidden artwork appeal uh, appear in other companies' products. I would think this would be like a smoking gun piece of proof. Uh, we actually did something, a very crude version of this on Neverwin Poker. We, we had this list that we made of the real names that were attached to PokerStars screen names. We just did this over time. We didn't have any inside access to this, but we just figured out who a lot of these people were and listed, you know, this name equals this real person. So this was a very popular list in the mid-2000s for people to distribute. So what we did was in order to at least give us some credit for putting out this list in the first place, in this long list of names, right in the middle, it says, list, list, stolen from, comma, or or equals neverwinpoker.com, or something like that. So uh, a lot of times... Other sites that would copy and paste this didn't see that in the middle, and someone reading down the list of names would see that and go, ah, oh, the list is stolen from neverwinpoker.com. Now, this wasn't hidden artwork, but it's the same concept, that you're hiding something in your work that if anyone copies, it's going to appear there. So I would think that would have it ruled in scientific games favor. Somehow this did not... I know that Shuffle Master had a history of uh, stifling competition through lawsuits and that was found in the in that uh, lawsuit against scientific games so anyway after years the jury ruled in favor of this uh, digit deals and the others shuffle tech etc and they ended up winning this uh, 315 million so that already happened three years ago but now we have this too which is kind of similar, but it's by casinos instead of other shuffler makers. Very interesting. The drama behind the casino shufflers, which you don't even think of. Like you may see one and say, oh, I don't like these or I don't trust these or I'm a card player. I don't want to continue a shuffler, but you probably don't spend very much time thinking about the shufflers themselves. But it's big money if you think about it. The casinos are not manufacturing these devices themselves, nor are they buying them at the store down the street. This is a very specialized market. On another show, another episode, not another show, but another episode, we had talked about these shufflers, and there was an allegation by a member of Vega Casino Talk, which is my other forum. There's an allegation by a member there that there is a feature on the shufflers that can actually arrange the deck in whatever way the casino wants. And that uh, there was some concern that this feature could be abused by casinos like Indian casinos that aren't really regulated and that they could be used to cheat people. 
Apparently, the feature was only to order the deck back into the standard order of Ace through King. To, just like a new deck, basically order the cards back as if it's a new deck. But in order to do that, then the machine has to have the capability to read all the cards while it's shuffling them and order them in whatever way uh, is in the programming. So it was alleged that some modified versions of these shufflers were being distributed that could actually go further and order the deck whatever way the casino wants, which, of course, could set up the deck perfectly to make people lose. And there's even a further allegation that they will sometimes set up the deck perfectly to make it look like the count is very high. So when card counters try to hit the game, they start slamming out high bets only to have all the cards favor the dealer after that and they just get slaughtered. Because the basic premise of card counting in blackjack is that when the low cards are mostly out of the deck, you start really raising your bets because it's in favor of the player. But if it's already been rigged, to land in favor of the casino, you're going to really lose a lot of money in what looks like a very positive expectation opportunity. So this has never been proven, but a member of my form alleged it. And I said, this is very interesting. I don't know if this is really happening or not. And uh, uh, this person claimed they had more proof, but they didn't want to say who they were. And they, they, they were trying to figure out a way to show me without having to give out their identity. And we, we never ended up getting that cleared up. And I never got to see proof. So maybe the guy's wrong. I did say that it's very interesting that it does have this feature where you can order the shuffler to make it put all the cards in new deck order. And if that can be modified, then yes, the casinos could definitely cheat, especially if modified versions of the product to be sold, they could do that, like under the table. I'm not even saying scientific gaming is doing it. I'm saying that if someone can figure out how to modify them without scientific gaming's permission then boy, some of these casinos can really screw people. That was a separate topic that came up on the show a while ago. Never got proof it was really happening, but that was an allegation. If that really were happening, that would be, I'd say, partially scientific gaming's fault because they they should make it to where the security is strong enough to where this could never happen. But at the same time, if someone very sophisticated finds a way to modify it to cheat, then it's really more on the person who modifies it rather than the original manufacturer of the product. That's just a side note. I know I think I may have been saying scientific gaming. It's actually scientific games. Just to be clear here. So we'll monitor this, see how that lawsuit ends up going. Alright, so we're gonna move on here. We're gonna tell the story of Tim Boyden and the bodybuilder YouTube channel that he was editor of, a popular channel, and how he recently got fired and sued over embezzlement allegations. This is a world I know little about. I'm not part of the bodybuilding world. I never have been part of the bodybuilding world. I don't know much about it. I don't watch bodybuilding YouTube videos. I don't really know about the stars of bodybuilding. I know that it exists. There was and still is a very popular uh, forum called the Bodybuilder Forums, but that's about it. But apparently there is a pretty popular YouTube channel called Juji Mufu, and it involves a bodybuilder who goes by uh, Juji, and he has 1.3 
million subscribers. They recently had a scandal, and it involves this editor, this Tom Boyden, and there's a lot of drama over it. So rather than explain this myself, uh, I'm going to explain, I'm going to let this other channel explain this to you. This is from a channel called Infinite Atensity. It has a poker connection, which is the reason we're covering it on this show. Juji Mufu's career started with a split, but it looks like Tom the Cameraman's career has ended with one. Juji recently sued him for taking over $100,000 from Grip Genie, a company in which Tom had a majority stake, and Juji and a manager named Aaron had minority stakes. What follows is a summary of Juji's complaint. It's up to you to decide whether you believe any of it. Tom used company funds for personal reasons and got large loans without the unanimous consent of the other members, as required in the operating agreement. He's worse at keeping his fingers off someone else's paper than the schmuck who scanned this document and left his thumb in the margin. Last April, Aaron noticed $30,000 missing from the company's account. Turns out that Tom took that money to cover his tax bill, and he still hasn't paid it back. Chris Jones got lucky when Vince G caused Physiques of Greatness to break up. All that awkward cameraman took was too many naps. In addition, he took about $120,000 from the business for his own use, and took out business loans for about $180,000, all without authorization. Instead of spending any of that money on therapy, the man-child bought, among other things, an $8,000 trampoline. Tom Boyden, you mean Tom Hanks from Big? Finally, he bet much of the company's funds in his poker matches and even staked his poker player friend. The majority owner of Grip Genie was like Aladdin, a thief with a monkey on his back. Juji also filed a restraining order against Tom, who's apparently prone to fits of rage. In addition to throwing tantrums when he's not in the spotlight, he got in a gym manager's face for calling him a cameraman, and yelled at someone because he stopped filming to give Juji a spot. This dude needs to bounce in a padded room, not on a trampoline. On March 19, Juji Mufu confirmed that he and Tom parted ways, and noted that he changed the channel name from Juji and Tom back to Juji Mufu. If you sign up for a behind-the-scenes job like editing or filming, then that's where you and your name belong. Gordon Ramsay doesn't post the names of the chefs who actually do the cooking at his restaurants, so why share the spotlight with the camera guy who's even easier to replace? On March 22, Tom released an apology video, which has since been taken down, along with all of his other videos. Notably, the guy who wanted more time in front of the camera couldn't remember his lines, and he read them from his phone because the king of YouTube fitness filmmaking didn't have a teleprompter. Okay, let me stop there. So, there's lots to unpack with this whole thing. So, apparently this uh, Juji and Tom channel, which is now called Juji Mufu, had, uh, it was really about Juji and his bodybuilding. I, I, don't, I don't know much about it, but you heard what Tom was alleged having done that he was, even though he's the majority owner of the company, that they had an operating agreement that all the company funds would be used for the company and couldn't just be taken out by the majority owner. But uh, apparently it's alleged that Tom did take out $180,000 and that some of this money was used for him to play poker and to stake his friends in poker. That wasn't where all the money went, but allegedly that's where some of the money went. What is for sure is that uh, Tom's own channel is down, that uh, Juji split from Tom and Tom has been fired, and that uh, Juji is now running his channel on his own. And there was this apology video. So I'm going to put out the... I'm going to let you listen to this video from Juji, which is 40 seconds, 
And then I'm going to play this now deleted, but still accessible elsewhere on YouTube, this uh, apology video from Tom, which indeed he was reading. And then I will tell you about the uh, poker angle to this whole thing. Hi, everybody. I'm aware there's some speculation and curiosity surrounding the lack of videos over the past months. That's Juju, by the way. It's with disappointment that I have decided to part ways with Tom. I have not come to this decision hastily or lightly. Continued collaboration with Tom is no longer possible. At this point, the best thing for this channel, for you and for me, is to focus on moving forward and the road ahead. I'm excited about the amazing content, new gym updates, and fun collabs that I'll be sharing with you soon. I deeply appreciate your support and the enthusiasm you guys have shown for new videos. Things will start back up again soon. Thank you. Okay, so that was Juji on March 19th, 2021. Here was the apology video, which I think followed shortly thereafter. By now, you've heard most of the rumors about the lawsuit and the split. In the original documents, which have been referenced in various comment sections on the internet, legal terminology was misused. This issue was a civil issue, and anything can be said when filing a lawsuit. The original court filing has been resolved out of court with no other pending issues remaining. As part of the resolution, I am voluntarily no longer a stakeholder in Grip Genie or the YouTube channel. While I did take money out of my own company, Grip Genie, of which I am the majority stakeholder, or was, some of the rumors and unfounded allegations are untrue. Okay, you can tell this guy's full of crap. <laughs> First of all, if you're the majority owner there, unless the agreement allows you to just take out money willy-nilly, then yes, you're you're still embezzling from the company if there's partners involved, uh, and you're not using that money for the company. If you're just taking it for yourself, then that's still embezzlement. Uh, and notice he keeps saying, well, some of this stuff is not true. Some of this is totally false. Well, okay, why don't you say what is true and what isn't true? This is true. This is not true. Just some is not true does not mean anything. That's you, he totally has the demeanor of a guilty man, and as was noted in this video I was playing that was explaining it, he does keep looking down at his phone where he has this written. So he did this pre-written apology video, but then he doesn't even remember it. He has to keep looking down at his phone to, to, to make sure he's saying the right thing, and then this sounds stupid anyway. Like If, if this is the best he can come up with, something he pre-wrote then I'd hate to see what he'd come up with spontaneously. I've openly shared my ups and downs during the last four years publicly via YouTube and in the spirit of maintaining that vulnerability, I admit that I could have done many things differently. The Juju and Tom YouTube channel no longer exists, in part because of mistakes I made. Those mistakes were never intended to be malicious malicious or intentional in nature. Yeah, basically what he's saying is he's... Uh, degenerate who saw that this was a source of money he could get in the immediate future and just kind of like felt like he can grab it and pay it back later and nobody will know. That's basically what I mean. He's not malicious like he's looking to scam anyone or looking to steal. He just, he just kind of took it because it was there. What does that remind us of? It reminds me of Full Tilt. That's what Full Tilt did. They they took our money on deposit because uh, 
they were having issues with their payment processor and, and also because they had a bunch of uh, distributions they wanted to buy out of the owners. And, you know, as long as they can keep paying out the cash outs, who cares if the money we deposit is not really there as long as we can't really see it or feel it. And, and they'll put it back one day. They're not trying to steal. They're just trying to borrow. They're just, they're just borrowing the player money on deposit for other purposes, which they'll put back at some point. That's, it, it, that's stealing. It doesn't matter if there's an intention to steal. If you take money that's not yours, that you should not be taking, it's stealing. Also, listen to his breathing. It sounds like he's almost about to cry. And then I, I made some mistakes. Like I, I guess it could be staged, but this kind of seems real. This kind of seems like it's something that he's realizing as he's saying it, that he had a good thing going and screwed it all up. And to me, it kind of looks like whatever agreement they came to out of court, that it kind of, to, to me, it looks like, and I don't know, but this is my guess, that it was determined that this Juji channel has some value and that since he was the majority owner, that one way to solve this is that they forgive what he took out and don't, are not going to make him pay it back, but he gives up his ownership in exchange because the, the percentage ownership he had, which was more than 50 obviously has some value in a, in a large channel. So maybe he agreed to give up that ownership to them in order to pay them back. The Juju Mufu channel will continue, and I wish him the best. Many of the events filed <clears throat> in the initial lawsuit lack context. I found myself in a high-pressure situation and admit that I said things out of anger and frustration. I, however, have never and would never threaten to harm anyone and would never cause bodily or emotional harm to anyone intentionally. Some of the rumors that are being circulated imply that the situation was more than it was. These difficult parts of my personal life are now public, and many parts of the stories are being twisted into some pretty crazy stories that stretch the truth or are outright untrue. Being judged openly in public is difficult, but I leave it up to you to determine for yourselves what you choose to believe. Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. This guy's coming off awful. The big problem here is that he's spending all the time talking about what he didn't do and how there's all kinds of things out there that are totally untrue and totally exaggerated and twisted without being specific at all and without admitting to what he did. The, the closest we've gotten to an admission of wrongdoing is, yeah, I made some mistakes. I did things I probably shouldn't have. Then, then no specifics there either. So if... The real situation is that he did some very wrong things, and then there were some exaggerations, both in the lawsuit and in the rumors about what happened here. There, there's, if you want to address these, you can come forward and say either you can come forward and just tell the whole truth, I did this and didn't do this, or I apologize, I made a lot of mistakes, I did a lot of things wrong. I just want to let you guys know I'm not the monster that's being portrayed there. There are some things that are being exaggerated, but I don't blame everybody for being angry. I don't blame them for being disappointed with me, and I screwed it up. Just, I just like you to know that not everything you're reading is true. Some of it's true. Some of it's half true. Some of it's not true at all. But here, we're just hearing him playing victim. So, so some things are being said, and they're, they're being twisted and exaggerated. <laughs> However, I would like to set a few things straight. I am not addicted to drugs or gambling, 
I have never come close to endangering anyone, nor have I threatened to do so. What? You're not addicted to gambling? I don't know about the drugs, but if you're taking money out of the company to play poker with and losing it, uh, it sounds like you're addicted to gambling. That's, I mean, it's, of course, subjective what addiction to gambling means, but to me, that sounds like addiction to gambling. So <laughs> you can say you're not a gambling addict, uh, addict, but if you're taking money out of the company to gamble with because you're broke, that would strongly imply a gambling addiction. But okay, you say what you want. It's your statement. To my knowledge, there has been zero police involvement in this matter. Frankly, I'm struggling with understanding the entirety of this situation and how things got to this point. All I can say is that I've done what I could to make amends and to correct any wrongs that I was responsible for. I apologize to those closest to me and my fans. Nothing I did came from a malicious or manipulative place. Thank you all. Thank you all who have been with me through this journey thus far. I'm going to be taking time off so I can focus on moving forward in a positive direction and uh, learning some lessons that I need to learn. Thanks for watching. (laughs) What a weird video. I'm going to be... Taking some time off to learn some lessons I, I, I need to learn. This is really a case where no video is better than a video, or maybe he should just post a statement, then it doesn't have that weird breathing. <laughs> it's just, this couldn't have come off much worse. What a horrible apology video. No wonder he took it down. It's kind of like, I screwed up, I'm guilty, I have to learn lessons, I need to take time off to learn those lessons. And also, you guys exaggerated everything and made false accusations against me. Like, what? Like, which one is it? Were you railroaded? Were you accused of things you didn't do? Is this unfair to you? Or did you really screw people over? And in fact, you should say you have a gambling addiction. That might get some sympathy for some people who may have been there themselves, that may have behaved irresponsibly when they were addicted to gambling. Uh, I, I, I don't have a drug addiction. I, I don't have a... Gambling addiction. I, I just, I, I just stole the money. I, I just, I, I, I just stole it because I like stealing. <laughs> what is he? What is he doing? That's the problem when you have partners, and you have a partner who's access to all the money. You have to really trust that partner. Otherwise, that money can disappear and disappear fast. And in fact, there should be a lot of checking on the accounts of the business to make sure that no one's taking money out of it without it being discovered. But yeah, having partners can be hard. I mean, I know that personally. Remember, I was a partner in the Donk Down business prior to Poker Fraud Alert being formed. Now, we didn't have any monetary issue, thankfully, but uh, we had some personality conflicts. And I was sorry that I got involved in a joint ownership sort of business like that. There was all kinds of drama and arguing, and it just wasn't a good situation. So when I was pretty much forced out of it in 2011... 
first of all, I took a break from forums, not, not to think about what I did wrong, <laughs> just because I was sick of all the drama. But I took a break and I said, you know, I'll take a break for like six months and then I'm going to reevaluate. And then at the end of the six months, I, I may start my own forum. I'll think about it. Maybe I'll just come back to other forums. Maybe I'll start my own. Whatever it is, though, if I do start one, it's going to be by myself. I'm not going to have any other owners. I'm not going to have any moderators. It's going to be everything controlled by me because I don't want partners in the mix when I don't need them. If you need a partner, like if you're broke and your partner's the one putting up the money, then you have to have a partner. Or if you need a partner because the business is going to be so expensive to run that you cannot afford to do it yourself. Or if you need a partner because you don't have the expertise to run everything and one of your partners does and uh, they're going to be helping you with the operations of it. There's a lot of reasons why a partner is very important to have and you can't do without one. But if you don't need a partner, you shouldn't have a partner. And it sounds to me like they didn't really need this Tom guy. It kind of sounds like they could have done just fine without him. I don't know the history of this channel. Maybe he was kind of the creative force behind the scenes. So maybe he had a big hand in making the thing successful. It's also possible that he was just there at the beginning and helping this Juji guy do the editing and the camera work, and Juji liked it and it was doing well, and he didn't want to change anything because it was going fine. But what a mess. Now, you may wonder about the poker portions of this, and I will tell you that part. And this is from Reddit, by the way. So everything I'm telling you here... These are allegations on Reddit, and I will tell you right away that who knows if Reddit is, you know, who knows if this person on Reddit is telling the truth. But I believe them from reading it. I have nothing, there's nothing there that jumps out at me as being false or looking false, but who knows? I don't have any information either way, but this is what's being said. It says, After seeing the info about the lawsuit and the documents, I decided to read them and summarize for you. Uh, According to the court documents, this is very bad. So this is for someone on Reddit who read the court documents. Remember, there was a lawsuit here that got uh, settled out of court. Tom siphoned over $100,000, at least in part, to feed his gambling addiction and stake other poker players. Tom was first caught taking $30,000 to cover his taxes in April of 2020. He denied any participation at first. Through internal investigation, it was confirmed that Tom did, in fact, withdraw the 30 k from their Wells Fargo account, specifically for tax purposes. Tom has still not paid it back. On January 14th and 18th, presumably 2021, Tom withdrew money to stake somebody named Sean Downey for a poker tournament directly from the Grip, the Grip Genie PayPal. That's the company that they had. The total summation Tom stole is 119459 The total broken down is... Four loans of twenty-seven thousand, fifty thousand, fifty-nine thousand, forty-three thousand. The forty-three thousand was taken out December seventh. Uh, That's more than one nineteen thousand. I'm kind of confused here. That's all there is with money, but there is supposedly more to deal with Thomas' personality and the way he carries himself. Quote: History of aggressive outbursts that sometimes verge on violence. Lack of regard for the safety and well-being of others, including. Uh, including Call in particular. Call, by the way, is uh, Juji. I guess Call is his real name. Uh, Tom was upset in 2017 that Juji and Sam moved into a new home and he wanted more attention. 
Tom, quote, stormed around their rental home, slamming doors and screaming at them. And he refused to leave until Sam said she would call the police. I guess Sam, I guess Sam was like Tom, uh, Judy's girlfriend. This guy sounds like a psycho. When Tom was once referred to as the cameraman while filming a video in a gym setting, Tom, quote, became angry and began yelling. Tom once got angry and in Judy's face when filming in 2018 and wanted to be on camera more instead of the other way around. Yeah, I from seeing this guy on camera here, I don't think so. Don't think that would have been a good idea. At the Arnold Schwarzenegger Sports Festival, I didn't know that existed, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Sports Festival, Juji and Tom had a booth. Online, people were talking about how they were excited to meet Juji. This enraged Tom, who went back and f- back to their hotel room and started screaming and punching things, including breaking a bed. Juji failed to re-rack a weight when filming with Alecron in t- 2020. Alecron immediately went to help Juji, meanwhile yelled at Alecron to keep filming. Or me- meanwhile, Tom yelled at Alecron to keep filming. Tom went to Erin's house after she denied the 43000 loan. He, he berated her and questioned her business acumen. When Tom realized he made an editing error in a video, he began punching the Grip Genie office door, broke a coat, wrap, broke a coat rack, and th- threw and kicked shit before leaving. It is claimed here that you can read the allegations in this uh, document if you click on... Uh, if you, if you go to ncbc.nccourts.org slash public, that is ncbc.nccourts slash public, then you can search Boyden, B-O-Y-D-E-N, which is Tom's last name, and it's the only case. If you go to dockets, then notice, notice of designation, and then there's a PDF called binder1.pdf with all the documents. So have fun doing that if you care about all this, but... Pretty interesting. I wonder who this Sean Downey is. Let's look him up. Sean Downey, according to the Hinden Mob, doesn't exactly have uh, tremendous results. In 2012, he won... He got 14th place, and he got uh, a whopping $678 at a deep stack event for $180 buy-in in Foxwoods. The rest of his caches were in Las Vegas from June to July 2019. These were at the uh, Deep Stack Poker Series Las Vegas, the Rio Daily Deep Stack. I guess there are three Rio Daily Deep Stacks. So I guess he was hanging around the World Series, this uh, Sean Downey, whoever he is. Because he was in uh, three of these Daily Deep Stacks in early July. And then the Deep Stack Championship Poker Series, wherever this was, there's probably somewhere else. That he also cashed. But none of these cashes were huge. Yeah, this was at the Venetian. This uh, deep stack uh, poker series. So I guess this guy likes deep stacks. Because all five of his caches, including that one in 2012, were deep stack events. And he cashed four times in June and July 2019 within like a week and a half period. That must have been when he was at the World Series. I don't even know where he lives. It said he lived in Connecticut, but I don't know if he currently lives there. But maybe he was out in the World Series for about a week and a half and played those deep stacks. His total live earnings are fifty-seven sixty-seven, So he's earned less than 6 k total in cashes. Though it does say that uh, 
he is a more prolific online player and claims that he has cashed in uh, 500, he cashed $542,863 online. Now, that doesn't mean he's made money. It just means that that's his total cashes. So I guess this guy is mainly an online player who occasionally plays live tournaments. And apparently he got staked by this Tom guy who must know him in some way. And apparently Tom played himself, too. <laughs> Let's see if Tom has any poker results. That, that I didn't look for. Okay, here we are. Thomas Boyden. He has 42K lifetime caches. That is 42K dollars, not, for, not 42,000 different caches. He cashed five times or four times at the online World Series in 2020 in Vegas. None of them were that big. The biggest one was uh, $1,456. He did have two five-figure scores. One was in uh, June 2016. He was third place at the win at the win Summer Classic for 25 k And then he got uh, 16 k for 17th place in the WSOP Circuit main event at Seminole Hard Rock Tampa. Now, keep in mind, that was... Looks like uh, it was before all this trouble happened, where he was uh, alleged to have embezzled from his company. So I'm wondering if he was inspired by that 17th place finish at the WSOP Circuit main event in Tampa, where he got uh, he entered for 1700 and cashed uh, 16k. So maybe he could kind of smell the big money there and then sunk a bunch of money into tournaments and lost his ass and then started embezzling. Maybe that's what happened. First place in that event was 291K. It was won by Isaac Kempton. I've never heard of before. But anyway, this Isaac Kempton won 291K, and even second place was uh, almost 180K, third place 135K. So... When you're something like 17th, you can just smell the big money, but you're not quite there. I mean, anyone who's played tournaments knows that. So maybe he was inspired that he was that close to hitting a six-figure score. And then he started playing a lot of other tournaments and bricking. As I said, he cashed four times at the WSOP in Vegas in the uh, the online World Series. But these were tepid caches where he entered for 600, 500, 500, and 500 and cashed for 1456, 1201, 836 and 776. So even these four events where he put in $2100 total to enter, it looks like he cashed a total of about 4 4k or so. So he kind of doubled his money on those to profit about 2k, but I have to imagine there were a lot of events he entered where he did not cash. So I have to imagine he was an overall loser in the 2020 online world series, unless he went uh, something like four for five, four for six or something in his, uh, in his attempts to play, which I, I doubt he did. So this to me looks like someone who thought he could be a winning tournament player and either through lack of skill or lack of bankroll, uh, wasn't able to, uh, achieve that. And then he started getting the money from elsewhere. And then, uh, for whatever reason, this Sean Downey was staked as well. Maybe Sean Downey, seemed like someone who was really good in his opinion and that Sean Downey could get him a bankroll to play with himself. 
maybe even Sean Downey won enough he could repay the money he took out of the company and uh, Juji would never be for the wiser. Of course, I'm guessing at all this. These are just this is just speculation, but it does look like something bad happened here, even from his own apology video. I don't know this Tom guy. I've never seen him. Uh, presumably, we have been at the World Series at the same time. He does not have any uh, WSOP caches that are at the regular World Series. He cashed in the online World Series. He cashed in a circuit event. But uh, he does not have any caches from the regular WSOP in Las Vegas that plays live. I don't know if he tried those events also. He couldn't have in 2020 because they weren't there. (coughs) But I wonder if he was playing much between 2016 and 2020, because he has zero caches in that time. So I have to imagine he didn't play much. But then again, who would get a third place for 25K at the win in 2016 and then just like stop playing? So to me, it seems like he kept playing and was bricking and then quit for a while. It's very rare that someone will cash something like that, by far their biggest cash of their life. And they just say, okay, I'm done. It's not like you win like $10 million. If if you're cashing like three figures as he was in his previous two caches, and then he hits that 25K score in June of 2016 at the win, you would think he'd say, okay, good. This shows I can do it. And now I have 25K. Okay, I'm going to start playing more tournaments now. He's not going to say, okay, well, 25K. Okay, I'm satisfied. Like, who's, who's going to be satisfied? They think they have real poker skill to win these things, to win the big money. Why would you ever quit at 25K? Like, seriously, who would quit at 25K there? So I have to imagine that he played, he didn't cash, and got frustrated, maybe ran out of money, was out of poker for a while, then somehow got hooked up with this uh, Juji guy. They got a successful channel going. He started making some money, maybe started playing some poker, hit that uh, 16K score in February 2020, got inspired, and uh, then everything shut down because of COVID, and who knows what happened from there. He played the online World Series, probably lost there. Whatever it is, it probably isn't a very uh, happy story. I, I really think that a lot of this was related to the poker losses. That's just my guess. But I think that's probably what started him on the spiral. If you add up the timing here, it looks right. So while he did spend it on other things like taxes and uh, uh, this trampoline, he probably didn't have the money for these things that he would have had otherwise. Because remember, he had more than a 50% ownership in this Juji channel, which is doing pretty well. So he had an income. It just looks like he needed more, probably because the poker losses mounted. Also, if he were a winning poker player, he would just say so. He would say, instead of, I don't have a gambling problem, he would say, actually, I've been winning in poker. I can prove it to you. Okay, so let's move on. We're going to talk about somebody else who is in some controversy because of a poker game who is not normally associated with poker, and that would be Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce is, of course, a famous former NBA player who played uh, many years on the Boston Celtics. And Pierce had a job as an analyst on ESPN. And Paul Pierce has been fired after a video surfaced of him having a crazy home poker game which was full of drugs and strippers. So people weren't 
they weren't really that outraged by this because you know, who really cares what Paul Pierce does in his spare time? He wasn't hurting anybody. It just was uh, engaging in uh, non-respectable behavior. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Pierce is out of a job nonetheless. You know, ESPN has a reputation to hold up. And uh, he did have a previous interest in poker. In fact, he played the main event in the past. He was one of these athletes who enjoyed poker. He retired in 2017. And uh, I know he played the 25K Poker Players Championship at the... Uh, for poker stars, they had they had one, and they also he also played the uh, uh, several World Series events. He is forty three years old, and uh, he actually posted videos to his own Instagram account that showed him uh, smoking marijuana, having a bunch of uh, trashy looking girls around him that were likely strippers, and there was a poker table in the background. And it looked like that this was a combination uh, poker game and party with strippers and marijuana and possibly other drugs. So this was <laughs> posted up to his Instagram. And uh, what disturbed ESPN about this was that it wasn't because somebody... Uh, leaked this. It wasn't that he was doing this because this isn't so terrible. You may say, well, what's the big scandal? Yeah, he's smoking pot, which is legal in a lot of places. I don't know where he was, if it was legal or not, where he did it, but it's legal in a lot of places. He was uh, playing po a home poker game, big deal, and he's hanging out with strippers. Okay, like whatever. Like it's, He's not a priest. You know, He's a, a former NBA player. Like, who cares? But uh, apparently what got ESPN angry was that he posted this himself. It wasn't from some snake at the game who wanted to create drama. He was so proud of this that he actually posted it himself on Instagram. With, and uh, one of these pictures has him taking a selfie with a girl bending over <laughs> with a thong on and with her ass sticking up. So it, it wasn't just strippers around here. It's like the, the girl's actually bending over and, and showing her ass in a thong while he's got a big smile on his face. And he, he's like, hey, look at these pictures. <laughs> so so uh, ESPN was pretty outraged that he was so proud of this to, to display this to the public, that this is something he wants seen as his public image. It's not just that he did it. It's that the, he has no problem with the world seeing it. And in fact, he's kind of bragging about it. So that's what bothered them so much. If it, it, it's believed that if this was just leaked by somebody else, they would have said, hey, watch watch who's taking video of you because if this happens again, we're going to let you go. But it's the fact that he posted it himself. He's posting this live. So these weren't just pictures. These were videos. And people are commenting as he's posting it. He's like, posting this live and people are commenting. So that's when he's like, oh, y'all hating. <laughs> I don't know what they were saying, but people took screenshots of this and it went, it got around the internet pretty quickly. So that was the end of him. He got fired after that. And uh, you won't be seeing Paul Pierce on ESPN anymore. He was one of the rotating hosts on ESPN's NBA Countdown and also on The Jump, another program. He was the 2008 NBA Finals MVP for the Celtics. 
And uh, the New York Post, as I said, they reported that ESPN was most upset with the fact that he posted the videos. Believe it or not, he does not have a tournament cash, at least at any kind of organized poker tournament, maybe at a home game or something, or the stripper game he's cashed. But uh, he has not cashed in an organized tournament, even though he has entered a number of them, and even though he had a huge stack in the 10K PLO tournament in 2013 at the World Series. But he did not make the money. And also at the main event, he was close to the bubble. So he survived all those days in the main event and failed to cash in 2014. He was also on Poker Go two years ago in uh, 2019, Poker After Dark. He is currently uh, a finalist for the NBA Hall of Fame. This probably won't affect it. As I said, this is not anything terrible. This is just something kind of embarrassing for ESPN, given that he posted it himself. But it is likely he is going to be elected to the Hall of Fame. His number, which is 34, was already retired by the Boston Celtics. So great NBA player and very instrumental to those successful Celtics teams of that time. But uh, he's not going to be an ESPN analyst, and hopefully he has uh, some of this money left that he made because uh, he's not going to get that sweet ESPN cash anymore. Some of these basketball players who blow all their money can continue to uh, have an income after the career's over, if they have a good enough personality to where they can appear on shows like these. The one who comes to mind the most, who really is bad with money, but constantly appears on ESPN and other places where he analyzes games and also appears in commercials, would be Charles Barkley. Barkley is a notorious problem gambler. He once owed 400k to the win, where they had to shame him with a full-page newspaper ad to pay up. So there's rumors that he's pretty much chunked off all his money gambling and irresponsibly spending, but that he keeps making a lot more to keep replenishing the bankroll through his television and commercial appearances. Fortunately for Charles Barkley, he has a unique personality, which, while kind of abrasive, uh, a lot of people like a lot of people like his outspokenness, and even during his career, that was the way he was uh, perceived. So a lot of people like seeing him on TV. They find him entertaining, and they like his personality. So he at least has that constant income stream. But some of these other players who are really good, uh, they just don't have much of a personality, and there's only so much that they can make. And if they're huge, if they're like Michael Jordan or something, of course, they have a huge endorsement potential for life. He also had a big gambling problem. But other players were not quite Jordan stature. If they don't have much of a personality, they're not going to have all that much of a post-NBA career in television. Another person, I'm not sure how much money he has or how much he blew, but Shaquille O'Neal, you see, he appears in a lot of things. He's in commercials. He is an analyst on a lot of these shows. And this is another person who not only was he a, a great player who has a lot of fame for that and just for his gigantic size, but uh, he also has a personality a lot of people like. It's kind of uh, fun and lighthearted, and uh, he 
kind of comes off as a a gentle giant and just kind of a humorous guy who doesn't take himself too seriously. And people have always liked Shaq's personality. Funny, back with uh, when he was with Kobe, Shaq was the likable one, and Kobe was seen by a lot of people as arrogant and difficult and kind of unlikable. But Kobe was the much harder worker. Kobe took the job like super seriously, and Shaq just liked to screw around and pretty much live on his big size. So that was part of the reason that they didn't get along very well was that Kobe was resentful about that, that he put in so much hard work and that Shaq really didn't it just coasted on his size. At the end of their at the end of Kobe's life, they in the few years prior to that, they actually made up and were getting along again. They weren't best friends, but they were getting along again. Then Kobe had his uh fatal helicopter crash, which uh Strangely enough, Kobe Bryant likely never knew about COVID. It was just starting to be reported in the news, but it wasn't all that noteworthy yet because there was not a single verified U.S. case yet. And there was no shutdowns or anything like that. So it's possible he may have heard of it in passing about some virus in China, but he probably didn't think much about it. And he never got to see what it turned into because he died on January 26th. I don't think this is going to be terrible for Paul Pierce, but it's definitely an opportunity that's been blown. And I wonder if any other job like this is going to open for him, like with TNT or something like that, because they may worry the same thing's going to happen. Now, maybe if he talks with them and says, okay, I screwed up, I should not have posted that, so I'll guarantee I'm not going to post any videos to Instagram in the future unless they're very harmless. Maybe one of these networks will take him at his word if he says that, because it's not that horrible. It's not like he's promising I'm not going to do such and such super awful thing again. It's like I'm not going to use this bad judgment and post videos that could embarrass the network. So I could see them trusting he's not going to do that again. But we'll see. One of these things that had kind of a minor poker connection to it, because it was actually a home poker game that also included uh, strippers and marijuana and who knows what else. The win in Las Vegas is going to be requiring COVID vaccinations for all employees and those that refuse the vaccinations will be fired. Win Resorts is going to require the employees at uh, the Win and Encore to get vaccinated and to also submit to a uh, weekly COVID test, or one of the two. So they they either have to get the vaccine or get a COVID test. So it's not you're not going to be forced to be vaccinated, but otherwise you have to take a COVID test every week. They announced this mandate last week and said that uh, 60% of their employees have already been vaccinated. So for them, it's moot. This was a few days after the Nevada Gaming Control Board released a memo that said that they would only allow casinos to expand capacity, which is currently at 50%, 
if they were making, quote, measurable and material steps to get their employees vaccinated. Now, it did not dictate in this memo that they have to do it this way. But gaming just said, you have to show us you're really trying hard to get your employees to vaccinate. It's up to you what you want to do. But if we're not convinced that you are not getting your employees to vaccinate, then we are going to not allow you to have more than 50% capacity. So Wynn said, okay, we'll just make everybody either get vaccinated or submit to a weekly negative COVID test to remain employed. Governor Steve Sisolak Uh, allowed casinos to operate at 35% in February of uh, 2021 and 50% in March. But uh, in May, it is believed, though it's not certain, that local governments, meaning like Clark County, will be able to determine their own guidelines of who can reopen at what capacity. But again, gaming will not allow casino floors to be more than 50% capacity unless these properties show that they're doing something to get people vaccinated and not just gently suggesting it. When CEO Matt Maddox said, our primary goal is to create the safest possible environment at the win for both both employees and guests. Vaccination rates are increasing throughout the country and requiring our employees to either be vaccinated or tested on a weekly basis will make win one of the safest vacation destinations in the U.S. I I don't know if other properties are going to follow this lead or if they'll do it differently. It is possible that companies can simply provide incentives for those who vaccinate. They could give them uh, a bonus. They could give them priority to get better hours. There's all kinds of things they can do. They could even make employees... uh, lesser priority or not lesser but higher priority of keeping their job in the case layoffs have to happen if they're vaccinated there's there's various ways to do it without requiring either a vaccination or weekly negative test but that's what win is choosing to do the goal the ultimate goal here is to bring conventions back brandon mentioned last week on the show and he was correct that the lack of conventions in Vegas is killing Vegas. That's where the big money was coming from. Vegas transitioned from a gambling town to a convention town. Now, it's true that the conventions feed the gambling, but the conventions were really what they were counting on. The conventions make a lot of money themselves, and they also... They also bring traffic to existing other parts of the business, to the restaurants, to the hotel rooms, to the casino, etc. So they bring a lot of people into town. These people spend money. The conventions themselves spend money. And it's been growing, growing, growing. And so Las Vegas has been trying to attract more and more conventions and letting the gambling just kind of take care of itself. Just assuming we get the people here, they're going to gamble. But instead of focusing on how do we get people down here to gamble, it's how do we get people to travel to Vegas for conventions? And then while they're here, they'll probably gamble and do other things that we can make money from. Shows, restaurants, hotel rooms, etc. Conventions are the main key. And they don't have them yet. Conventions haven't come back yet. 
So Vegas really wants to see the conventions return, and by demonstrating to gaming that they are getting employees vaccinated at a high rate, gaming would be more likely to allow that sort of thing to go on, to allow full capacity in casinos, to allow the return of conventions, to allow full capacity in restaurants. That's their focus. They're not caring so much how the employees feel about this. They are allowing an out here at the win. If you don't want the vaccine, you can just get tested. They're hoping that by making people do this pain in the ass test every week, if they're not vaccinated, that it'll spur people to say, ah, fine, fine, fine. I'll get the vaccine. I'm tired of this test. Now, I don't know which test they have to take. I don't know if it's that awful one way up your nose, which kind of hurts, or if it's that easier one where you would do it yourself or they only put it a little bit up your nose, but not to where it hurts. I don't know which test you have to do. I'm guessing it's probably the tough one, but they're hoping that is going to push people to get the vaccine beyond the 60% of their employees who already have. I think the toughest sell of the vaccine will be to the younger employees. The older someone is, the more likely they are to want the vaccine simply because the older people are more in danger. Now, the very, very old people are likely not even working there because they would be retired, but even people who are over 60, over 50, are there's a good chance they're going to want the vaccine. As you might have heard many times in this show, I want the vaccine and I'm close to 50. I want it a lot more than I would if I were 25. But Wynn does have some younger employees, and I think it may be a challenge to get a lot of them to agree to get vaccinated. But... Uh, Wynn is less concerned with who actually gets vaccinated and more concerned with how it looks. If it appears to gaming that they're really making an effort to get people vaccinated, which it kind of does, then that will really look good for them as far as being able to open more than 50%. That's what all this is about. That's not that they care. It's not that they want to stay safe. It's not that they don't want people getting COVID. I mean, they don't want people getting COVID, but the, the main goal here is how it appears. They want it to look good to gaming. Let's move on to the next topic. A Caesar Seven Stars member claims that he was denied the ability to take his Seven Stars retreat to the place he wanted to take it or to the hotel he wanted to take it. He was allowed to go to the place, but not the hotel he wanted. Before we get into the story, I want to explain Seven Stars to you. And I'll explain this retreat. I haven't been a member of the Caesar Seven Stars program since the very beginning of 2019. So it's been two years now because it, it expires on January 31st of the following calendar year. So I was last a Seven Stars in 2018 and then it expired on January 31st, 2019. Since then, I have been a Diamond. In 2019, I was a Diamond through a status match. In 2020, I became a Diamond through actual play, which actually earned me two years of Diamond, but I've not used it because uh, I haven't been back to any casino since then. So that wasn't a very uh, good usage of my uh, losses earning Diamond, but whatever. Seven Stars is 10 times as hard to earn as Diamond. You literally have to earn 10 times as many tier credits if you do it through play. There are some ways to match yourself to become Diamond, but those, those have decreased in the last year or so. But if you earn it, as I said, it's 10 times harder to become seven stars. You also can't ever be matched to seven stars. This is something you have to earn. Now, seven stars was the only premier 
program at major casinos that both had good benefits and uh, didn't have much of an internal review process for a while, but that has been changing. So what you had was what I called seven stars grinders, people who would play the absolute minimum to earn seven stars because you know how much it takes to get there due to uh, they give you the tier credit requirement. So you earn tier credits through your play and uh, people would earn it through the least amount of play possible. And once they would get approved, then they just would shut down and not play until the seven stars would expire, which could be as much as two years later. Seven stars was desirable to have in part because it had some guaranteed benefits. The best benefit that existed, which is no longer there, was the free room benefit. With the seven stars free room benefit, you would get five nights, later it became four nights, but it was uh, five nights originally, uh, at any Caesars property with relatively little notice and as far as using it for another five nights when your first five nights are up, as long as you let two days pass in between, you can do another five nights. So as a Caesar seven stars, no matter how much or how little you play, once you've earned seven stars and are currently a seven stars in good standing, you actually could stay five nights for free at any Caesar's property of your choice, then go somewhere else for two nights, then stay another five nights, then another two nights off. And you could do that the whole year if you wanted. I did that at the World Series. Sometimes I would leave the property for two days. That's why I would leave because uh, I would need to uh, book somewhere else in between. And then I would. I'd either, either use a comp that I had from somewhere else or I'd pay for a room somewhere else or someone else would give me their comp, whatever it was. Uh, sometimes I'd be there for five nights and leave and come back and then do another five nights. So it was very useful to have. The difference between Seven Stars and other major casino top-tier cards is that Seven Stars had a lot of guaranteed benefits. Not just the room, but you also got what was called the Seven Stars Retreat, which is what we're going to talk about here. The Seven Stars Retreat, and this isn't the only other guaranteed benefit you get, but that's the one we're going to talk about. There was the Seven Stars Retreat, there was the free room, and there was a bunch of other stuff, but... We're going to talk about the retreat in a second. I'm just kind of setting this all up here. The retreat would be where you could pick any Caesars property in the U.S. or their one property in Canada in Windsor. And they would pay for your flight there. Actually, your flight and a partner you want to take with you, your girlfriend, your wife, your boyfriend, whatever. And they would pay for your airfare up to a certain amount, round trip. And you would get a $500 folio credit when you were there, usually to use on food and beverage. You would also get free nights there, but you would get that anyway as a seven stars. That part didn't really matter. Well, I use that every year, and I use that really as a springboard for road trips. It was pretty cool, you know, because they'd pay for my flight. They'd pay for my girlfriend's flight. Then I'd pay for Benjamin myself. Then... I'd stay at whatever property I'm going to in some other part of the country. I'd eat the $500 worth of food. And then uh, we'd see things around there that are interesting to see. Then we would bounce. And then I would uh, do like a one-way road trip. I would rent a car and drive in whatever direction seemed interesting. And I will I would book hotels 
elsewhere for the remainder of the trip that, of course, I'd be paying for myself. And then we'd end up in some other airport, of course, not where we landed because it's a one-way drive. I returned the rental car and then we'd fly back on Caesar's dime because Caesar's didn't care where you flew back from. The only requirement for the flight, it was a round-trip flight, and the only requirement was you had to land somewhat near the property you were going to. But as far as where you go back from, they don't care. They don't care if you drive 2,000 miles and fly back 2,000 miles away. All they cared about is that you flew to there and then you could fly back from anywhere else. So it was very nice to have for what I called uh, one-way road trips. And I did a lot of these and it was fun. And it was also fun eating the $500 worth of free food at these uh, Caesars properties. And uh, in fact, in one case, when I got kind of irritated with the property about something because they stiffed me on the room they promised me. Uh, I just ate the $500 worth of food and then once the $500 ran out, I bounced early. (laughs) I didn't even stay the four nights. I just said, you know what? I don't have free food anymore, so I'm gone. Which you can do, by the way. There's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, some people found a trick. I never used this trick. But some people found a trick that way you could do if you didn't really want to take this retreat, if you just didn't feel like it, that you you could book your trip to Harris New Orleans. And Harris New Orleans, instead of giving you a folio credit, just gave you $500 worth of rewards credits. So what people found is you could book your seven stars trip to Harris New Orleans. They dropped the $500 worth of RCs in your account, and then you could just cancel the whole thing. Like you would hit on that day and you would just cancel the whole thing. And uh, you could get the 500 worth of RCs without ever having gone anywhere. Now, I didn't do this because I had no point to do it because I actually like taking these trips. And once I was no longer seven stars, then it was moot for me anyway because I no longer got that trip. So I kind of forgot about it because it didn't really affect me anymore. Now, booking the trip was kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, you may wonder, how do you get them to pay for the flight? Well, I don't know how you do it now, but uh, back then it was such a pain in the ass because they had this travel agency they worked with called Passport Travel, and you had to do it through Passport. And Passport didn't want to put a lot of work into getting you a good flight. So if you just left it to them, you'd get some terrible flight with a lot of stops, and you'd get put at the back of the plane. And if you wanted a good seat, and if you wanted a good itinerary, and you, you didn't want to leave at 6 in the morning... Uh, you had to do it yourself. So you, it, it was suggested by those in the know, such as myself, that uh, to get the most out of the trip, that you should look up the flight yourself that will fit within the, requ- the money requirement of the maximum that uh, you can spend, or you can pay the difference if it runs over. You could spend up to $1,200 on the flight total. And other than that, you can pay the, the overage. But the you'd have to get uh you'd have to send it to passport they'd have to approve it then they had to send it to your host who'd have to approve the expenditure because they're not allowed to book it without your host's uh, permission but then there's this lag in between where the airfares may go up and uh, maybe the flight is a terrible deal now and you don't want your credit card charged so you're always like stressing for those days between when uh they receive the itinerary from you and when they contact with the host and the host contacts them back like days can pass there and you, you know how airfare air is it can jump all over the place so then i'd like be on passports asked to, to book this quickly and they got annoyed with me but you know i it was stupid i just wanted to be able to do the thing myself now i heard in later years after i was no longer seven stars uh, that i heard like in the last few years they started allowing people to just book their own travel 
and then would just reimburse them, which would be great. That should have been the way they did it the whole way. I, I don't know if they just if they did this for all properties or some properties. It doesn't matter. That's not important to this story. Anyway, a guy signed up to my other forum, VegasCasinoTalk.com, and made a new account he called Jackpot. And Jackpot had a question and wanted the opinions of people on the Vegas Casino Talk forum. And I jumped into it because I had some suggestions for him. So he wrote on April 5th, is the seven-star retreat based on any past play? I was denied booking it at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, and I found that odd. They are saying I don't have the play in the Las Vegas market, but isn't that irrelevant for this trip? So that was weird because I'd never seen that before. I've never seen it where they evaluate your play at that market, the market meeting in Las Vegas, and and seeing if they really want you there, seeing if they uh, want to give you your seven stars trip there. Now, it's true that the market isn't very happy if they see that uh, when you've been there in the past, you've barely played or haven't played at all. And now here you are coming back using up their resources and not playing. But guess what? That's part of the cost of them being part of the Total Rewards program and the Seven Stars program. So some people are going to come into town and blow a ton of money at the casino, which is the whole purpose of this trip. This is the main reason they give you this trip as the benefit. But then some people will just come in and use it as a free trip and and not uh, play at all. So this guy clarified <clears throat> what the situation was. He said what happened was that uh, in 2019, he had to work out in Vegas. Now, this is not an advantage player. This is not uh, even a professional poker player. This is a recreational player that lives in New Jersey who mainly goes to Atlantic City, and that's where he earned his seven stars. To show you this guy is not an advantage player, at least I assume he's not, is he is a slot player, and he earned his seven stars through slot play. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. I thought advantage play is done on slot machines pretty often. Well, yes, but advantage play on slot machines doesn't involve that much playing. Advantage play on slot machines involves relatively little play where you're waiting for a perfect opportunity to play for a short time on the machine when it's positive expectation. And there's a lot of work in determining when that is and and seeking out these machines and, and standing around waiting for this to happen. So it, it's kind of a tedious thing. But one thing you're not doing as a slot advantage player in most cases is put it running through a lot of credits. It's just uh, that doesn't tend to happen, and, and it takes a while to earn seven stars. So I have to imagine that this guy, Jackpot, who had never even registered on Vegas Casino Talk before. I don't even know where he found it, probably on Google. Uh, I have to imagine this is just a recreational player. He mentioned he had to go work in Vegas in 2019, so this must be a guy with a regular job who just likes playing slot machines and plays them enough to where he earned seven star. So he said that in 2019, he uh, was in Vegas in June and September and that he was able to get most of his room comped uh, at during the weekdays at Caesars Properties based upon his previous play in Atlantic City. And while he was there in June... He lost uh, 7K playing slots. He doesn't say how much he played, but it sounds like he played a decent amount. Not like tremendously a lot, but that he played some and lost 7K. Then in September, he barely played while he was there a second time for business. 
he said he was punishing them because his reservation was poorly handled. So he decided he wasn't going to reward them with play. Okay. You know, I'm not, I, I've stayed there and not played too, so I'm not going to judge him. And yeah, he can do what he wants. You know, it's his decision what he wants to do with his comps. Of course, when you do that, then you're risking they're not going to want to give you comps in the future. But I'm sure he knew that. I mean, he sounds like a guy who knows the system. So he said that he, towards the end of the year in Atlantic City, he earned seven stars for 2019, which means that uh, his seven stars is good through uh, January 31st, 2021, based upon his 2019 play. So then 2020, of course, coronavirus came and he did not go to any brick and mortar casinos. However, he was playing online slots on the regulated and legalized New Jersey online slots that were associated with Caesars properties. So he was using his uh, total rewards card while he played the online slots machines at the legalized uh, Caesar sites in New Jersey. Nevada doesn't have this. It's not legal in Nevada, but in New Jersey it is. He said he put $1.2 million coin in through the the slots online in 2020. Coin in means a total number of credits bet. That doesn't mean he was risking $1.2 million. It just means we just keep cycling through money that he cycled $1.2 million. Anyway, that was enough at slots to re-earn seven stars. So that re-earned his seven stars at a minimum through uh, January 31st, uh, 2022. So the fact that we're past January 31st, 2021 doesn't matter because he is presently a seven stars in uh, 2021, okay? Also, his 1.2 million in slots that he ran in coin in, if you did this on a land-based casino, if you did this just like any of the Atlantic City casinos or Las Vegas casinos, he would have gotten 240,000 tier credits, then he would have gotten comp nudes, comp rooms were in it whenever he wanted them. He would have gotten uh, a lot of free play. He would have gotten a lot of food comps. Like this, if you run 1.2 million in slots, that's going to get you a lot. So he said that what was sad was that running this online, this exact same slot play, that he only got 75,000 tier credits. And uh, that he also really got very little else as far as uh, benefits. So he was already disappointed that playing online got him so much less, that they really reward you much more, both tier credit-wise and also uh, comp-wise and benefit-wise online versus brick-and-mortar. But that's the way it is. That's just something that was disappointing to him. That's not what he's complaining about here. He's just noting that that was he put in a ton of play online, which was the only place he could do it, and that he put in basically would have been would have been judged as very good play had he done it live. So here we are today in April of 2021. And he tried to book his seven stars retreat. And he said he wants to go to Las Vegas. Remember, he's in Atlantic City or near Atlantic City. So he wants to fly to Vegas and stay at Caesars Palace, which is the best of the Caesars properties. So apparently, he did get this booked to stay at Caesars, only to find out that someone higher up didn't like his play from when he stayed there in 2019 and reversed his reservation. So they actually took away 
his retreat to Vegas. And it was supposedly someone higher up who saw it, looked at his Vegas play, and said, nah, we don't want this guy, and kicked it back after he was already told he had it. So he then spoke to his host, and here's the first problem, or I guess maybe the second problem. His host, who is supposedly an Atlantic City host, is actually located in the city of Las Vegas. That's weird. Now, this isn't good because you want a host who is working in the interests of your home market, unless you don't play in your home market. But if if you do most of your play in your home market, as this guy does, as most people do, then you want a host that is going to go to bat for you because they don't want to lose you as a customer. But here he has a host that technically gets uh, works with people from Atlantic City and acts as their host and is a, quote, Atlantic City host, but is actually in Vegas and is probably much more loyal to the Vegas market. So this host didn't really want to help him. This, uh, this host uh, is more sympathetic to them denying him because as far as she sees, yeah, he's going to play in Atlantic City and not in Vegas. However, his host did... She said, okay, we'll book it in Vegas, but um, we can't give you anything better than the Flamingo. (laughs) Now, let me stop right there. The Seven Stars Retreat will often even give you a suite, even if your play doesn't normally qualify for a suite. Now, I know this because my play didn't qualify for a suite, but I often got suites, not every single time, But the general policy with Seven Stars Retreats is that if a suite is available, they will give it to you even if your play doesn't justify it. And even if a suite is not open for you, you are entitled to the very best non-suite room. So they won't even say to you, okay, you're going to have the bottom tier room in the worst tower we have, and that's what we're going to give you here. No, they will actually give you. you're, You're basically supposed to be guaranteed the best uh, non-suite room they have, which means you'll get a room with a better view or in the better tower or the newer tower, whatever it is. So for example, at Caesars, this would describe a room that's either in the Augustus Tower or the Octavius Tower. So not only did they refuse him the best non-suite room at Caesars, they said you can't have Caesars and apparently you can't even have anything else above the Flamingo. They wouldn't give him Paris. They wouldn't give him... uh, Planet Hollywood, they, they give a flamingo, not even Bally's. When he asked why, this host, this AC host that is based in Vegas, says, well, 2019, you know, you came, you didn't play in September, your play in June was mediocre, you stayed here all these nights for free, so nah, flamingo's the best we're going to do. So he continued arguing about this, which he should have. I mean, he's getting screwed here. They market seven stars as having this retreat as as a big benefit, especially because in 2019, they did away with the uh, free room benefit. Actually, 2018, they did away with it, the, the free room benefit, where you now had to earn this based upon your play, and it no longer had anything to do with being a seven stars. And now for my final year of being a seven stars, that was the way it was. So... That the best benefit at this point of having seven stars is that retreat. And here they are telling him, despite his very uh, good play online, 
on their site and the fact that he earned seven stars at brick and mortar Atlantic City casinos in 2019 and not through any shenanigans and as a slot player of all things and I'm sure he lost plenty of money that they're not even going to let him have Caesars they're not going to let him have any room in Caesars they didn't even say okay you can stay in one of our older towers they just said nope no Caesars and he was told that the director of casino marketing was blocking and canceling any of his reservations that the director of casino marketing is who made this decision and that uh, he was never going to get a reservation through where he stays at caesar's on this retreat that the director of casino marketing said absolutely not you are not getting this this is it's just not gonna he never said it directly to him he said this to his underlings he was basically the boss there this is for all Caesars properties, not just uh, Caesars. But the director of, of casino marketing, uh, actually, I'm not sure. It could be the director of casino marketing at Caesars or for all Caesars properties. I'm not sure which one. Either all Vegas properties or just Caesars, but it doesn't really matter. This uh, director of casino marketing just absolutely said that he cannot have Caesars. He tried to leave a message for this director of casino marketing and, of course, didn't get a call back. So the guy asked, what should I do? He says, I'm afraid if I go through another host to book this, and they do, that this guy's going to catch it and reverse it, which is a valid concern. So what can he do about this, was his question. And it's a tough question. If you've got someone fairly high up, like this director of casino marketing, who is really putting an effort to keep you away from Caesars free retreat, then... How are you going to get around that, especially if this guy doing it doesn't want to talk to you? Well, you have to look at what you have going for you and how you can leverage this. Some facts in this guy's favor are, number one, he is not a seven stars grinder or a bonus whore. This is just a recreational slot player who seems to have pretty good play year after year. And... Yeah, sure. In September 2019, he stayed in the Vegas market and didn't play very much. But overall, with all Caesars properties, he did have good play. And also, even though it's technically within the rules, I looked it up, it's technically within the rules to where they can do this. I looked up the terms and conditions. It said, some restrictions may apply for transportation and hotel accommodations, Please reach out to your casino executive for details, and also blackout dates may apply and vary by property. So technically, they can say, "Yeah, we're blacking out Caesars for these dates, or we're, uh, or we're just restricting you from coming to Caesars, but you can stay in uh, one of the other properties in our market, like Flamingo." They can technically do it, but it's super non-standard. It really hasn't been happening. So, what can he do? Well, what he has in his corner is that he's a slot player. He's not an advantage player. He is someone who puts in a good deal of action at negative expectation games. A look at his profile would reveal a recreational gambler that you'd probably like to have visiting your casino if you were an owner of a casino. So given that being the case, he just needs someone to see this and go to bat for him. Now, who go to bat for him? That host in Vegas? Obviously not. The host in Vegas just looks at what he did when he was there in 2019 and that he stayed a ton of nights and didn't play that much and they're like, screw this, Uh, we don't want him here. By the way, the reason they don't want him there is because I believe that whoever 
ends up uh, being selected for the retreat has to foot the bill for it. It's kind of like a an agreement they all have with each other. So if he goes to Vegas for the retreat, then they have to cover the $500 or at least the expense of giving him $500 uh, food at their own property. And they have to give him the hotel rooms they could have sold to somebody else. So they're basically taking on the brunt of the expense in Vegas and knowing he's just doing all his play in AC, they don't want to do it. That That's the motivation here of why they're blocking him. That's why they're making such a big deal of this. But they shouldn't. That's part of being the Seven Stars program. This director of marketing just has a bug up his ass about this whole thing, apparently. So I told him that he does have people who might go to bat for him. And that would be Atlantic City. I said, you need to speak to people actually in Atlantic City. Not a host that says they're working for Atlantic City, but is located in Vegas, but a host who is physically in Atlantic City and represents the Atlantic City market. Because this person will have some power. And if they don't have power, they probably have a boss who has some power. And while you cannot tell the director of casino marketing to stop doing this crap, they can. So if you get someone who's high enough in AC who calls up uh, the director of casino marketing in Vegas and says, hey, cut this out. This guy's a good player. He's a slot player. He chunks off a lot of money here. Uh, stop driving him away. Stop being a jerk. Let him stay there. You know, he he didn't play because uh, he was busy with work, whatever. It doesn't matter. We don't want to drive this guy away. He's good for the company. He may not be good for your market in the company, but overall he's good for the company. Let him come. It's even possible that they could make some kind of deal where the his Atlantic City home property uh, foots all or some of the bill for this when they normally don't. Who knows? But they're, definitely someone who's higher up at AC could help him out and make this happen. Because he's not asking for the world. He's not asking to show up there and get uh, a $50,000 uh, free play. He, he's asking, let me do something everybody else does, and that is use my retreat to go to Caesars. Like that's all he's asking for. It's a standard benefit. He's saying just please don't take this away from me. So I said you got to get to someone in AC. Get an AC based host or someone higher up than an AC based host like a, a, the director of all the hosts or someone even above that and just explain to them. Explain everything you, you've told us here on the forum. Tell the people in AC about your slot play, about your online slot play, why you played online so much in 2020. Pretty obvious, but they can look at that up and see it. Apparently, they told him in Vegas that they can't see his online slot play, so there's no way to verify it's really happening. That's a dumb answer. I mean, they can't see their own system. They can't make a phone call to Atlantic City and say, hey, can you take a look for us? I mean, obviously, there's some access to it. It's not a black hole where you can't see into it. So that's a dumb answer. Well, we can't see your play <laughs> online, so we have to assume it doesn't exist. So this is where Atlantic City can help. And once they verify he's telling the truth, then they're going to say, this guy's a good customer. We don't want to lose him. I said, this is what you need to do. And you need to be polite about it. You can't approach the people like a jerk, which which he wasn't. I'm just, I was just making sure he understood that don't call up someone in Atlantic City and start yelling and be all angry and say, what are you doing to me? I give you so much business. Ah! You just... Call up and say, hey, I'm having a problem booking my retreat to Caesars, which is really where I want to go in Vegas. And apparently the director of marketing is just reversing every reservation I make because they don't like my play there. But I play a ton here. Can you help me out here? 
And apparently they're claiming that my online play, they can't even verify, so they're assuming it doesn't exist. Uh, what do I have to do to prove it to you? Um, you know, Can you please take a close look at my account? You'll see I'm right. So on April 9th, which is now, uh, this is during the afternoon, so it's about a day and a half ago, he wrote, I spoke with a host from Atlantic City today. He seemed very understanding. Told me to shoot him an email and he would forward it to his supervisor, so we shall see. And... Uh, we will see now if this guy will get any satisfaction. He said that uh, he's been a longtime high diamond player, which means he's probably earning like 80,000 tiers, which is about halfway to seven star. You get these extra benefits as diamond. And he said uh, each year Caesars gets worse and worse, which I agree. He says it's definitely not worth the headache and hassle jumping through hoops to get the benefits you earned. And that's the whole point here. He's totally right. Seven stars isn't that wonderful anymore. Since they got rid of the guaranteed room benefit, there's not that many differences between seven stars and diamond. So if you're going to go the extra mile to earn seven stars, at least get the damn benefits you earned, which aren't even worth all that much. But here, the best benefit they have, they're being difficult and giving him an inferior version, which I find very obnoxious. Someone on the forum who goes by Andrew G, who, by the way, is, uh, in my opinion, many others' opinions, uh, a duplicate account of a much better-known user, but we won't get into that. Andrew G. said, I'm not a high-level player, so I'm not qualified for these offers, but I'm an investigator, and since the topic interests me, I made some phone calls. Actual bookings for Caesars Palace are limited to high-tier players, period. Your best chance of getting into Caesars Palace is with your home property host, but for annual retreats and annual events such as uh, gift wrap-ups, I was told that strict capacity controls are in place. Since everyone wants to stay at Caesars Palace, there's only so many seven stars, and there's so many seven stars nationwide, only high-level seven stars get a room. That came from several Caesars insiders. Okay, so I'm not going to say Andrew is wrong here. Uh, he's basically saying that due to the reduced capacity during the pandemic, that they're not running at full capacity at Caesars, and that those who do come to Vegas all say, oh, I want Caesars, that they just don't have enough Caesars rooms. So they're, they have a huge Caesars room shortage right now. And for that reason, that director of marketing is being bitchy about this because he doesn't want to waste one of the precious Caesars rooms on somebody they think is not going to play or someone from AC who only plays there. I mean, that kind of makes sense, but that's not what he was told, though. He wasn't told, look, normally we'd say yes, but right now we have a big crunch because we, uh, we have so many people wanting to go to Caesars and only reduce capacity, so we, we, we're only letting the highest seven stars stay here. Even you don't qualify, so sorry. Uh, I think Jackpot would have been a lot more understanding hearing that if that were the case. He wouldn't have been happy, but at least it's something that kind of makes sense. It's kind of one of these things that there's an adjustment for COVID. But to me, it kind of sounds like they're punishing him. They're just saying, we, we don't want you here. Not punishing so much, but more of saying, like, you're useless to us, and we don't want someone who's useless coming here. So you keep your play in AC, and uh, we're going to keep you out of Caesars. <laughs> That's, you've already demonstrated what you do when you come to Vegas. It's not very good. So F you, you're not getting Caesars. That, That's what it looks like to me. Not like normally you'd qualify, but because uh, we have... So a few rooms available right now, we're only giving the rooms to the high seven stars. So I don't know if Andrew's right about this. Andrew may be partially right that if there were not the limited capacity right now, then they wouldn't be denying this. But because there's so much demand for Caesar's rooms, it's much more valuable to have one at the moment. And therefore, they don't think his play is good enough. Either way, they've got to find some way to accommodate this. This is 
messed up, and he definitely should do it through Atlantic City. And and truthfully, if if they absolutely can't do it, then he should get something better than Flamingo. Or if he's going to get Flamingo, they should give him a suite. They shouldn't just give him a regular room in Flamingo. That's a joke. So, yeah, I I would recommend against getting seven stars these days. I mean, if you're going to get there anyway from your play, because you're playing anyway, fine. But it's not something to shoot for anymore. That's why I stopped. Once they did away with a guaranteed room benefit and started getting uh, more and more particular things like this, I've even seen people getting denied seven stars because they don't like the way they earned it. So I said, you know, they, they weren't doing this crap before. So it's not worth it. The, what I really need, I mean, I like that trip, but I can do without it. I can just pay myself. I don't need that trip to travel. The main things I need out of Caesar's status is the special rooms for being able to check in and check out. So I understand a long line the special room to register for the World Series, the no resort fees, the extra consideration for exceptions, and uh, the special lines for the casino cage, all that type of stuff. You know how you get all that stuff? Become Diamond. Yeah, Seven Stars gets it too, but Diamond works as well. Diamond gets you all of that, and that's the main stuff I need. They also give you priority on the wait lists for the cash games of the World Series. That's another benefit. So yeah, I get Diamond. It's 10 times easier to earn. And you can just status match it sometimes, depending on what else you have. So way easier to get, and benefit's almost as good now. So that's where I stop. I get Diamond, and I go, okay, I am happy with Diamond. Whereas in the past, I was obsessed with getting seven stars and not losing it. Times have changed. Okay, we've got a COVID segment, but I need to use the bathroom. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break. And uh, we're going to run an ad here for, yes, you know who I'm talking about, a certain attorney who is currently my attorney, who also frequently donates to the free roll. And if you Google my name right now, Todd Wittellis, and you enter my attorney's name, Eric Benzamokin, or if you enter my uh, opponent's name in this legal matter, Mike Postle, if you enter my name with either of these guys or both of them, you will see a lot of very recent articles about me and about this case and about Eric. A lot of outlets are writing about us right now. We, Eric's been quoted. Eric's been speaking to them when they have questions. He's been very cooperative with all that, very accessible. We have nothing to hide. You know, that's that's why he's accessible. We're not doing anything shady. We're very straightforward with everything we're doing and everything we have done. You'll read a lot of articles. You'll find one on Cards Chat. You'll find one on, uh, I think, PokerTube. You'll find one, actually more than one in these places. You'll find uh, on, I think, Poker News has one. I think uh, Vegas Lots Online has one. find a lot of different articles about our current legal wranglings with Mike Postle and our anti-slap. So go check him out. And Eric has done a great job with all of this. And I'm very happy with my decision to have him representing me in this. So I'll be back shortly, and we'll do our final topic of the night. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on this site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me. 
to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money, or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration where he decides who's right and mediation where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around even if you don't have a dispute at the moment because you never know when one will come up and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. Our final topic is a coronavirus topic. We don't have that many of these this week. We have just one. But I still wanted to do a coronavirus topic as we do each week. And that is about the vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. Now, you've been hearing some bad things about Johnson & Johnson, but uh, I believe these were uh, manufacturer errors. I know some people were getting some bad reactions to them in Denver, but I believe this was from a bad batch, not so much the vaccine itself. But we're not going to talk about that this week. We're going to talk about the second dose, the infamous second dose of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines which, as you've probably heard, makes some people sick. And I'm sure you've heard the first one isn't bad, that you get some arm pain, and that's about it. And the second one, you've probably heard mixed things. You've had some people say, oh, it's nothing, my arm hurt again, but no big deal. Or, uh, you know, I felt a little bit uh, chilled, and I felt a little bit uh, under the weather, but it wasn't that bad. And then you've had some people tell you that it was the worst they've been in their life the sickest they've ever been. So what's the truth? Well, the truth is it depends. It's different from person to person. I think, though I'm not sure, that you can get somewhat of an idea of the type of reaction you have by observing those who are directly related to you. I'm talking about your kids, your parents, and your brothers or sisters. But still, it's going to vary. I've also heard that the older you are, the easier it will be, but even that 
has a lot of variance to it. Like if maybe if it's going to be horrible for you, it'll be a little less horrible if you're older, but that doesn't dictate whether you're going to get a bad reaction. The belief there is that uh, the stronger you, your immune system is, the sicker you'll get because your immune system is responding more strongly. Because when you're getting sick from the second vaccine, it's not that the vaccine is harming you. What's actually happening is your immune system is kicking into gear and you're actually getting sick from your body's reaction to the fake coronavirus that is being injected into you. So your your body gets confused and thinks that there's COVID-19 in you and gears up to fight it. But since it's not a real coronavirus, it's not an inactive coronavirus, it's not a smaller version of the coronavirus, this is actually a fake coronavirus, that's what this mRNA technology is, that your body will learn to fight and then you actually won't have the disease in you because it's a fake version of it. It's something that looks like the coronavirus and the spike protein, which has been uh, used by the coronavirus to attach to your lungs and to other organs, your body learns how to fight that spike protein without the coronavirus actually being in you. And so your body learns how to fight it pretty quickly, and then the whole thing fades out, and then uh, you just have to wait some time. You have to wait two more weeks to get the full immunity. So that's the theory behind these mRNA vaccines. So the illness you're feeling is your body learning to fight it. And if you have a stronger immune system, as younger people do compared to old people, then the belief is that you're going to get a worse reaction. However, there are older people who get very bad reactions. There's younger people who don't have bad reactions at all. So that's not at all an absolute. It's not like the coronavirus itself where you're much more likely to get a bad version when you're older and also much more likely to die when you're older. The vaccine, it's... it's not understood why some people are getting worse reactions than others, but uh, there's definitely a lot of variance to that. And only age is a little bit of a factor, but not a huge one. There isn't really a known factor what will make it better or worse for you compared to others. I have heard the Pfizer vaccine is not producing as bad of a reaction as the Moderna one. But the Pfizer is still producing a lot of bad reactions. So don't think just because you're getting the Pfizer that you're going to dodge the bad second dose because uh, there's a decent chance you're going to get a pretty bad reaction to that too. It's important not to take medication before or after you get this, uh, you get the second dose and the first dose for that matter for the day before and for at least two days after, you should not take aspirin, you should not take Advil, even Tylenol, which some are saying is okay, should be avoided. You really shouldn't take any kind of pain reliever or any kind of anti-inflammatory prior to getting the vaccine because you want your body to be in a state to where it is not hindered in uh, learning to fight the disease. Now, if you took aspirin like a full day before, don't worry about it, but you don't want to take an aspirin for a headache in the morning and then go in in the afternoon to get the the vaccine. But you also don't want to take pills after. And this hasn't been proven, but the theory behind it is that you really just don't want to take any kind of painkillers before or after. Now, once the once a few days pass, you can do it again. 
but I would avoid taking any kind of pain pill, no matter how bad it is. Now, what are you likely to feel from the second dose? Well, as I said, it depends who you are, and there's no way to predict it. You will feel some arm pain. That's pretty likely, just like you did the first time. It may be worse arm pain than the previous time. It's a good chance you'll get a headache. There's a decent chance you will get a horrible headache. There is a decent chance you will get nausea. There is a decent chance you will throw up. There is a decent chance you will get a fever. There is a very good chance you will be fatigued. There is a decent chance you will be so fatigued that you can barely do anything. Even get out of bed to go to the bathroom is going to be a tremendous challenge. A lot of the symptoms that are described from the second dose of the COVID vaccine are said to be similar to the coronavirus itself, except you will not have breathing problems. You are not supposed to get breathing problems with that, but it's supposed to be like COVID without the breathing problems, which can present itself in a lot of ways. Well, COVID without the breathing problems or other weird symptoms like loss of taste and smell. You won't get that either because you don't have the real disease. So the loss of taste and smell is the real disease that's actually uh, causing some kind of problem in your brain being able to uh, perceive taste and smell. Whereas since this is a fake coronavirus, it's actually not harming anything. The only thing you're going to be feeling is your body's reaction to it. You are likely not to feel that bad for six hours following the vaccine being given to you. I'm talking about the second dose. So if you feel okay for six hours, don't think you're out of the woods. And oh, great, this isn't really that bad at all, you may say to yourself. And then six hours will pass and it'll change very much. Do not plan to do anything the next day. Or shall I say, do not plan anything that will start, say, four hours after between that and 30 hours after. So it's really better to just go home and plan to do nothing and plan to have no responsibility for the next 30 hours. 30 hours is the approximate length of time that people have reported that they really feel symptoms that are troublesome. You may have some lingering symptoms from the second dose that last past 30 hours, but they will be a lot milder. And by the time 48 hours comes, it should be gone completely. And by the time 36 hours comes, it should be mostly gone. So it's the period between six hours and 30 hours, which is a 24-hour period, where you're going to have it the worst if you're going to get a bad reaction. There's some people who have really, really bad arm pain on the second one, much worse than the first version of the arm pain that they get from the first dose. But that's it. That's where it stops. There's some who get pretty much all of these different symptoms and are miserable. The media has not been honest about this and so many other things with COVID. And that bothers me because I, I hate when information is blacked out or not covered well on purpose in order to mislead people. It is believed that in order to beat COVID and also in order to lower the chance that it is going to mutate and successfully spread enough to eventually dodge the vaccine and require us to do all this again and also kill a lot of people in the meantime, that the key is to getting everybody vaccinated, getting as many people to cooperate with taking the vaccine as possible. And the only way the media believes we can do that is by minimizing the fear of the vaccine. So 
there could be a lot of vaccine hesitancy if the true extent of the miserable day that most people experience after the vaccine were to be well known. And I'm here to be honest with you. I'm here to be honest with you that there is a decent chance, it's by no means a slam dunk or 100%, but there is a decent chance that you will be extremely sick for that period of time between six hours and 30 hours following getting the second dose of the Pfizer and Moderna. Don't plan to go to work. Don't plan to go to school. Don't plan to uh, do anything with friends. Don't plan to do anything with family. Don't plan to do anything important. Don't even plan to make dinner because you may be pretty much down for the count. You may have an absolute miserable 24 hours there. And the media doesn't want to really say that. They don't want to say this is going to be miserable because then you're going to say, you know what, maybe, maybe I don't want the second dose. And you will be partially protected if you just get one dose. But you really should do the whole thing. If you're going to start it, you should do the whole thing. Because it's said to be very, very effective once you've gotten both doses. Now, the good news is that there has been very little incidence of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine killing anyone or seriously damaging them. Whereas with COVID, that's not true. COVID itself, look at all the people it's killed. The vaccine, I know there was one death of a 39-year-old woman who was healthy in Utah, but it's a very, very big outlier. And almost everybody else, even people who have existing illness, existing cancer, heart problems, you know, you may say, okay, look, I'm not that healthy. I don't know if my body can take this. It may feel like that, but your body actually can This will be something that feels awful as it's happening. But then the differences between this and COVID is it's going to fade. It's going to fade. It's not going to cause permanent damage, at least not that we know of. And you'll feel way better once it gets past its bad phase. It'll rapidly get better. And when you're you're at your worst point, when you've had this, say, when you've had the really bad symptoms for, say, uh, 12 of those 24 hours, it may feel like it's never going to end. It may feel like I can't picture that I'm going to be healthy 12 hours from now. But you actually will be. It just won't feel that way. And that's what you have to tell yourself when you take it. You actually have to look at it and say, I can see the end. Because one of the more disturbing things about being sick is you just don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how long it's going to last. Even if you know it's not something that's going to be dangerous, who knows, could it it could last seven days, it could last two weeks. Like the thing when you get the flu. You don't know if it's going to go by quickly or if it's going to be here for a week or two. And it's that unknown which can be unnerving because you just don't know when you're going to feel better. Well, here you do. Here you're going to get very sick, but you do know you're going to feel better. And that's it. You won't have to do it again, at least unless you have to take another one next year. And maybe by then they will have improved the process and you won't have to deal with the side effects anymore. So the second dose is probably going to be tough on you. If it ends up not being, then you got lucky. Great. I have talked to various people who've taken this second dose, including some that have taken it uh, last few days. One person who is in their late 30s took it and uh, they got nothing more than arm pain. They said it was very bad arm pain, but that they did not get a headache. They didn't get chills. They didn't get nausea. None of that stuff. No fever. Just very, very bad arm pain where it was injected. And then their whole arm got to hurt and it was unpleasant, but it it wasn't terrible. And it never progressed to more. So that was a good story. 
Another person I talked to, they said it was the sickest they've ever been and they were so fatigued that they were unable to get out of bed to go to the bathroom without tremendous effort. That it's the most fatigued they've ever felt in their life by a wide margin and just in general they felt incredibly sick. Very, very hellish experience, they said. Somebody else I was texting with during the break that I just took in the show who was worried about this second dose. I They were actually kind of worried because of me because I told them that uh, they are probably going to have a sickness. They're probably going to have a bad reaction for a day unless they get lucky. And they said, oh, wow, I didn't know that. As well, that's the truth. So they got nervous and posted on their Facebook hey, I want to know everybody else's experience with this because I'm kind of nervous to take this. I don't want to be super sick. And these well-meaning people are saying, oh, no, you got this. It's going to be nothing. I had it. It was very little. I had some arm pain. That was it. Or, oh, my brother took it. He was totally fine. Barely felt it. So all these encouraging messages, not one there said, yeah, this was awful. And finally, you know, I, I, I had to contact this person and say, don't listen to them. They're trying to be supportive, but they're just they're setting you up for an expectation of something that's not realistic. The last thing you want is to believe this is going to be fine and then be confronted with the reality that it's terrible. So it may not be terrible, but there's a decent chance it will be terrible, so be prepared for it. So this person didn't completely listen to me and actually went to go run errands about 30 miles away with a family member. And then started feeling lousy a few hours into it. I'm like, get home, get home, get home. So they, they rushed home. They made it home. They felt like crap. And then boy, did it ramp up. Not because they were out. It's just that was, that's the way it was destined to happen for them. And this person was texting me during the break. That And this is not a radio listener. This is someone I know in uh, real life. They happen to still be up because they can't sleep with how bad the symptoms are. So they were telling me that they throw up a number of times that uh, they feel super sick, they've had a hard time sleeping. The whole thing has been very, very unpleasant, to say the least. So the encouraging stuff I was writing was not, uh, well, obviously I can't tell them they won't be sick because they are sick, but I I said, focus on the fact that it's going to be better in about 12 hours. That's what you need to do. Focus on that fact. Just think about the fact that even though it doesn't feel like that right now, it's going to pass and it's going to be gone. And you can't say that for any other time you felt sick, that you know when it's going to pass. But I'm definitely not looking forward to this when I have to do it. I have a feeling that I'm going to be one of the people who gets pretty sick from this. Now, looking at relatives, my mom, her biggest problem was the headache. She said, yeah, she felt fatigued. She felt some chills. She didn't really feel nauseous. But the headache was the worst one of her life. And keep in mind, my mom gets a ton of headaches because I actually inherited my frequent headaches from her. She doesn't get quite as many as I do. But she's gotten so many headaches in her life. She's gotten many thousands of headaches in her life. Many thousands, not just 1,000. I mean, she's gotten many thousands of headaches in her life, as have I. And of all those headaches, she said, never has she had one this bad. It was the very worst headache she had in her life. And she didn't take anything for it, because, as I said, that's not a smart thing to do. So she just toughed it out. 
And she kept wishing she could take something. And she hated that 24-hour period. She said, for the first six hours, she's like, oh, this is no big deal. And then bang, hit her right around the six-hour mark. And for the next 24, it was miserable. My sister, uh, I didn't get the full details from her, but she got it pretty badly as well. And she hated that day. My brother, he got lucky. He just had the arm pain. My dad, he got lucky. He just had the arm pain. So it looks like uh, if it is hereditary, I guess I'm going to want my dad's side on this one. I didn't want my dad's side for the colon cancer risk, but that's what I got. (laughs) I got the polyps from him for sure. But uh, hopefully I will get the reaction from him regarding the uh, coronavirus shot, the uh, vaccine. But I always seem to land on the wrong side of these. I run really bad with inheriting unpleasant things from your parents. So I'm guessing I'm going to get the reaction and uh, it'll be a terrible day. And I'll just have to keep telling myself that this will be over soon. And I'm sure it'll be a very long 24 hours from the time it starts getting bad to the time it ends being bad. But really, you need to prepare for this. So don't plan to do nothing. Plan to have a bad headache you can't take anything for. Try very, very hard not to take Tylenol, and especially do not take aspirin or Advil. And don't take it beforehand either. Stay hydrated if you're throwing up, because that can be harmful to you. You can get dehydrated, that can even kill you if you get too dehydrated. So make sure you can get water down. And if you can't for an extended period of time, you may want to go to the hospital to get an IV. Though I haven't heard of this happening. So I guess I have to imagine the throwing up issue isn't as bad as it can be with the flu. Because I, I had a stomach virus seven years ago. And that was the only one I had like this in my life. But seven years ago, I was actually in Caesars um, repeatedly throwing up and the slightest bit of liquid I would drink within 10 to 20 minutes come right back up. So I could not keep any liquid down. And this lasted the entire day. And I started getting a little worried towards the evening that I have to do something or otherwise I could die. Because if you just keep throwing up any liquid you drink and it never stays down, then between that and what you're throwing up, I mean, you really can die of dehydration. And I actually read about there a 26-year-old female conservative blogger in D.C. died like two years ago from exactly that. She got a bad stomach virus and she kept throwing up and she got dehydrated and died. So that actually could have happened to me. I should have been a little more vigilant with that. I ended up okay, obviously, but that was kind of dangerous. I haven't heard that the vaccine has caused anyone to have to go to the hospital to get the IV to get themselves hydrated. So I'm guessing whatever the stomach sickness is, that it doesn't prevent you from at least keeping some liquids down. Make sure you do keep some liquids down. For a few hours, it's okay. You just don't want the entire day to pass where everything you drink, you throw up. But be prepared, this is coming. And if you don't get that, then consider yourself fortunate. And say, okay, I ran well. I got lucky. But expect the worst. Prepare for the worst. Don't take painkillers. And know that no matter how bad you're feeling, it'll get better in a day. And that it's normal. That's the way it's supposed to be. As long as you have one of those type of symptoms I mentioned. 
If you have problems breathing, then yeah, go to the hospital. That's not supposed to happen. But if it's just nausea, extreme fatigue, even super extreme fatigue, fever, any of that type of thing, then you should be okay. So it just feel like a really bad flu for a day. But there's a good chance that's going to happen. And the media doesn't like to talk about that. Yeah, they'll admit it's going to be worse on the second shot than the first. They get some sick. Some people get uh, some of these symptoms, but they they don't say it's going to be the sickest you'll be in your life for some people. They don't say that. But I've heard a lot of people telling me that. I've heard a lot of people telling me that was the worst day they've had illness-wise. I'm not trying to discourage anyone from taking the vaccine. You just say, you have to know what you're getting. Now, I feel that the pain you go through with it is worth it because you get to return to normal life and you are probably preventing the coronavirus from doing anything serious to you, even if you do manage to get it. Because remember, the vaccine also apparently tremendously helps people fight it off, even if they do manage to catch it. So it looks like just about nobody is dying from the coronavirus after they have the vaccine. Even if they get some COVID symptoms, the symptoms are pretty mild. So it's, it's great. I mean, it's really a modern miracle. It just sucks that the side effects are worse than I've ever seen for any vaccine. I've never taken a vaccine where the side effects are that bad. So it kind of sucks, but at least the benefit you get from it is so good. So definitely get the second dose. Don't just stop at one. Just be aware. Be aware you're not being told the full extent and that they are likely not publicizing this because they do not want people to be hesitant to take it. It's hard enough to get people to take a vaccine that has been not tested very long to have it be a vaccine that hasn't been tested very long and is going to get you super sick on the second dose. That is going to discourage people. And I remember reading there was this exact concern because remember, they tested it prior to it being administered to the general public. They tested it in 2020. And they were finding that uh, some people, upon hearing that the vaccine was going to get you really sick on the second dose, some people were really expressing hesitancy to go through with a study and take that second dose. So they were saying, uh oh, this might be what's coming down the pipe is that people may be afraid in the general population to take the second dose once they learn how bad it is. And that's why the media is trying to cover that up. But I don't believe in that. I believe in telling you the truth of what's really happening and that you can make your own decision. If you've got your own uh, vaccine story, you can text me at 775-372-8355 even after the show. I'll be curious to hear how you uh, how you made out with it, how the second dose was. You want to tell me about the first dose. The first dose, there's a few people who get noticeably sick from it, but most people, the vast, vast majority, just feel arm pain, and that's it. Okay, we're done here. I'm planning to have the next show on April 16th, but there's a chance it will be on the 17th. But April 16th, Friday, is looking more like the date. Thank you for listening. I guess we didn't have any co-hosts tonight. Told you it wouldn't be nine hours. Looks like we're closer to five hours. But since I had to talk myself all this time, 
and after it was just six days, so we had less to talk about. That's fine. I don't want the last segment to scare you. I encourage everybody to get the vaccine. It's much safer to do that than to just chance COVID, especially if you're over 45. One reliable thing about the vaccine is everyone seems to get better after 30 hours. So it's not even like you'll feel that way and say, well, crap, you know, some people are taking a week to get better. Everybody's reliably reporting that this goes away and goes away quickly. So that's what makes it tolerable to me. If I, if I knew I'd have to sit there and be sick for a week or even possibly be sick for a week, I, I would be kind of hesitant to do it. But a day, you know... Today's kind of a long time, but it's not all that long. Last week's episode was more than a third of the day. <laughs> and you know what? You can just lie there and listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Maybe that'll help speed up the time. Well, either that or slow down time if it's boring. Dodger Stadium, I notice, is not really enforcing mask usage, so after I get vaccinated, if that stays the case, I may actually go to a game. Like, they require masks, but they aren't enforcing the wearing of the masks. So that'd be good. I don't want to wear a mask at a game for three hours. That'd be torture. All right, everybody. That's all. Good night. And shalom. Shalom.